Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a great crowd. What a great crowd. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. Welcome. What are we doing here? Okay, we, we, we'll get it right. Welcome to the mop up for July 12th, 2021. We're coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage in Manhattan where the temperature is 80 degrees and partly sunny. I'm David Feldman bringing you first world problems on a third world income. The coffee machine is working. It's three years old. It never worked. I bought a new coffee machine. The old one starts working. That's uh, that's how it goes. You just you, you you keep it and it's you, you, you buy a new you buy a new coffee maker and you put it in front of the old one and say you can be replaced old man. And the, the old coffee machine has picked up its game. I scared, I scared the hell out of it. This is what I consider the news. China is committing genocide. That is the conclusion in a new report from the State Department. President Biden's State Department issued its annual report on genocide. And in that report, it warned China, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Myanmar, and South Sudan to expect more economic sanctions in retaliation for their use of ethnic cleansing. By law, the State Department must issue an annual report to Congress on preventing genocide overseas. Now, in this report, the Biden State Department has accused, has officially accused China of genocide for its repression of Uyghur Muslims. The report says, and I quote, this administration will defend and protect human rights around the world and recognizes the prevention of atrocities as a core national security interest and a core moral responsibility. We've had people on this show who are claiming it isn't genocide, it isn't ethnic cleansing, what's going on in uh, Western province of China, but the State Department, our State Department says China's treatment of the Muslim Uyghurs constitutes quote unquote genocide. The Biden administration's conclusion echoes what was first announced by former President Donald Trump's administration. The climate catastrophe due to global warming, due to man-made global warming, continues on the West Coast. California is now home to the largest wildfire of 2021. 140 square miles are burning up in the Beckworth complex fire that's going on right now along the Nevada state line. California firefighters worked in 100 degree temperatures. Californians are being asked to conserve electricity and water as the drought continues and the power grid comes under severe strain. In Oregon, 240 square miles of the Fremont Wenema National Forest have been detonated by the heat. Sheriff's deputies in Southern Oregon are threatening to arrest anyone who refuses to evacuate the area. Las Vegas hit 117 degrees over the weekend. Nevada's largest power provider urged customers to conserve electricity because that's why people go to Las Vegas. Back to California, which is now is logging 78 
more fire days than it did 50 years ago. In 2018, the state of California commissioned a report on climate change, and they they projected that if we do not change, the average burn area in California will increase 77% by the end of the 21st century. Since 1946, California has been using prisoners to fight fires. Some years, inmate firefighters make up as much as 30% of California's wildland fire crews. Right now, there's a report in the Los Angeles Times about female prisoners being used to fight these forest fires in California. And it's important to remember that in 2011, the Supreme Court in Brown v. Plata ruled that California's prisons were so overcrowded they were in violation of the Constitution's prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. So in 2014, the Supreme Court ordered California to allow nonviolent second-time offenders who have served half of their sentence to be eligible for parole, parole, but... California's Attorney General, Vice President Harris, tried to keep the inmates locked up because she said, we need cheap labor. This is from the Daily Beast. When California was ordered to reduce the prison population, lawyers from then California Attorney General Harris's office made the case that some nonviolent offenders need to stay incarcerated or else the prison system would lose a source of cheap labor. The use of uh, prisoners is reported to save California an average of $100 million a year. 30% of the people fighting the fires right now are prisoners. Jake Beckett, a former NFL player and Army veteran, declared his candidacy for U.S. Senate in Arkansas and says he will challenge incumbent Senator John Boozman in next year's Republican primary. Beckett is 32, played in eight games for the New England Patriots. In his announcement, he said, quote, what's happening in Washington these days is a disgrace. Democrats have been taken over by radical socialists. I wish. And too many Republicans, he say, just go along to get along. Really? According to the Washington Post, of the nearly 700 Republicans who have filed to run for office next year, either in the Senate or in the House, at least a third have said they support Donald Trump's false claims about the election being stolen from him. 136 of those candidates currently serve in Congress, and they voted against Joe Biden's Electoral College victory on January 6. Gina Griswold, the Democratic Secretary of State in Colorado, tells the Washington Post, what's really frightening right now is the extent of the effort to steal power over future elections. She says that's what we're seeing across the nation. Literally in almost every swing state, we have someone running for secretary of state who has been fear-mongering about the 2020 election or was at the insurrection. She says democracy will be on the ballot in 2022. 
The governor of Texas has convened a special session of the Texas legislature to introduce more voter suppression bills that would rid the state of Texas of 24-hour polling places, ballot drop boxes, and it would increase voter intimidation by creating a new class of belligerent poll watchers. But for the second time in a month, Democrats in Texas are denying Governor Abbott, who's running for re-election in 2022, they're denying Governor Abbott a necessary quorum. They are leaving town, and this time they're traveling all the way up to Washington, D.C. to draw attention to the return of Jim Crow voting laws. So far, the For the People Act has stalled in the Senate. Hervis Rogers, the 62-year-old African-American from Houston, Texas, who waited nearly seven hours to cast his ballot in the 2020 election, was arrested last week for voting illegally. The Texas State Attorney General says Rogers violated the law, which prohibits anyone on parole for a felony burglary conviction from voting. Rogers' attorney says he did not know he wasn't allowed to vote. CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, held their big meeting in Dallas this past weekend. 70% of them say in a poll they want Donald Trump to be the GOP nominee in 2024. One hour before Trump was scheduled to speak to CPAC, Trump gave an interview on Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiroma. That's on the Fox News channel. During the interview, Trump spoke lovingly of the people who showed up for his January 6th rally. Trump told Maria Bartiroma, quote, these were peaceful people. These were great people. He called the rally participants patriots and insisted many are being unfairly prosecuted by the federal government right now. During his appearance on Fox News, he mourned the loss of Ashley Babbitt, the QAnon follower, an Air Force veteran who was shot to death by Capitol Hill police before she tried to crawl through a window and come within close proximity of several lawmakers. Trump asked Maria Bartiroma, who shot Ashley Babbitt? Why are they keeping that secret? Who was the person, he says, that shot an innocent, wonderful, incredible woman, a military woman? Trump also insists he knows the name of the officer who killed Ashley Babbitt. He said, I've heard also that it was the head of security for a certain high official, a Democrat. And we'll see. It's going to come out. That's Donald Trump talking with Maria Bartiroma. After that interview, he took the stage at CPAC in Dallas to accuse Joe Biden of exacerbating the so-called border crisis. And he accused Joe Biden of bringing the country to the brink of ruin. He went on to talk about his own class action lawsuit against Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, accusing the big tech of engaging in an assault on liberty. He told the audience, never forget that the radical left is not the majority in this country. We are the majority, and it's not even close. Of course, it's not even close. That's why your party has to do everything in its power to suppress the vote, because you're the majority. Before his speech, members of Patriots Soar handed out a card explaining their seven-point plan to put Trump back in office by August. Wait, he's not already back? I thought they said he's already back in office. 
Glenn Beck was there, and according to Vice, Glenn Beck has an obsession with Nazi memorabilia. Vice reports that during Beck's speech, he brandished an actual KKK hood in order to delineate his point that Antifa is just like the KKK. Vice reports that when Beck was done, he could be seen backstage proudly showing off his prized collection of Nazi memorabilia, including armbands of those persecuted by Hitler. And they were forced to wear these armbands, and now Glenn Beck has a collection of those armbands that were worn, worn by the people persecuted by Hitler, who were the members of the LGBTQ community, Jews and communists, all the people Glenn Beck speaks so glowingly of. You just know that Glenn Beck would be appalled if Jews and communists and members of the LGBTQ community were forced to wear armbands and then got rounded up. Also spotted at CPAC wearing an official pass was the leader and founder of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes. The Oath Keepers reportedly helped orchestrate the insurrection on January 6. And so far, six members of the Oath Keepers have been arrested for their involvement, but so far, not Rhodes. The leader of the Groiper Army, Nick Fuentes, a white nationalist, was forbidden from entering CPAC. On Friday, Twitter finally deplatformed Nick Fuentes. Nobody is sure why it took Twitter so long. YouTube, PayPal, and TikTok had booted Nick Fuentes long ago for denying the Holocaust and insisting Jim Crow laws were good, both for white and black people. Congressman Matt Gates, who could serve time for trafficking underage girls, was also in attendance but was not allowed to speak. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who tweeted on January 6 that today is 1776, she was allowed to speak. Have you seen Washington, D.C.? It's no longer the people's house. That's Pelosi's house. She's got the walls up and the Capitol locked down. Well, we are here to tell this Second Amendment-hating, freedom-hating Democrats, not on my watch. We're here to tell government, we don't want your benefits, we don't want your welfare, don't come knocking on my door with your Fauci-outie, you leave us the hell alone. Republican Congressman from Illinois, Adam Kinzinger, is one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump earlier this year because of the insurrection. During an interview with the New York Times, Congressman Kissinger said he suspects Republicans in Congress knew what was being planned for January 6. He points out Lauren Bobitt's tweet on January 6 before the insurrection in which he wrote in which he wrote today is 1776 Congressman Kinzinger a Republican says quote I won't name names but yes I do have that suspicion I will say if you just looked at Twitter the whole reason I brought my gun and kept my staff home on January 6 and told my wife to stay in the apartment was because I was looking at Twitter and I saw the threats Kinzinger said that on the morning of January 6, Lauren Bobit tweeted, 
Today is 1776. Kinzinger said, I don't know what that meant other than this is the time for revolution. Maybe it was a dumb tweet that she didn't mean. Fine, I'll give her that credit for now. But if you have members of Congress who were involved in nurturing an insurrection, heck yeah, we need to know. California is holding an election in September to determine whether to remove Governor Gavin Newsom. Caitlyn Jenner is running to replace Gavin Newsom as a conservative Christian Republican. She showed up at CPAC this weekend and was on the receiving end of transphobic attacks. Take a look. Look at that sick freak. Bruce, Bruce, right, here we go, here we go, here what do you think about the stuff that they're teaching in schools regarding the LGBTQ? About Jesus Christ, Bruce. Don't forget about Jesus. Look at that sick freak. One man's transphobic attack is another political party's platform. Talking Points Memo reports the student group Turning Point USA is infiltrated by racists. Turning Point USA, or Turning Point, is a nonprofit that advocates for conservative values on high school, college, and university campuses. It was founded in 2012 by Charlie Kirk. It has an annual revenue of close to $30 million. And according to Talking Point's memo, one of Turning Point's top advisors, his name is Rip McIntosh. Rip McIntosh has a newsletter, and in it he wrote, quote, American black culture has evolved into an unfixable and crime-ridden mess. He also wrote, black people had failed to integrate in America since being, quote, taken from the jungles of Africa. When contacted by Talking Points Memo, McIntosh said he did not regret publishing those words. He is one of the top advisors to Charlie Kirk's Turning Point USA. Meanwhile, a woman who faces up to 20 years in prison for storming the Capitol and saying she was there to lynch Nancy Pelosi on January 6, claimed in court last week that she is immune from prosecution due to, quote unquote, divine empowerment. Pauline Bauer, who stormed the U.S. Capitol, is serving as her own lawyer and told the court she is a sovereign citizen, which means American laws do not apply to her. Kyle Rittenhouse was charged with first-degree intentional murder of two people after he shot three people who died last summer at a Black Lives Matter protest in Wisconsin. He was charged last summer. The Fight Back Foundation was immediately founded after he was charged by an attorney named John Pierce. Supposedly, Pierce founded the Fight Back Foundation to pay Kyle Rittenhouse's legal fees. Kyle was 17 at the time and has dreams of becoming a pediatric nurse. But in an interview with The New Yorker, Kyle Rittenhouse's mother, Wendy Rittenhouse, says that while $2 million had been raised, for her son's legal defense, most of it has disappeared into the bank account of their attorney, John Pierce, who she claims is underwater financially and using them 
to raise money for himself, not for Kyle Rittenhouse's defense. Wendy Rittenhouse told The New Yorker, quote, Kyle was John Pierce's ticket out of debt. During the interview with The New Yorker, Kyle Rittenhouse's mother said after $2 million had been raised for her son's bail, he languished in jail. She says she suspects the attorney, Pierce, let him stay in jail longer so they could raise more money. In September of last year, Pierce, the lawyer, resigned from the Fight Back board when it was revealed that he was in dire financial straits. He was replaced by Lynn Wood. Meanwhile, when Rittenhouse was finally let out on bail, he immediately flew to Miami to meet with one of the leaders of the Proud Boys. Good people. Haiti's National Police Chief announced Christian Emmanuel Sanon, 63, a Haitian-born doctor living in Florida, was behind the assassination of President Jovenel Moise. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. During a news conference, the police... The police chief says he suspects the doctor was planning to become the new president of Haiti. So far, 24 people have been arrested, two of them American. 20 Colombians have been implicated in the shooting. Colombia is cooperating with Haiti in the investigation and is looking into trips taken by Haiti, Haiti's security chief, trips taken to Colombia where he allegedly met with former Colombian soldiers right before the assassination. As it spirals into chaos and confusion, Haiti has requested the Biden administration send in troops to restore order. So far, the Biden administration says no troops will be sent in, but the American government will help with the investigation. FBI agents and Department of Homeland Security officials are down there right now helping. The Biden administration is pulling out of Afghanistan before September 11th, no matter what. Representatives for the president spent the weekend telling reporters that America's longest war failed to bring democracy or stability to Afghanistan. President Biden told the American people that the war in Afghanistan was never meant to be a multi-generational undertaking. Yes, it was, Lindsey Graham explained to Donald Trump it's never over. Last year, Donald Trump wanted to pull out of Afghanistan. He said, what's the end game here? And Lindsey Graham said, there is no end game. It's a perpetual war against evil. Biden is ending it. The U.S. military has been packing up and leaving since late April. Over the weekend, the U.S. commander of Afghanistan operations for the past three years, General Austin S. Miller, ceremoniously left Kabul. During his speech, General Miller said, it's important to me to say farewell. Our job is now not to forget. We'll see about that. It's been four years since Reality Winner was arrested for sharing classified NSA documents with The Intercept. Those documents revealed Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Convicted under the Espionage Act, Reality Winner served five years, three months, which is the longest anyone ever accused of violating the Espionage Act has ever served in prison. Last month, Winner was released from her Fort Worth, Texas federal prison cell and is now under house arrest. 
In a new interview with The Intercept, Winner tells us that after a mass infection of COVID-19 swept through the prison, she too contracted the virus. Winner says she was sexually assaulted by one of the prison guards and during last February's deadly storm that knocked out power in Texas, she was without heat and water. Meanwhile, a judge in Great Britain says she will not allow the extradition of Julian Assange to America, where he is wanted on charges of espionage. The judge fears that Assange would commit suicide in American custody. The World Health Organization reported that the Delta variant of the coronavirus has now spread to at least 104 countries. Israel was one of COVID-19's great success stories, unless, of course, you were living in the West Bank or Gaza. But today, Israel announced that it would offer a third dose of the Pfizer vaccine to severely immunocompromised adults. The variant is spreading through Israel. Some say this is the beginning of Israel introducing booster shots for all senior citizens. Despite coronavirus infections in Great Britain spiking, Prime Minister Boris Johnson vowed on Monday to lift the COVID lockdown and reopen Britain's economy next week. This means pubs, restaurants and nightclubs will be allowed to operate at full capacity. The Prime Minister did urge everyone to wear face masks. Great Britain's Metropolitan Police have launched an investigation into racist social media posts directed at three black players who failed to score penalty kicks in England's shootout loss to Italy in the European Championship final. Marcus Rashford, Jaden Sancho, and Bukayo Saka have come under attack after Italy beat Britain on Sunday. A Danish woman who attended England's victory over Denmark says, quote, our nine-year-old son was booed directly into his face by one fan. He had the Danish flag painted on his face and wore a Viking hat and a Denmark kit. We had to wipe the color off his face and cover up his clothes to stop the abuse. I am absolutely gutted with the behavior of some English fans, especially towards a child. Jeanette Jorgensen told The Guardian that people had shouted, you don't belong here. They tried to take her Danish flag. They started pulling my hair. I just couldn't believe what was happening. Alan Nielsen said on Saturday that he saw Danish fans being spat upon and nearby police doing nothing about it. He says overall the whole experience was very frightening and we felt it was just a matter of time before someone would come at us. We actually saw British fans spitting at kids. Miami-Dade County Mayor Danielle Levine-Cava says a Miami-Dade County Commissioner assisting in the Surfside condo collapse search and recovery effort has tested positive for COVID-19 despite fully vaccinated. Miami-Dade County Commission Chairman Jose Diaz announced on Sunday that he and his chief of staff, Isidoro Lopez, who also received a vaccine against COVID-19, tested positive for the virus after complaining of symptoms that match the disease. Meanwhile, White House officials say virtually all new hospitalizations and deaths from COVID involve people who refuse to get vaccinated. The five states with the worst outbreaks all went 
for Donald Trump in 2020 and are lagging behind the rest of the country when it comes to vaccination rates. President Biden earlier this year promised that 70% of Americans would have at least one shot by July 4th, but so far that number is 67%. The shots are available. uh, We have Fox News and right-wing politicians who are telling people at CPAC not to get the shot. The American Academy of Pediatrics say more than 4 million American children have tested positive. 16,500 had to be hospitalized with 300 dying. Americans are going into debt again, in some cases at record levels. Consumer demand for auto loans and leases and general purpose credit cards and personal loans is up 39% in April compared to the same period last year. That's according to Equifax. And that's some of what I consider to be the news. Listening to the David Feldman Show, DavidFeldmanShow.com. Please subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And there's another show you should subscribe to. In fact, if I had to recommend one over the other, I would recommend Stand Up with Pete Dominic. That's the show you really should be subscribing to. Then get to this one. Please welcome the star of Stand Up with Pete Dominic, the brilliant Pete Dominic. Yeah. Your email is, do you want me to change that or is that okay? What's that? Your email is in the... Oh, I don't know why that is. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we've had enough issues. Hang on, let me get rid of that very quickly. All right, hang on. It's not, it's not yeah. the worst thing in the world. Uh, I mean, yeah, well, I don't, you've, let me hang on, sorry. We're having... It's, all, it's only my private I know. email that only my mother and my wife have. <laughs> it's good to see you. It really is. I was stumbling through the news. I, I'm writing newscasts to start the show because I feel that there's only Amy Goodman and then nobody else who is giving us what we need to know. So I'm trying to write a newscast and I'm in way over my head. It's a lot harder to get all the, the visuals and to actually read it properly. Oh, I, hell yeah. I do it. Every, I do it every day on my show, too, as well. I just do a whole, you know, just mentioning news stories and trying to make fun of them and vent about them a little bit. And I play sound and it, it's got, you know, it takes hours and hours to put together. It's hard. Right. Yeah. But. But you give your, your spin on it, your take on it as well. And I think people appreciate that. Yeah, I'm trying to do straight news. I just feel, well, fine. It's, I feel it's missing. Anyway, enough about me. I, I like, you know, when you're, you're choosing, to, even that, if you're still editorializing, meaning you're choosing these stories. I think that's always interesting in terms of if you look at an hour of programming to meet the press or a democracy now or a David Feldman show or stand up with Pete Dominic, no matter what the show is, you are choosing to spend your time looking into and covering these stories. There's a bazillion stories. They're easier to find than ever before. So in a way, you, sir, are editorializing by covering the ones that you covered. And so did you cover the billionaires in space? Yes, I did. And what what are your thoughts on that? 
I think there's a lot to say about that. I think that we're privatizing space. This is the beginning of the Jetsons. You know, this is <laughs> we're taking over the the, the space, and we're we're going to make it a, a capitalist society, and and then destroy it from within. And uh, it's also just a, a preview of the kind of Elysium. You know, the the elite. The Illuminati's, I don't buy into all that stuff for real, but, you know, that, that they can have their own space station. And uh, yet at the same time, for the future of humanity, I think you always have to explore. So can we both fight COVID and racism and climate change here at home and explore galaxies far beyond? Apparently, apparently we can. There was something noble about the original space race. And by the way, I don't know, I, you know, I'm older than you. I don't I'm not impressed about a suborbital flight. I was around when we landed on the moon. You know, we're trying to all we're doing is celebrating these spoiled brats doing what Neil Armstrong and John Glenn did half a century ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we launch billionaires into space to float around for three minutes. But really, they're just in the upper sky, as Michael Harriet put it. Yeah, (laughs) they're not. It's the Carmen level. Is that what it's called? I, I don't know uh, much about the atmosphere and the different levels and where one begins. And the, I, it's all rainbow to me. But just the idea of being able to do I have no ambition to do that. I don't I like rides. I want to jump out of a plane. I'm a thrill seeker. I like high speeds. I'm not you know, I, I like a lot of those moves. I don't I don't need to go to space. I'm good. I'm fine. You I have dissociative disease. That's a mental mm-hmm. illness where I'm present, but I'm not absolutely in the moment i'm joking around partly what do you get 12 minutes in outer space how do you know it's actually real how do you experience those 12 minutes with absolute certitude that it's happening it it seems to me i would have to spend years processing that experience to enjoy you just make it you just make a TikTok. (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i don't think well, they say uh, 2% of the world has $5 million, hmm. is worth $5 million. And something like 60% of the people polled who have more than $5 million, 2% of the world has, is worth $5 million. I think I'm getting that right. And something like 30% would pay $250,000 for a 12-minute a ride in outer space. It's going to be more than that, but apparently you can use miles. <laughs> hey, can I use miles to go on Jeff Bezos' rocket ship? Can I use my does my Amazon Prime account? And of course, a lot of people were acting like, "Oh, you're spending all this money to to go to space. Why not just pay your employees a living wage?" And I, you know, everything's a clever binary. You're doing this. Why not do that? But there, that was the one that seemed to resonate the most with me. It's like if you are going to be spending billions of dollars to launch your own rich self into space, you better cover your flank or or cover your employees back on the home planet. Yes. With yes. A, a living wage. Yes. You know, it's like the guy who has a, a restaurant and doesn't pay a livable wage and they spit in his food. You know, he eats there and the, the waitresses spit and the waiter spit in the food. I if I had a billion dollars, I would buy a ticket on Bezos's flight. Mm hmm. And then refuse to wear a mask. <laughs> That's what. 
So, and, and just that would just scrub the whole mission because I'd be the a-hole who refuses to wear a mask. There are record levels of people being thrown off planes right now. And it's for political reasons. It's over yeah. the mask. I just will concede. I will do almost anything to accomplish certain kind of tasks in life. And I'll play by most reasonable rules to get from point A to point B. And I haven't been on a plane since the pandemic began. Me neither. I, I, I have no problem wearing a mask. I'm vaccinated, of course. I've actually uh, been inoculated several times, six to seven times. I'm up to to uh because i'm in a lot i'm in a bunch of trials and i can't tell if you're joking yeah no well some of them are not for covid i'm doing like a performance enhancement thing are you really if if i can win the tour (laughs) but i'm digressing here on all the different shots i love getting i love getting shots but not i don't want to get high you know, so like where can where can you get the thrill of a needle, but not also addicted <laughs> to an opiate? And I find that vaccines and trials really gets does it for me. OK, so you asked me about the news that I put together and how it's editorializing. What I do is I report the things that I don't normally follow. If I hmm. lead off with a story, it's because. I've neglected a lot of it, and I've been neglecting the Republican Party since the insurrection. Mm. I haven't been paying as much attention to the Boberts and the Gateses and the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Nick Fuentes who are out there because I don't want to give them oxygen. But, you know, Ben Burgess, who's on the show all the time, says you ignore them at your own peril. Right. You have to know what these people are thinking, even though they're not really thinking. CPAC, I don't understand it. I mean, I I kind of understand it, but I really don't understand the don't wear a mask thing. I, I really, I don't understand how anybody benefits from telling their side it's about freedom Go ahead and get sick and die. What what, what is going on? I really well. I, that, that that's because you're not. I understand what you're saying, but you have to put yourself in in a place where they're not arriving at the same conclusion that you are arriving at. So when you say you don't understand, it's because you're you're not listening. You're not hearing. Uh, well enough why they don't do it. And part of it is a control issue and they don't want to be controlled. And part of it is a kind of a, a, a fate issue and Jesus's blood will protect me. Uh, I'll be okay because I'm uh, one of the good ones. Part of it is a, a, a kind of a sense of bravado. Some people still, I think probably are really think that there isn't, that it's a scam. So I, it, no one is at the same starting point that you're at who's not going to wear a mask if they're not vaccinated. I mean, I think that's that's continued to be the case here. It's just a, a signaling of who you are. I mean, we're, we're doing that as much as we as we possibly can. And CPAC, by the way, is just a grift. It's just like a Comic-Con, which is not a grift. It's just the idea that you're going to have a convention 
and everybody's going to win. The organizers are going to win because they're going to make money off of all the people who come. Uh, all the media descends upon it, the conservative media stars. Uh, and also you're around like-minded people. And finally, it gives a lot of content to the kind of the, the mainstream corporate media as well. And so it's just a convention. It's, it's a political convention. I've been to it several times. Not really? The last few years. Yeah, I attended CPAC uh, probably four times. Wow. Are they as hateful as, I mean, I remember Breitbart when he was still alive. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing him at CPAC and thinking, this is just a convention of hate. Is there any policy? It used to be, and it used to be more youth driven. But now, you know, the Republican Party is kind of void of policy right now. They're in an interesting, you know, thing where everything is a culture war and it's about, you know, anti-critical race theory and and cancel culture and, uh, you know, just the grift that is Trump and trying to get him back in office. And it's very it's. It's very not, yeah, not not policy driven other than the policy of changing. They're very focused on changing our democracy and, you know, access to the ballots, gerrymandering stuff. But in terms of infrastructure or any other kind of policy that they used to have, you know, thoughts on at those types of conventions. No, no, it's just just a party. And this Nick Fuentes guy, watch this video. And what was interesting about this kid is he's a YouTube star. and He just got kicked off Twitter and and he did this whole rant about he's going to give the most racist speech, most sexist, most anti-Semitic speech. And he marched into the hotel. And apparently I think he got kicked out. It doesn't matter. The thing that was weird, I don't know if you saw this video, is that the young people, there were young people marching with him and kind of cheering him on. And they're the same type of people, I think, that attacked me on on, on Twitter for weeks. Very young, David, like very young, like maybe 15 and 16 year old kids. And I almost felt bad for them putting them, their faces on camera because everybody's stupid when they're 15. Yeah. I totally forgive any 15 year old for his or her stupidity. But it's it's a lot of that YouTube crowd and that, that crazy social media crowd. And that that to me is pretty scary to have those types of where do you views. stand on the deplatforming? Because I'm for it. Go ahead. I've not seen anybody that didn't deserve to be deplatformed, deplatformed temporarily deplatformed, but then they're put back on. J.D. Vance, who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, mm. is running for the Senate seat in Ohio. Mm-hmm. He's a conservative. He's deleted all his anti-Trump tweets, and he's been attacked by Nick Fuentes. When Nick Fuentes got deplatformed by Twitter, J.D. Vance said, you know, this guy has been attacking me, but I believe he has the right to stay on Twitter. You're, and you're for Twitter saying, look, we're a private company and we, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's got to be difficult for them to decide on the consequences and, and what those guidelines are, what the fallout would be. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm certain somebody could give me an example of somebody who got kicked off or is an accident or, or so on. But I think generally speaking, from what I've seen as to how, who they have deplatformed or kicked off of Twitter, it's, I, I'm fine with it. It makes sense. Like if, if you don't, if you threaten people, if you are super racist or sexist or, you know, but, but by the way, who cares if you're playing so many of these people, certainly those that are attacking me, you know, you block them, they come back with another account. I mean, a more controversial conversation is should you be allowed to be anonymous 
on social media. Right. I argue that you should be able to, but I don't generally admire people who are unless they are living in, you know, countries and cultures where they, you know, would be murdered or 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 captured and tortured if they put their identity to what they're saying, which is the case with journalists in places from Mexico to Russia. Well, the New York Times, you have to be certified to comment. And I and I yeah. find I know people dislike the New York Times, but I find their I comment. Don't. I'm sorry. I love the New York Times. Of course. And their comment section is somewhat highbrow because they screen the people. You're not allowed mm. to post anonymously. They have to know who you are. And there's a moderator. So there is some benefit, some virtue to putting your name behind your beliefs, the the anonymity. So you're OK with the anonymity? Yes, because of the countries and cultures and specific situations where, for example, a specific situation in America might be that somebody, you know, is a member of law enforcement and they want to tweet out something that they know is happening and that they're seeing this. And so they're bringing someone to justice in that way. And, you know, more obvious in countries like Mexico, where you're journalists covering the drug cartels. Well, you obviously can't put your name to that Twitter account and do accurate journalism, uh, obviously questioning Putin, speaking truth to power and anywhere from Russia to the Philippines that could also get you killed, poisoned or or, you know, something worse. So I think there are countries and cultures and situations in America where that it would be OK to be anonymous. But generally speaking, Generally speaking, most people don't need to be anonymous on Twitter in America, and they're just they just want to be assholes. So there's a, an executive director over J.P. Morgan Chase. His name is Ishan. Ma- I'm sorry. Chet. His name is Chet. Chet. You know him. Yeah. Uh, nah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was doing a bit because you were saying a banker, and I just named the whitest lacrosse player I could. But well, actually, fact, his name is. Ishan Malik. He's a 33-year-old. He was was the executive director trading the CBOE volatility index for. Oh the, yeah, sure. Yeah, I know for the bank's U.S. equity derivatives desk. Okay, mm. he was a My bully. Gig. They, they had a, he had a long history of screaming and abusing people and acting the way traders used to act before. I don't know, Anita Hill. He was let go or at least suspended because of a series of late night tweets. He had to be let go from the firm because they didn't approve of some things he said on Twitter over the 4th of July weekend. And they're keeping his tweets private. They won't reveal what he wrote. But here's my question. You're the head of J.P. Morgan, you're Jamie Dimon, you're the head of J.P. Morgan Chase. The guy can abuse his co-workers, scream, threaten, cause nervous breakdowns. That's not grounds for dismissal. But a few tweets get rid of him. No, I mean, we don't know. The bottom line in those situations is the assumption I usually make when someone gets dismissed from their job we almost anybody who lose their job or position is says, yeah, they fire me because of this and or that. When in fact, well, listen, you'd been being an asshole for a while. It's cumulative. You were on you were on your last strike and now you're going to go and tweet this shit. 
certainly companies aren't letting go. They're, you're never going to let someone go if they're making a lot of money and the liability is worth it. But once they become too much of a liability, then it's, it's not worth it. But I mean, what's worse yeah. for J.P. Morgan Chase, a, a bad tweet or abusing your workers? I, I would think it's bad for business to have somebody who's bullying your, your workers. What are I you? Mean, it dep- no, not necessarily. I mean, it, that would be awesome. But it's a number one, it's a bank. But even if it were a bakery, you know, the head baker, the owner of the bakery, let's make the, let's make him the owner of a pizza shop. And he's an asshole to everybody there. He's just a jerk. He's really demanding. And but you know what? People generally like to work there. They make a pretty good wage. I mean, like life is more complicated than that. Most places, a lot of places, bosses and managers are are assholes. You like to believe that if you got that power or influence, or you wouldn't be that person. But it's a bank, Feldman. It's okay. Not like it's the uh, the the shelter. The, the the lost dog shelter, although I bet you the guy who runs that's a prick. So you're saying that businessmen and women have to be pricks in order to make their business work. It's no, part, it's no, part of the territory. No, absolutely not. I know a lot of awesome people in business who are not pricks. And I've worked with and around these people for my whole career. And they're awesome managers that you do not have to be. But sometimes people are and. It works out for for everybody, you know, I mean, I don't think that's always the case, but there's a lot of, you know, I come from corporate media, but I feel like I know people in a lot of different industries that could say similar things. But some people are great. Some people are not always has to do with hierarchy. How much money is at stake? And, you know, loyalty, friendship, all that kind of stuff. Come on. There's no such thing in big companies. Now, you how are you? Because you talked about. A, a chilling experience that you went through because of Twitter. Has the dust settled? Yeah, I actually was was I'm glad you asked about that, because I, I do like to try to bring something interesting to your show. And, and so this is pretty fascinating. But I got called a pedophile like 40,000 times or several times a minute on Twitter. They got me on all my other platforms just to remind folks uh, they texted me they went after my wife they posted pictures of my family my 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 house and i blocked and had somebody else block you know thousands of accounts and it died down as they said it would and it's pretty much over but it was a harrowing experience and it was as a result of me uh, defending a young girl dancing in times square because people were uh, outraged on the right these terrified of their own shadow christian people were, were saying she was twerking and it was sexual and i was like she's five she can't that's not so they all went after me saying i was a pedophile here's the interesting thing it died down there was one or two a day and this guy tweets me nobody tweeted me about it you know in a couple of days this guy tweets me and says your days are numbered pedophile and includes a picture of like a, a bat bludgeoning someone's head like a drawing of this that was common in these threats i was getting so i dm'd this person i'd been blocking everybody this guy i don't know why i just said you know what? i'm gonna just see what happens here we went back and forth he called me a pedophile 50 times i said why don't you meet me on a on a zoom link and i want to talk to you he met me on the zoom link we yelled a little bit at each other hung up then we dm'd more then i i won his trust we had a great conversation and as soon as i'm done talking to you here i'm taping a conversation with this kid okay you're doing everything wrong but this is fascinating you're doing everything you are being told not to do this is, this is like something Ira Glass would do on This American Life. 
Well, that's a high praise. I like his work. This is meeting somebody who threatened you on. He literally threatened your life to take a baseball bat to you. And, and you're what did your wife say to do? She's pretty proud of me. So I basically. What did you learn guy. about the guy? What did you learn about him? I, I asked, I go, could I ask you a series of questions? This is all over Twitter on direct mentions on Twitter. Could I ask you a series of questions without you threatening me or calling me names? And, and can we, can we bring down the hostility level? I'm genuine. At this point, I'd want his trust a little bit. And he said, yeah. So I asked him a whole bunch of questions about his thoughts on politics. I didn't argue. I didn't push back. I just want to see who I was dealing with. He said he was a college student. And we got to this point where I finally said to him, could you tell me the answer to a personal question? He said, sure. I said, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life? And he said, well, right now, as we speak, my mother is terminally ill with cancer. Well, he just said she's terminally ill. I think I assume cancer. And then everything changed. Everything changed. And he said to me, I want you to forgive me for threatening you. I don't blame you if you don't. You're not obligated to. But if you did forgive me, it would mean a lot to me. And we pick up from there on my podcast, hopefully tomorrow. I'm going to. Wow. Him did you play? Did you play this on your podcast? No, it's where I'm about. I haven't taped it. I'm, I'm I'm literally as soon as I get done talking to you, we are set to be on the phone together. Me and a guy who threatened me on Twitter. But you've already recorded some of it. Nope. We just DM'd. We just texted back and forth. I'd rather be listening to your show than than mine. That sounds so much more interesting than anything I could ever do. I would never contact somebody like that. Never. I love I love people. I love trying to figure people out. I I it was a unique experience to be threatened that way. I'd never had that. And it made me curious as to what brings a person there. Why would they do that? Why would someone call somebody the worst thing you can call them? And and, and so I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And I, 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 I've thought a lot about it. And I think a lot about what makes people tick. And then, you know, I suppose I, I, I suppose I don't want there to be hostility in my life. OK. Not sure it's a good idea, but it make great listening. What's the worst that can happen or why is it a bad idea to that you become that? best friends? And he's calling you all the time. No, no, no. And, and well, maybe I, if, if I can serve as a mentor to, to a young, he's 20. So I would be open to that. I, I mentor a lot of young men. I, I am getting involved with and trying to take my direction in a career of working with men and trying to make men <laughs> understand, help men understand themselves and each other and boys become better men. Uh-huh. So that's what, what my hope is. I don't appreciate your cynicism or your judgment. I'm not judging you. I'm thinking of a joke that I would have made six months ago that I'm not going to make. It's painful. Pete Dominic is the host of Stand Up <laughs> with Pete Dominic, and I'm going to listen to your show. When when does this conversation that air? should drop for the uh, uh, episode 390? That should be episode 390. If it doesn't work out, if it doesn't tape, you know, like I said, we're talking before I did it. But if all goes uh, as well. Uh, it should be episode 390 of Stand Up with Pete Dominic, me and a guy who threatened to bludgeon me to death on Twitter. <laughs> Amazing. Becoming friends. Thank you, Pete. I'll talk to you next week, I hope. Thank you, David Feldman. Great. When we come back, we will talk to Zach Ford, press secretary for the Alliance for Justice. He's also a queer activist, and we'll talk 
So much to talk about. We'll be right back. Guys, we need a medic. Is there a medic here? I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week, 52 weeks a year. 32,000 years I know it's a long time Honey To 34,020 But when I get there babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by as long as I stay healthy and I never die All I really need is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots and join that elite herd Of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way, I'm on my way, oh, yes I am, I'm on my way to be a billionaire, now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. To get there, yes I do, by and by As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die That is Professor Mike Steinel, who's on vacation. He will not be with us tonight to uh, unleash a new song, but we will play Billionaires in Space a little later on. You're listening. That's his latest song, Billionaires in Space. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, please. And let's now go to Washington, D.C., where our old friend Zach Ford is standing by. Besides being press secretary for the Alliance for Justice, he has a Substack newsletter, Fording the River Sticks. And we love talking to Zach Ford. Hello, Zach. Hi, David. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. There are a couple of questions I wanted to ask you about the Supreme Court. They're wrapping up or have they wrapped up their session? They're done. They're all, they're all wrapped. Yep. So I, I wanted to get the Alliance for Justice's take on their their year, how bad it was. 
I also wanted to ask you about self-care because you're somebody who is a, a proponent of self-care. How are you holding up? And have you heard of this term languishing? There's there's this psychological term that caught my eye over the weekend. A lot of us are not happy, not depressed. I'm being told we're languishing. It's kind of like in a plasma state, kind of neither here nor there. Yeah, I, I, I haven't heard it used in that context. Obviously, I'm familiar with the word generally. I, I, I relate to that, right? Because, you know, we are still kind of watching our democracy fail and it doesn't feel as urgent in some ways with Trump not in office, but like we haven't really reversed course either. And so it's, are we going to save it or are we aren't? And it's just this sort of constant existential dread. And yeah, I might as well call it, languishing because it also feels so intangible in terms of what we can actually do to try to, to fix it as individuals. So, how bad is yeah. it? How, how bad is it? Are we looking at the news through a depressed prism or is it really as bad as we we believe it is? I think it's actually as bad as we believe it is, right? And, and you know, you asked about the Supreme Court. I'm sure we'll talk more about it. But, like, the last thing they did was further dismantle the Voting Rights Act. So all of these, you know, new regulations that states are passing to suppress the vote, uh, they're going to be greenlit, right? They're, 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 if anything, incentivized to pass more of them because the Supreme Court will say, you know, as long as you didn't intend discrimination, it doesn't matter what the effect of it was. I, I'm convinced at this point, David, and let me know what you think of this metaphor. I might turn it into an essay for my newsletter. I think at this point, Republicans would legalize hit and runs because... Well, they have you know, with striking. Sure. But, you know, like a hit and run is illegal, not because of the hit necessarily, right? You could be driving perfectly safe, eyes on the road, totally sober, not distracted. Accidents happen, you hit somebody. The crime is running away because once, you're, once you've hit somebody, you have accountability to, to help them be okay, right? Whether or not you had any intention to hit them. And what we get from conservatives these days is it doesn't matter uh, what the consequences are so long as the intent was good, right? This is what we see in the Supreme Court ruling in Brnovich, which is about these Arizona laws uh, restricting voting that we know is going to have consequences for uh, the indigenous and Latinx communities in Arizona. But the Supreme Court just said, eh, there's no evidence they intended it to discriminate. So it just gets to discriminate. And we also see it with all of these campaigns against quote unquote, critical race theory. Not that any of them actually know what that is, but again, the, the underlying message is we don't want to be held accountable for racism, for anything that we might do that contributes to racism, whether we intended it or not. So I, there's how can you do accountability when the entire cohesive message on the other side is we're not accountable? Uh, and I think that's why we, we have this sort of languishing feeling, right? It's well, let me let me talk about your hypothesis that Republicans would legalize hit and run if they could. 
There's a Republican attorney general from North or South Dakota. I think it's South Dakota who ran over something. That actually happened. (laughs) Yeah. And he was drinking, allegedly, went home. And then he realized, maybe I should call the cops. I think I hit a deer. This is the attorney general of South Dakota calling the cops. I think I might have hit a deer. He knew he hit a human being. He's now being charged with three counts of something. His latest offense is the guy he hit was suicidal. I wasn't drunk. The guy I hit was suicidal. It's not my fault. So, and it is right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I do think the Republicans would legalize hit and run or are going to legalize hit and run. And there is a ruling that I think what what state legalized the right to run over strikers? Oh, right. I was it just one? I don't even. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was reading over the weekend. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on which. Yeah, there, there, there's some. I think it was the either one. I think it was a Supreme, not a Supreme Court ruling. Some state, I know Professor Ann Lee will know, she's in the chat room. Some state made it legal for somebody to drive into strikers and drive off. In Florida in the chat. Yeah. Is it Florida? That doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> That's like Googling something. You can't say Florida and you can't Google it. You got to work off your memory. <laughs> That's not how I was raised. I'm a child of the information age, David. I look things up. My, I was raised where my mother would say, look it up. And I had to go to a dictionary. Did you ever look oh, something up in a dictionary? Oh, yeah. I had to do that, too. I, I, I grew up with, uh, you know, book encyclopedias and dictionaries uh, and then got to transition to more online stuff. Later. Can you so, indulge me one thing? S.J. Yeah. Perlman, I was told, is the greatest comedy writer who ever lived and every sentence has a, a word that you have to look up. And I think it's one of the greatest mind Fs in the history of comedy writing. We're, we're all these older comedy writers. Because you, if you haven't read S.J. Perlman, you haven't read and you don't know what great comedy writing is. The guy is indecipherable because you have to look up every there's a word in every sentence. Why would you write that way? I don't know. I, that's why I don't write that way. <laughs> yeah. Why? Like, it's, it's, pe- I also don't pretend to be a comedian. So, yeah. uh, you know. Sorry, it's hot in here and I can't turn the air conditioning on because it's too noisy. I know. I turned mine off too. I hope this goes okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> languishing, it's, I find myself when people say, my, my daughter will call me and say, How are you doing? And I say, I don't know. I don't know. I I'm not depressed. I'm not happy. I'm just kind of hanging in there. And I keep I'm being told that, you know, things are getting better. Trump is gone and we're beating the covid virus, but we're not that we should go out, but we should stay indoors. What is your take on covid? Are we out of the woods? I don't even know whether or not I can. I take mean, off my mask. There are definitely a lot of places where it's still going to do a lot of damage because people don't want to get vaccinated. And we, we see that 
like what, 99% of the hospitalizations or, or deaths that we're still seeing are people who weren't vaccinated. And I mean, I intellectually, you know, there's that sort of gut reaction of like, well, that's what they get, but we don't want that. We don't want people to get sick and die for any reason. So there's no cheering for that outcome. Um, but, but what can you do, right? You have John Dickerson on CBS News saying, you know, people feel like they're being called a dummy and that only increases their resistance. I mean, there's some technical truth to the way cognitive dissonance works, but like if we're continuing to humor the idea that anti-vaxxers are victims and the people calling for them to get vaccinated are some sort of evil perpetrator or, or malevolent force, then they're all, you're going to feel entitled to keep feeling that way. And I, I don't know what to do about it. I know for my own life, I'm going out, I'm trying to, you know, make the assumption that if people are out, they either are vaccinated or feel safe being vaccinated. You know, I'm, I, I'm a bachelor. I don't work in schools or anything. And I, I don't have a lot of friends with, with kids that I'm interacting with a lot. So um, if I were, I would, I would be more careful around them. I still wear masks in grocery stores and Target and places like that, where there are going to be kids and, and people who can't get vaccinated. I, I definitely think that like we, we have to, even those of us who have sort of been able to move past uh, COVID in our own lives, thanks to being vaccinated, I think, you know, there are some permanent changes and lessons from the pandemic in terms of what do we do to protect other people around us? Because there are people who can't get vaccinated for, you know, reasons of, of allergy and other, you know, immune issues. Um, and we have to make sure that there's still a society that's safe for them. And the people who aren't getting vaccinated are making it harder for them. And those, the rest of us still have to compensate and make sure, you know, even if it's an infinitesimal chance that we get COVID or we get a variant of it that we can transfer to others, even after vaccinated, we got to, we got to protect those kids. We got to protect those other people who can't get vaccinated for health reasons. Uh, and we got, we got to do the work. We got to keep doing the work. You know, it used to be easier to just be a person in, in public and in groups. And now there's a little bit more that I think for the rest of our lives uh, will, will always be a factor. Okay. Uh, Bronovich versus Democratic National Committee was a six to three decision along partisan lines. The Supreme Court upheld Arizona's laws, placing restrictions on how ballots are cast and collected. Let me play devil's advocate because I've been reading about. The devil doesn't need an advocate. I know you're right. (laughs) Let me tell you what I'm really thinking then. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I was reading about these voter suppression bills that Greg Abbott is trying to get passed in Texas. And I'm, you say they're they're trying to destroy our democracy. And I'm trying to find something good in the bill, some some reasonable excuse for why you would get rid of 24 hour voting or why you would get rid of ballot drop off boxes or why you would have people standing sentry with belligerent looks on their face watching you vote. Is there any way to justify these voter suppression laws other than they want to destroy democracy? Don't even bother finishing the question, David. There's just no like. You know, all of the stuff we know about voter fraud, voter impersonation, it, it, it doesn't happen or it happens at such a 
micro level that it has no discernible effect whatsoever on elections, right? Any claim of election security or things like that is trying to fix something that's not broken while ignoring all of the things that it breaks in the process. Uh, I'm actually... I'm concerned about you, David. If in 2021 you are looking to give Republican lawmakers the benefit of the doubt on <laughs> no, I know. I I, uh, I don't. I, I really don't. I've started watching Fox News again, and I I'm paid sorry. attention to CPAC because I I used to think they weren't. You know why dignify them, and now. I've gone back to paying a little attention to them, and I just don't understand what what they're not thinking. I, I don't understand how they get away with this level of venality and stupidity. Also, I've read that voter suppression laws also hurt Republicans, right? They certainly can. I mean, people of color and and. and of lower socioeconomic income certainly aren't a monolith, right? I mean, we we recognize that they tend to support Democrats more, but, you know, Republicans can lose voters in these situations too, but they don't care, right? They're willing to take that risk because their perception is that more of the people impacted would vote for their opponents than would vote for them. But but we've Um, seen in Utah, you know, states where they all have mail-in ballots, Mike Lee and Mitt Romney do perfectly well that 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 Republicans like mail in ballots. Why would you try to get rid of them if you're a well, they like they like mail in ballots when the state is much, much more red. Right. right. Like, you have to keep in mind that, you know, we we always sort of paint with the broad brush. But in cities like or in Texas, you have cities like Austin and Houston and Dallas that have huge, very liberal, uh, you know, conglomerations. Um, maybe less so out in, in, in rural areas. I mean, right, I'm from Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are big blue strongholds. And the reason Pennsylvania goes blue is because of the people in, in those liberal areas outweighing the conservatives who are kind of scattered everywhere else in the, in the mountains and forests. So again, it's, it's a calculated risk, but you're, you can't think about the voter suppression in a bubble, right? It's voter suppression and it's gerrymandering Right. It's all of these different ways to try to restrict voting and give them an advantage on top of the advantage that's already built into the Constitution that gives land more power than people in the Senate. Right. Uh, Forty million. The the Democrats in the Senate split 50 50. The Democrats in the Senate represent 40 million more Americans than the Republicans because Republicans get senators from Wyoming and and North Dakota and South Dakota where nobody lives and nobody from Washington D.C. and nobody from Washington D.C. Well, Greg Abbott is trying to pass these voter suppression laws and the Democrats in Texas are trying to deny Texas Republicans a quorum once again. And now they're coming to Washington D.C. and saying, help us pass the For the People Act, uh, you know, pass federal legislation to protect us from these Republicans who are controlling the state houses. The, the Supreme Court and even the Senate Democrats like Manchin are not going to come through for us, are they? 
I, I don't know the answer, right? I, I try to hold out hope that like there will be some outcome where we can preserve some semblance of voting rights because if we don't, right, it only gets worse from here. And I, I for me, I really appreciate the irony that, you know, we all grew up watching Schoolhouse Rock's videos that like the heart of democracy is how a bill becomes a law. The only way for these 50 some odd democratic lawmakers in Texas to protect the democracy was literally not participate in the legislative process uh, and, and come advocate for some sort of protection to keep the Republicans from just doing whatever the heck they want. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a like, right. That, that, that irony needs to be a wake up call if people aren't as concerned as they should be about the fate of our democracy right here are state legislatures who only meet once every two years, trying to keep the legislature from functioning whatsoever because it's the only way to keep them from, you know, passing more voter suppression things. And, you know, the problem is with the Supreme Court ruling in Brnovich, we don't really have a functioning section of the Voting Rights Act left, right? In Shelby County v. Holder, a decade ago, John Roberts gutted Section 5, which was preclearance, which was to say, hey, we know you states tend to come up with ideas that end up hurting uh, people of color. Um, so maybe you should let us know what those are before you pass them and we'll let them know if you're okay. They didn't have to do that anymore. And of course, immediately started passing all of those kinds of laws. And now section two isn't going to have any teeth left thanks to Alito because now it doesn't matter if the effect is inequality as long as the intent wasn't. You know, if there was some flimsy premise like the threat of voter fraud that lawmakers can hang their hat on, they can get away with it. And and the problem for me is, well, oh, then what, right? Like if, if you want to remove intent from the situation, whether it's in this voting rights context, whether it's in anti-racism trainings or whatever, you want to remove intent, fine. What do you do about the inequality that's left over? Who is accountable for it? And there's no answer. There's no fix, right? That's conservatives don't want to sort of acknowledge like, hey, if we don't, if we're not on the, on the hook for it, then we just get away with it. So the, the, uh, so the ruling is, fixed. I'm just curious. So you're saying that the ruling was that you can pass a law that ends up suppressing the African-American Hispanic vote. But if you don't intend to inflict this damage, it's OK. And the damage stays. Basically, right? I mean, it, it, it wouldn't just be Latino. You know, it's no different than with Georgia's law, where we had this whole fight. Like, was was this about restricting people of color? Well, no, we didn't say that it was. How? Why would you accuse us of that? Right? It was just to protect the you know security of our elections. But like, clearly, it was only a priority after they lost. Uh, the two senator races there and and decided they needed to restrict voting further. So, yeah, no, that's that's the general effect of the ruling is uh, they didn't completely get rid of Section 2, but Alito laid out these guideposts that basically say, you know, as long as, you know, it, it wasn't an intentional uh, attempt to restrict voting by a certain population, you know, you have to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt. So in 100 years, uh, we've gone from separate but equal to eh, if you're not intending to be racist, it's OK. Basically. And is it racism? Is Alito a racist? Is Roberts a racist? They, they've erased the Voting Rights Act of 65, 64, 
65. I'm likewise careful about using the term racist to describe a person because calling a person a racist doesn't help us get anywhere because conservatives have really taken the term to mean that you have to express intention to be racist. Even Well, they're not anti-racist. They're certainly not anti-racist, but I, I definitely think that they are perpetuating racial inequality, right? They are making it easier to discriminate against people of color at the polls and, and certainly in other ways, too. Right. They went after unions this term. You know, um, it wasn't just voting rights that sort of propped up that narrative. That's the other one where they say you cannot go. A union organizer cannot step foot on a farmer's land to try to get farm workers to join a union because it's private property. But it's not the private property doesn't mean that you can keep people off your property. You have to allow inspectors. You have to allow the police. You have to allow strangers on your property if it's a business, even if you don't want those people on your property. Exactly. And, you know, what's what's telling is that in the opinion, they try to sort of carve out some of those things. But, you know, really what they were doing was trying to say, hey, we aren't anti-worker. We're, we're making this about property rights instead. But there, you just rattled off some great examples. I'm sure there are ones we just can't come up with off the top of our head where we want that sort of government intrusion on a property or other kinds of intrusion on a property um, for any number of reasons. Well, I guess they're saying these aren't, it's not government, it's a union organizer. Well, the problem was that it it was a law that allowed the government or allowed the union organizers. So that was the law they overturned saying that it's, it's the government forcing the allowance of other people on their property. So it, it, it really is parallel to inspectors and things like that, because it would be the same thing. You would have uh, the government saying these kinds of people need to be able to come onto your property. Now, you are it's a queer activist, right? I'm, I'm allowed to say queer activist, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Adjective good. Noun bad. OK, we're talking about activist. <laughs> uh, so my sister loves you. I love you. My daughter loves you. My sister said something about you years ago that you understand how cruel people can be, that that the queer community sees just how horrible we're capable of being. And when I say earlier, maybe Abbott, you know, is it, you know, it's the summer. I want to relax. I want to go to the woods. Maybe they're not as bad as you know how bad they are. They're bad. I mean, I I don't want to. These are people who would allow your community to be dragged and crucified and beaten up. And they don't care about the LGBTQ community. They don't care about blacks, Muslims, people at the border, right? They, and they don't care about women. They right. don't I mean, care what happens to them. I think the relevant point that your sister makes is that when you're part of any group that experiences stigma and discrimination, uh, ostracization, 
segregation, whatever, you you have an understanding of what that feels like that I think can make you more open to understanding what other groups experience. I, I would actually caveat though to say that doesn't mean you get it all the time, right? It doesn't mean that you're suddenly the perfect ally, right? There are plenty of gay who are transphobic. There are plenty of gay people who are racist. We have tons of racial issues within the gay community, right? There are tons of gay people who are misogynistic and, and hate on women or contribute to terrible messages about women uh, in the same way too. So I, I don't think that like having one marginalized identity makes you uh, a super ally and, and super social justice warrior. Uh, that, that takes a lot of work. But certainly when you are faced with it directly, you can kind of become a canary in the coal mine for others, right? To be like, hey, I know what this language means. I know, I've seen this type of intent behind an, a different kind of law, right? We have a, maybe a bit more of a radar for it, a spidey sense for it uh, when discrimination is happening. Um, but I, I, I think at this point in 2021, this is, you know, a, a certain ribbon you, certain kind of ribbon you for it earlier. Like we've seen just how terrible Republican lawmakers are going to are, are capable of being because they say the quiet part out loud, right? You know, we, we sort of ramped up to it with the Tea Party and, and, and Make America Great Again and all of these slogans that talk about how things were seemingly somehow better at this other point in time when, you know, only white people and men and straight people and cis people had the power. Um, they're, they're blatantly admitting what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to erase history. They're trying to uh, define America in this way that excludes a whole lot of people's experiences in history. And so at a certain point, we have to stop giving the benefit of the doubt. We have to stop looking for compromises on, on terrible things. I mean, one of the frustrations that we've had at AFJ with the the reporting on this Supreme Court term is how many attempts there have been to frame it as moderate or gentle or only kind of took a sharp right turn at the end. And it's like, no, they attacked voting rights. They attacked unions. They made an excuse for LGBTQ discrimination. They enabled the death penalty. They enabled life sentences for juvenile uh people who are convicted of crimes, right? They, they did so many terrible, terrible things. How do you look at it and say, oh, it, it wasn't so bad? You have to, you can recognize it could have been worse. They could have overturned the entire Affordable Care Act. There were two justices who said they wanted to, but you have to recognize that like, from an objective point of view, they did a lot of harm. And how you parse the way that those were divided up in the opinions or, or, they, or what, terrible things they didn't do, that doesn't make them moderate. You have to be able to sort of recognize this is a super majority of super conservatives and they're doing lots of harm and, and opening the door to lots of harm. Uh, and you have to have that sort of um, perspective. We're talking with Zach Ford. Subscribe to his newsletter, Fording the River Sticks. And follow him on Twitter. He's press secretary for the Alliance for Justice. It's always an honor to have you on the show. I'm going to read you something. We have to wrap it up. But I was reading a review in the New York Times. It was written by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. I believe he or she is an Orthodox Jew. And he or she or they was reviewing a new book 
called The Netanyahu's. And the book deals with American Jews and it's it's a piece of fiction and it deals with anti-Semitism, which is on the rise in America and uh, and how troubling it is for American Jews. It always has been. But, uh, you know, we're often told, oh, you know, Jews aren't. Every, no, there's no such thing as anti-Semitism in America. And I think of uh, of the gay community. And there was just this line that she wrote in the review. And of course, I can't find it. Uh, all right. It was such a great. All right. Give me a second. Gosh, darn. Ah. Uh, here we go. Hang on. Dead air, dead air. I know. Uh, well, it's such a great. I had it, too. Here it is. Uh, so sorry for the. This is worth waiting because I think any marginalized group. And yes, I know it's hard for people to believe that Jews are a marginalized group. I know that's hard for people to believe. This is what Taffy wrote in The New York Times. And I think this applies to the queer community, blacks, Hispanics, Muslims. She writes or he writes a thing they didn't prepare me for in my own Hebrew school, or maybe they did and I just didn't hear it was that the unique sadness and terror of anti-Semitism for the Jews lies not just in its violence, but in the people around you pretending that the violence doesn't even exist. That is, I mean, that gives me the chills. And I, and I think uh, that is, the unique sadness and terror of anti-Semitism for the Jews lies not just in its violence, but in the people around you pretending that the violence doesn't even exist. That is haunting. And I think that relates to women, gays, anybody who has been afraid. And, and that yeah, I, I, I definitely relate to thinking back when I first started as an LGBTQ blogger and the experience that I had kind of reading about every terrible thing that happened, right? Every narrative that was out there about someone experiencing a hate crime, someone getting kicked out of their home, all of those experiences, I sort of was absorbing them like a sponge. Uh, and, and it was really difficult because I was, I was looking at a world that had so much hurt in it and the people around me weren't necessarily following all of those stories. They didn't necessarily have that perspective. And so I looked to them like I was crazy and overstating the case. Um, but for me, it was like every day a new thing. And, and so it felt like this bombardment. And I think it's a it's a real issue. And I, I also just want to take a second to say I I don't have any problem believing that anti-Semitism is very much on the rise. I was actually just talking about this with your friend the other day. I know my anti-Semitism is on the rise. Well, and I, but I, and maybe this is what you're alluding to, but I, I actually think there's anti-Semitism on both the left and the right, because mm -hmm. I think that the people who attack people for being so pro-Israel certainly brings some anti-Semitism to it. But people who are attacking people for being super anti-Israel are also reinforcing some terms 
and forms of, of anti-Semitism. And so there's, it's, it's sort of just pervasive uh, in all kinds of way and nobody's sort of identifying it specifically as, um, you know. Well, the beautiful thing about anti-Semitism is you get a sense that you're punching up, that, that you're speaking for the common man by hating Jews. That's always been the nobility of anti-Semitism, the, the assumption that all Jews are rich, all Jews are hiding money, all Jews have power. So when you hate Jews and put these powers onto them, uh, you're, you're protecting the common man. So there, is there something almost joyous to anti-Semitism? So Rolsey is the point. Yes. Hey, Zach Ford, I just want to read that line again, because it, it, it applies to everybody who's who's been afraid. The thing they didn't prepare me for in my own Hebrew school was that the unique sadness and terror of anti-Semitism for the Jews lies not just in its violence, but in the people around you pretending that the violence doesn't even exist. That was written in the New York Times, the evil New York Times, by... Uh, Taffy Brodesser Ackner. It's a review of a new book called The Netanyahu's. And uh, anyway, Zach Ford, thank you so much. Thanks for having me back, David. Thank you. Always, a, always an honor to have you back. When we when we return, we will talk with FBI informant, the great Jim Earl, and who doesn't love Martha Previtt? We all love Martha Previtt. When we come back, we will catch up with comedy geniuses, Martha Previtt and Jim Earl. And for this, you steal and live a life of degradation and crime. But in your thirst for money, you become careless and Mike is caught. Now you're on your own, and you must support your habit in the best way you can. You live in a jungle of fear. You're forced to deal with Eric alone. Mike is no longer there to help. Eric only laughs at your need and tells you to get money. Money, money, and more money. You're not prepared to take a job. Besides, no job would pay the kind of money you now need. You've got yourself a $50 a day habit. You can't support that slinging hash. So you turn to the only thing you can that will bring your kind of money. You become a call girl. You support that $50 a day habit, but not for long, because your looks begin to disintegrate. Your clients will no longer pay your price. You go from call girl to streetwalker. Then on your 20th birthday, you were picked up for soliciting. Jeanette Michaels, age 20, white, Caucasian, drug addict. A 20th century slave, self-styled. She'll suffer through withdrawal, be sentenced for prostitution, released, and return to the habit again. Lost to society, she'll continue her hopeless, degrading existence until she escapes in death. Today, tomorrow, maybe not for years. God's about to bring the whole house down, ladies and gentlemen. These bunch of sex trafficking mongrels are about to be exposed. These bunch of pedophiles in Hollywood are going to be exposed for who they are. 
I don't care what you think about fraudulent Sleepy Joe. He's a sex trafficking, demon-possessed mongrel. He's of the left. He ain't no better than the Pope and Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks and the rest of that wicked crowd. God is going to bring the whole house down. I said he's going to bring the whole house down. He's going to burn the whole thing to the ground. He's going to expose all these bunch of pedophiles. I'm telling you, he's going to expose Kamala Harris for the Jezebel demon that she is. I don't know why pastors don't talk. Listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Well, let's go to Kenny Bunk, Maine, where Emmy and Peabody award-winning comedy writer Jim Earl is standing by and the brilliant Martha Previtt is also standing by. Hello, Jim. Jim is also the author of Morning Remembrance. I see that on your bookshelf. And I see, do I see AOC? Hey, everybody. <laughs> we have AOC. Hello. Hang on. We love you. Wow. I, I, thought, I thought it was Martha Previtt, and I now realize it's Congresswoman AOC. Welcome. up, people? How's it going? <laughs> and how are, things, how are things in Washington, D.C., AOC? Things are great, David. We're yeah. forcing a vote on infrastructure, but not on Medicare for all. Yay! <laughs> well, and I well, want to give you a perfect example, especially about what we are talking about today. Crumbling bridges are more important than your crumbling knee joints, okay? <laughs> Well, I, you know, we got to get something passed and it would be nice to have this infrastructure bill passed. I guess there are two and there looks like there's going to be one that's going to get bipartisan support and the other one will pass through reconciliation. So that's good, right? We are coming together as a movement. <laughs> and, and what is that movement? So here's the deal. You need to organize, activate, and in additionally, mobilize everybody. AOC for OAM. Organize, activate, and mobilize. <laughs> Congresswoman AOC, there are some people. I'm not one of them. I think you're fantastic. I think you're the future of the Democratic Party. You are an inspiration to us all. There are some people who think you're abandoning the people who got you there, that you're that especially on Medicare for all, that you should be fighting and, and holding other bills hostage until Nancy Pelosi goes to the floor and votes on Medicare for all. Don't you think you owe that to your supporters? Right? <laughs> right? To a, to a certain extent. But here's the thing. So... Buy my merch, people. Check it out. Get the Nancy Pelosi bobblehead doll. Mama Bear bobblehead. 
Okay, but we have she a. Wears, she wears a kente cloth, David. Activism, everybody. Activism, mobilize for merch, everybody. Well, we Surprise. we 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 mobilized in Queens and parts of the Bronx, and we got you elected. And the idea is that you would never stop fighting for us, even if it meant you'd be a one-term Congressperson. That you would fight to destroy Anthem and Humana, to put the healthcare companies out well, of business. And, well, and you, you, you seem to be taking your time. This is now your second term. And have you lost the fight? Has the squad lost the fire in their belly? So here's the thing. I'm so happy that you asked that, David. <laughs> and, and I'm happy to answer your questions Thank and you. stuff like that. Okay. Um, surprise! Green New Deal posters and T-shirts. <laughs> well, we'll get to the Green New Deal in a second. Does it upset you that fifty thousand Americans die each year just from lack of health insurance? Doesn't that concern you? So honestly, here's the thing: we should be examining tools and whether it is is other modes of mechanism that we look at this issue and in additionally taking on that it's important to say that mm-hmm and 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 you do have a you you know you can say a lot of things you're a congressperson you you have a pulpit I don't understand why you're not taking to the floor of the house every day the way Newt Gingrich did before he was speaker he would Go in there and deliver these Jeremiah's against the Democrats and moderate Republicans. And he created a movement contract for America, contract for America started because Newt Gingrich, one man, refused to go along with the Republican herd. That's what I kind of expected you to do. Ding, ding, ding. And so I said, yeah. And. (laughs) The fact that we can organize, we need to organize and not just talk about it, but be about it. Well, be about the B. Well, we don't have to organize. You won. And, and, and you're in a, you have a safe seat. So, there, you, you know, it's a traditionally blue seat. You, I think it was Crowley, the Washington, Wall Street bag man you beat. We love you. We love you in New York City. And, and, you know, everybody you endorsed, or at least half the people you endorsed in the elections two weeks ago won. You have a lot of clout in New York City. You're a power broker. There are some who feel you're not using the power. You know, Dave, Dave, what I want to know from her is, is what about uh, Joe Biden's public option? What happened to that? And what about the minimum wage, including it in uh, one of the care bills and, and immigration reform? The kids are still in cages and a promise to eliminate student loan debt. And he's filled his cabinet with Raytheon board members. What about all that? Totally exceeding expectations. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> totally exceeding expectations. That's 100% you, right? And I'm so thankful. You all inspire me so much. So much. 
Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Congresswoman AOC, I love you. I really do. And, And you're brave. And I know how difficult it is for you. And I'm grateful for you in Washington, D.C. I really am. Jim, you it's get been the seven months. They haven't done a damn thing, David. What are you grateful for? This is ridiculous. Okay. It's, it's ridiculous. Now, if I may quote you from July of 2019. <laughs> yeah. I get why some Democrats have a blind hatred for Bernie Sanders. It must be difficult to see someone who is morally, intellectually and philosophically superior to you. He threatens your ego. You'd rather vote for mediocrity so you can feel superior. I have reached out to Democrats who oppose Bernie. They call him racist, sexist, unelectable. I ask for proof and they provide none. Bernie has been right on everything except the Brady bill. We're either going to fix this shithole we call America or we going or we are going to stay in last place when it comes to the quality of life. If you're not voting for Bernie, trust me, you're a narcissistic ignoramus and you don't read and you don't care. You trust your gut and your gut is a desert of rotten biome depriving your brain of everything necessary to make a rational decision. Read this article, you fucking assholes. You had an article. Read this article that you fucking assholes. Bernie's better than every single one of you. And if you can't see that, then you need to cancel your fucking Netflix and read a book, you dumb piece of shit. Who, who wrote that? You did. <laughs> <laughs> and, boy, I, those, those words, sir, those words uh, have sure come back to haunt me, haven't they? And then cut, cut to Labor Day. Yeah. For the election. I pledge my vote to Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Without getting one serious concern. But I I think I think Joe Biden is an ignoramus who doesn't read. I think Joe Biden is a piece of shit. I think the vice president is a piece of shit. I think their families are pieces of shit. And what do you think of the uh, voter extortion of voting, being told you have to vote the lesser of two evils? in order to get progress. Well, we've had this conversation a million times. Well, what do you think of it now? I think that you're well, this is like I want to change the subject because we have 10 minutes left before I go to Howie Klein. I think we got we got 20 minutes because you we 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 came in 10 minutes uh, late. That's right, David. That's right. You listen to AOC. Ding, ding, ding. Which, by the way, means we have another 20 minutes. Yay! (laughs) Minutes for everybody. Yay! I happen to believe that there are two things going on simultaneously. The Democrats are a threat to democracy, the environment, and democracy. You know, everything that's good and decent. I also think the Republicans are really are out in the open about destroying the last vestiges of democracy. So I hate the Democrats. I hate the Republicans even more. I would prefer Bernie. He didn't get it. Uh, I, I think if you watch CPAC, and you see what we're up against. There's some really dangerous people out there. It's like people who want to legalize hit and run. 
uh, there are bills. Didn't you almost get hit by a car when you were walking a picket line? Yes, yeah, somebody, uh, a strike breaker, uh, yelled a block uh, before uh, a turning to run us over that he was going to run us over. Right. And DeSantis, but, I, from what I, I, I thought, I can't remember the state, but I think it's Florida. At least that's what they're saying mm-hmm. in the chat room. They're legalizing the right of people to run you over uh, if you're picketing. Well, this is California. California. This this was California. And we were represented by the lawyers of the most powerful uh, union in California, practically the Writers Guild west of america and they didn't prosecute this guy and the cops didn't do a damn thing but if you want if you want to talk about legalizing hit and run you go to the 1994 crime bill and it's a multitude of three strikes laws okay those are strikes those are strikes against okay but so democratic law i'll ask you because we we only have seven minutes uh, no, <laughs> we, we do. Bruno Amato is standing by and he's running to replace Kevin McCarthy, who is House Minority Leader. So let me ask you a question and then I'll ask Bruno to respond to what you have to say. I do you believe do you I believe you have Teddy Roosevelt coming up? <laughs> you promised us 30 minutes <laughs> and you do this every time. You always have Howie Klein come on after us and he's always waiting in the hall like a, he's a, an important person in the green room and you always cut us short. <laughs> so hey, I baby. yes, <laughs> Jim Earl, we yes. had Professor Ben Burgess on the show and a lot of people are challenging his statement that the January 6th insurrection wasn't as bad as the Democrats are painting it. Do you believe that? Yeah, I I agree with him wholeheartedly. I I disagree with him on uh, other things. But do you uh, think there should be a select committee? Do you think there should be a a select committee that looks into it? Do you think? Yes, I think there should be a, a bipartisan committee that looks into it. What would you and, do if you found looks, out? Looks, what would you do? Looks, then looks into uh, the FBI's role in this, too, and the the Capitol Police uh, and their, you know, were they negligent? Were they incompetent? What would you do if you found out that somebody like Congresswoman Boebert or Gosser, as some are suggesting, Kensinger, is suggesting that that there was a coordination uh, on the right wing side of the Capitol, that that some Republicans were helping out the people who stormed the Capitol. Well, you'd have to def- determine and define what helping out means. And, well, how, and, so when you and, see and, that, and then, how bad and, is and it? Then, and then have law take its course. I mean, how bad is it? I don't know. I mean, how bad was how bad was January six? If if any if if there's anything I've learned from the history of this country is that the reactions to their problems is usually often worse than the problem itself. And that, that are you saying Iraq didn't attack us on nine eleven? <laughs> is that what you're saying? I'm. I've heard theories to that. Yeah, yeah. I've heard theories about that. 
that that's a reasonable that that's a reasonable statement that they're going to take they're going to use January six as a as a reason to deprive us of our yeah. civil liberties. Isn't that being Patriot said, Act four or five and six, yes, right. But and, that and being two, said, two, do you two think billion more dollars two two billion more dollars to uh, capital police around the country? The police. Why do we need two billion more dollars for the police force? Why don't do you, you think know, it's safe for AOC? What's that? Do you think it is safe for AOC to travel? I think she, yes, I think she's safe. I think she, we have enough protections for everybody. That's not, is this, why do we need to, a police state? Basically do you believe? Do you believe that Congress calling for a police state? Do you believe that more and more death threats are being sent to members of Congress? I wouldn't be. I have nothing to contest that. No. Why would I not believe that? And so if AOC is getting death threats, what should we do about that? Well, if they're death threats, if they're threats, uh, credible death threats, asking her to trying to get her to kill herself, I'd look in the FBI. I know they did that. They did that to Martin Luther King. But I'm asking you if if AOC is getting credible death threats and being harassed, do you think she's being harassed by Marjorie Taylor Greene? Uh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. And, and what should be done about that? Well, I think she has protection. She doesn't have protection. I, I mean, what do you want? Do you want, you know, a, a armored carrier for her now? Do you want uh, a, a squadron of troops and a helicopter now? How far do you want to go with this? Well, I, I, I happen to be. We already, have, we already have a Capitol Police who didn't do their job, so we should look into that. I, I we, happen you know, to that, be. That was a screw up of tremendous uh, proportions. You have a riot of idiots uh, go out of control and not have enough people there for them. So, you know, I know I, I agree with Ben Burgess. I don't think it was it was uh, an insurrection. I, I think it was a riot. And, and, and when people say when people say when people say they're going to uh, lynch the speaker and hang Mike Pence and the things that we saw, you know, gouging the eyes of police officers and all that stuff that that's not cause for concern. Well, it's cause for concern in any protests and, and, and riot, uh, as Ben Burgess pointed out, you know, okay. you know, we, we had a year of protests and and uh, in 2018, I don't think he didn't mention this, but 2018, there was a study that d- determined that uh, um, I think more cops uh, killed themselves and were killed in the line of action. So being a cop isn't you know, uh, a profession that is good for your emotional health to begin with for so many reasons that are we don't have time to go in right now. Right. Like four cops, multiple levels, you know, you know, you're you're blamed for first of all, your your fellow, your peers are using black people for target practice all around the country. And then you got to face the anger from that. And then you got to face yourself and, and ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? Should I get into another profession? Maybe a, a, 
more dangerous one like comedy. Right. Okay. So you're not worried about the far right extremists in this country. I'm worried about extremists, period. I, I, specifically white nationalists, specifically white nationalists. I think (laughs) you're not going to put me in a position and say, no, I'm not worried about white nationalists, Dave. Okay. So don't ask me that. You are, you are concerned about white nationalists, correct? I think this country should worry about overreacting and going into the realms of hysteria when it comes to dealing with our problems. Okay, is it hysterical? It always always makes things worse. Are you worried about- I I don't think we should lie about Republicans to make them look bad because we don't have to lie about Republicans to make them look bad. As one of your guests, as one of your guests has done repeatedly about, uh, you know, people like, uh, let's see. Who the fuck was it? Are you claiming claiming that a senator, one senator was a a child prostitute or a teenage prostitute? Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio. That's no evidence of that. And that is just a blatant lie. I mean, why do you have to say something like that about Marco Rubio to make him look bad? Well, doesn't he? Isn't he bad enough? It only makes you look bad. Okay. Uh, that's what that's why the what results in a lack of credibility and believability with so many voters with both parties. Okay. And for the Democrats record, Marco started. Rubio, and we'll, we'll talk to my next guest about this. Uh, Marco yeah, Rubio yes. was arrested. No proof. Uh, okay. For drinking, just like for, right. for, for drinking in a car. All right. I believe All right. we, a lake where, where teenage high school kids hung out. And okay. uh, Howie Klein alleged that uh, he sold his uh, body to uh, as a male prostitute to older men, I believe, and to uh, a, a okay. Republican donor, I believe. All right. And there's no no proof of that. Okay. This is absolutely no. All right. We, so why? We, we, why do you have to do that? You only make yourself look worse. Okay. Right. Jim Earl is the author of Morning Remembrance. And we got eight more minutes. No, no, no. Eight we we have to wrap it up. We, we, I've been. We, we have to wrap it up. Jim Earl. This is ridiculous. This okay. is ridiculous. Eight more minutes. No. Eight more minutes. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Jim Earl, and thank you, Martha Previtt. Let us now go to. Los Angeles, where Howie Klein, the founder and the treasurer of the Blue America PAC, is standing by. He is also uh, he writes for Down with Tyranny. Sorry about that. I uh, do you want to respond to that or should we? Are you there? Hello. All right. Uh. Okay. Hang on. God damn it. Trying to do a show here. And my guests. Hello. Yeah, sorry about that, Howie. Is that clown still on? Uh, I, you know, there's a rule. I don't want to be on uh, after him anymore, ever again. I, I apologize. 
a joke, and you and I talked about that before, and you told me that he was a joke, and yet you're still putting him on lying about me right before I go on. What the hell is that about? I agree with you. I apologize. Yeah, why don't you, why don't you just talk to Bruno today, and uh, I'll take a couple of weeks off. Thanks. I apologize. Uh, are you there? Oh. I'm going to just, I've, I've asked people to behave on this show and I stand, Howie, are you there? Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, I apologize, Bruno. Oh, no, that's, I, I had I had no clue what any of that was all about. So, yeah, Bruno is. I can't control my guests sometimes. And no, that's what happens when you're live. You know, I guess it's. Uh, yeah. and, and I have a rule, which is don't attack my guests. If you're a guest on my show, don't attack my guests. Yeah, that's one rule that I have is if anybody who does my show, I have tremendous respect for. I'm not trying to do a show where we attack one another. Right, and right. I and I specifically said to Jim Earl, "Don't attack my guests." And, yeah. Well, and well, I don't know. I don't know Jim Earl, but I, when I first came on, I, I thought he was just being a you know joking around. But I I guess he was being serious when he's uh, talking about how much time he had left. So I, you know, he could have took all the time he wanted, as far as I was concerned. Uh, and but, Howie Klein yeah. is a a national treasure. Yeah. Uh, and this is uh, an example of getting dragged down by people who refuse to respect the wishes of others. It's and I so I apologize for this. Oh, uh, uh, I mean, I'm you don't got to apologize to me, David. I, you know, it, it's politics, you know, people. People are people. And um, anyway, let me just say for the record, for the yeah. record, uh, Marco Rubio was arrested in a park. I, I don't want to get you in the middle of this, but he was arrested in a park. And there are reports that it was for something that was something the Republican Party does not approve of a type of behavior. The same is true of Mitch McConnell, who got a dishonorable discharge from the army and it was mm. covered up. And there are reports that it was he was doing things that the Republican Party does not approve of. So uh, I stand behind uh, what Howie Klein has said. And I can't allow my guests to be uh, attack this way that's not the kind of show bruno amato you live in california and you are doing a primary challenge in the democratic party to take on kevin mccarthy yes i am david yeah i uh yeah i live in california i live in uh actually i live in bakersfield which is uh kevin mccarthy's hometown and um uh just a quick little bit about me i uh i moved to california about um well, I moved to California in 2001, right before. Uh, Where are you uh, from originally? Originally in New Jersey. Me too. Where in Jersey? Oh, uh, Essex County. Okay. Yeah. Like, I, uh, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up in Newark. 
And then uh, we moved to the suburbs um, in like 1970. Uh, my parents were immigrants from Italy. My father was a World War II veteran, um, earned a Purple Heart uh, over in Germany, got hit with a mortar blast, had shrapnel in his legs um, till the day he passed away, uh, which uh, was when I was 17. And uh, that's when I joined the Navy um, and uh, served in the Navy four years. I was a torpedo man. Uh, which was basically, oh, someone else in there? Uh, oh, I, mean, I thought I heard something. Uh, yeah, go ahead. You, uh, oh, no, so, if you wanted me to give you a little background about Yes, me. please, yes. So oh, you were yeah, torpedo yeah. man in the Navy, yes. Yeah, I was a torpedo man. And uh, anyway, I, um, I got out of the Navy, did a bunch of jobs, you know, mostly blue collar jobs, eventually became a union iron worker. And uh, I did that for about a decade. Um, uh, that's where I learned about all the benefits of being in a union. And then uh, uh, read a book called Live Your Dreams by Les Brown, motivational speaker. And uh, it was always a dream of mine to become an actor. So I started going into New York City after work um, and taking some acting classes. And before I knew it, I was getting small roles on the soap opera. Really? You know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I got a late start. You know, I mean, I was in my late 30s and uh, I even like did a, you know, some of those little sketch routines on like Conan. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like when uh, you, you'd see his desk and then they had this, the green screen behind it. He'd be like driving his desk. Uh huh. Those were early on. I remember those with he and yeah. Andy used to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And uh, anyway, and then I moved out to, to uh, L.A. in uh, 2001 and uh, been making a living as an actor ever since. Um, I moved out to uh, Bakersfield about three years ago and I uh, had thoughts about running. Um, I didn't. But then uh, as the uh, years of Trump and M McCarthy progressed uh, and then I made my decision on January 6th, since you guys were talking about the, uh, you know, which your friend didn't think uh, was an insurrection, but uh, yeah. I think a violent uprising against the government where 140 cops get injured and at least one dies uh, where they try to kill. I mean, let's face it, if they would have got their hands on uh, Nancy Pelosi, she wouldn't be around anymore. Or so what is OC. Yeah, I, I have to be honest with you. I, I'm kind of uh, we've we've met under the wrong <laughs> circumstances <laughs> because uh, I I I have Howie Klein upset because of the, of my previous guest, yeah. who, who I've asked to behave and he refuses to. What is the thinking of people on the left, if you don't mind my asking? Kevin McCarthy, who is the, hoping to be the speaker, was on the phone with Donald Trump during the insurrection, and he yeah. got a call and said, you have to call off your jackals. And Donald yeah. Trump said, apparently, they're more concerned about this election than you are. Exactly. Now, Kevin, there was a Republican congresswoman who was a witness to all this. Of right. course, they didn't call her during the impeachment. It was explained to me 
by Howie that one of the reasons they didn't the Democrats didn't want to embarrass Kevin McCarthy, that they're propping him up because once he goes. You're left with people like Gosar and Marjorie Taylor. There's nobody. He's the last halfway decent Republican left. So these Republicans are absolutely the worst. They do not believe in democracy. And what is it about people who discount what they see on the news? I mean, if you look at the New York Times just did an in-depth video collection of what you look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is dragging her feet on Medicare for all. Nancy Pelosi's husband is, you know, using probably inside information to trade stocks on big tech they're, they I happen to believe they're they're criminal. I, I happen to think Nancy Pelosi is a disgrace and Steny Hoyer is a disgrace and Chuck Schumer is a disgrace. I also happen to believe that the Republicans are working out of the Mein Kampf playbook and they're a bigger threat to what's left of us than the Democrats could ever be. How could people not see that? Well, you know, I don't think uh, the Democrats are propping up uh, Kevin McCarthy because he he's a decent guy. He's he's just as bad as all of them, as far as I'm concerned, Uh, if not worse. This guy, to me, will do and say anything um, to become Speaker of the House. He'll lie. Uh, He. His whole career is basically one big lie. I mean, uh, you know, he he lied for months saying that the election was stolen. So when you get all these people riled up, when you say, hey, your votes were stolen, that Trump really won the election. Of course, these people are going to come to the Capitol and go crazy. Yeah. I mean, like that's your 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 most sacred right as an American citizen, your vote, you know, the right to vote. And, And, you know, when you got a guy like McCarthy like telling people like, hey, your vote was stolen day after day on Fox News. Yeah, people are going to be pissed off and think, hey, this guy, he's the fucking, you know, minority leader. If we can't believe him, who can we believe? And, you know, he's still lying. That's the thing. So I think he's just as bad as those other people you mentioned. Gosar, MGT, whatever the hell her name is. Yeah, I think he's just as bad as all of them. He's the freaking leader. So I think he's worse. Right. So we're talking with Bruno Amato. He is running for Congress in California. What is uh, Kevin McCarthy's congressional district? Which number is it? It's the 23rd. It's the 23rd. And what what, what counties are we talking about? Yeah. So it's uh, mostly Kern County and also Tulare County and uh, a little bit of L.A. County. And uh, we're going to have some redistricting going on. And uh, from all indications, from what I've been hearing, it's going to turn a little bluer. Right. Is so California losing seats? Is California going to lose seats? Uh, yeah, I think California is losing uh, one seat. So uh, I'm sure that won't affect uh, McCarthy. Right. But um, I think I think that's going to be like in L.A. County somewhere. Uh, I don't think it's going to be here. But uh, anyway. And um, what is... What is the DCCC? 
what do they what not who what do they want to run against McCarthy or do they do is uh, is Pere- who's head of the DCCC not Sherry Busto anymore it's uh, no it's uh, uh, is it uh, Jamie um, oh uh, no, uh, no he's the Senate uh, it's so hot in here uh, the head of the who cares who the head of the DCCC is usually yeah. they don't like to challenge. Uh, the Republican leadership in their home district. So who ran against McCarthy? Last time? Yeah. So last time he ran against uh, an Air Force veteran named uh, Kim Mangan. And, um, you know, that was during a pandemic. And I don't think she was able to hit the ground as hard as she could have. And, you know, again, like this guy has a ton of money. Um, You know, not that he uses it all for his own campaign, so I'm sure he shares it with a lot of other Republicans. Right. Um, uh, you know, and yeah, it's a very red district. But I think after what's happened in the the past six months, I think everybody sees what this guy's all about. You know, he, he gets on uh, saying that he backs the blue, um, and of course, when you say back the blue, you're talking about the the cops. Yeah. Yeah. He says, he, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, but yet again, he doesn't want to investigate January 6th, which there was a hundred and some cops that were injured and, and they want to, they want an investigation. Look at this guy, uh, uh, Michael, uh, Fanone, you know, he, he suffered two heart attacks by being tased. You don't think this guy wants an investigation on on who did this to him? They say uh, Sicknick you know, didn't die from the insurrection, but he died like within hours of the insurrection. I mean, I mean, to me, he died because of January 6th. I mean, he wouldn't have had a stroke if he didn't get uh, bear maced and whatever else they did to him. I mean, he was like a 40 year old guy in great health. I'm sure he wouldn't have just had a stroke the following day. It was a coincidence that he was attacked, beat the hell out of Bear Mace and whatever the hell else they did to him. Yeah, he, then, then he got a stroke. So, yeah, to me, he, he was murdered. What are we, to me, is murder. What, what are we up against with the far right? What is, I mean, Kern County, you, you do have some. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a far right uh county i guess you could say but um you know there's a lot of people here uh that i think maybe just didn't vote because they felt it would be like you know a losing cause but uh there's a lot of people um you know there's a a big latino community um a lot of them didn't vote uh the last time around and i think if we get uh, if we could reach a lot of them and a lot of the young voters coming up and seeing what's happening to our country, I think uh, I think we could um, change a lot of minds. Um, again, this guy has done nothing for this community. He hasn't shown his face here in, in 12 years. This guy hasn't held. Well, in a way, that's doing something for the community. If it's Kevin McCarthy and he doesn't show up, that's that's quite a favor. Who's funding him? Usually you have power in the House because you have a sugar daddy giving you money. Uh, yeah. So who, who is funding Kevin McCarthy? We well, know that we know that Pelosi was a bag woman for rich people in San Francisco. We know Chuck Schumer is a bag man for Wall Street. You don't get to to be the House minority leader unless you're 
doling out money. So who's funding Kevin McCarthy? Well, I think he's being funded by uh, Big Oil, you know, which is uh, very big here in uh, agriculture, pharma, the NRA, you know, the usual suspects. Right. Right. Yeah. What is voter suppression like in California? Uh, I, you know, voter suppression in California, I, I, I think we're uh, not as bad as uh, other states are. You know, I mean, you look at um, I mean, thankfully, we're you know, California is basically run by Democrats. So, OK, know. so there isn't the kind of voter suppression you're seeing in places like Arizona uh, or Georgia or Mississippi. Oh, totally or not. Then yeah, talk no. to me about voter turnout. Early, you, you said that there are a lot of disin, uh, I don't want to say disenfranchised, but they're allowed to vote, but they don't. Mm. We were told that, you know, Bernie was going to catch fire and America would hear his message and there would be a landslide once they could hear his message. Now, granted, a lot of Americans didn't get to hear Bernie's message because Perez purposely overpopulated the debate stage. So Bernie didn't get to really outline why health insurance executives are Satan. But still, he should have done better with Democrats, and he didn't. Uh, some people say the youth vote wasn't there the way it should have been. The, the African-American vote wasn't there for Bernie. What is the character of the American people? We know Bernie, and I would assume if you've been endorsed by the Blue America PAC, yeah. you believe Bernie is the greatest presidential candidate since Eugene Debs. Is that a fair statement? Oh, well, I, I, I don't know about I don't know about all that. I mean, I, I think Bernie's a hell of a guy. You know, I think he's uh, everything he stands for, um, you know, uh, the environment, unions, uh, taking care of working class people like, you know, I, I, I think he, and he's been, had the same message his whole life. So, uh, you know, I give this that guy a lot of uh, respect. I never met Bernie. I but I think he's uh, whenever I hear anything, anytime I see him speaking, uh, there's very little I think I ever disagree with him. You so know, what happened? Says, so. Is, is it an indictment of the American voter or the American people that they they don't come out and support a miracle of democracy like Bernie? I mean, Bernie's a miracle of democracy. Yeah. And yet I know they put their fingers on the scale, Clyburn and. Hillary yeah. and the Clintons yeah. and Obama. I know that. But where are the people? Why aren't they coming out? Especially in a state where there isn't, you can't blame voter suppression. So where are the people? You know, I think if, uh, I think if Bernie would have won the primary against Hillary Clinton, he would have, I think he would have won the presidency. So, um, but, you know, this last time, like you said, uh, Clyburn got behind Joe Biden and that was uh, what he needed at the time. And, um, you know, I, I don't know all the answers to that. All I know is uh, 
I just know my story. And my story is I'm running against Kevin McCarthy because I see a guy who's a bad person who does not care one bit about this country. All he cares about is his political ambitions. And that's why I'm running against him, but not to stop his political ambitions. I could give a fuck about that. Like, I'm sorry for my bad language. I'm, uh, I'm, um, you know, but when you say he's a bad per when you say he's a bad person, you're talking about his lying for Trump, yeah. his, his policies. Yeah, he doesn't care about America. He doesn't care about this country. I mean, it, when you hear the uh, party before country, that's him. But he's even beyond that. He's speaker before country. I mean, he, he he's done nothing for this district. Zero. Uh, you know, this is just a quick little thing about you know being a veteran. He's been promising people here a VA clinic, not a VA hospital, David, a clinic, a brand new clinic for 10 years that he was going to bring one here. Still hasn't done it. This guy has done nothing. I mean, the homicide rate in Kern County, number one for three straight years in California. This is in, and the biggest city in Kern County is Bakersfield, his hometown. He gets on, he talks about Chicago, New York. Oh, they're ran by Democrats. Bakersfield is 100% run by Republicans. And like I said, Kern County, number one in homicides in California, three straight years. You never hear Kevin talking about that. You never see him come back to his hometown and talk to the people here. 12 years, not one town hall. This guy's garbage. Right, right. Uh, the military, your thoughts on Afghanistan. You served yeah. what year? What, what years did you serve? Yeah, I served. I mean, there wasn't really much going on. I served uh, 1979 to 1983. So that was during the uh, Granada? Uh, Iran hostage crisis. Lebanon and Granada. And, uh, that, and yeah, and a little of that, too. Uh, that was when uh, Reagan uh became president right after Jimmy Carter had that little uh, thing with the SEALs trying to go in and rescue him. And then right. uh, anyway, yeah, but uh, it was during those years, uh, 79 to 83. And um, uh, yeah, but as far as the Afghanistan, I, I mean, I'm, I'm so thankful that we finally got out of there because, uh, you know, I mean, how long are we going to stay there? We were there for what, 20 years? I mean, gosh, we're going to stay there for 50, 100. No, I'm, I'm so glad we got out. I, I, I just hope that we keep our promise and, and get all those guys that helped us, those interpreters and stuff and bring them back, you know, let them come to this country. They, they served, you know, I see guys, you know, like, you know, you were talking about Mitch McConnell and whatever his military thing was. I, I, you know, I don't really know the whole story on him, but you know, these guys that they, they claim to be Patriots. The last thing any of these people that, claim to be such patriots would ever do is serve their country like but these people that you know helped us over there hell yeah bring them back here with their families so that they don't get killed over there they they, they helped us we should help them right right do you think biden do you think he's the first president who is talking to the american people as adults when it comes to war i've never seen anything like this before where you have his white house press spokesman saki saying there'll be no mission accomplished sign we didn't win this war yeah. joe biden said last week 
We tried for 20 years to bring stability and democracy to Afghanistan, and we couldn't do it. That is talking to the American people like adults. In the past, it was always uh, America doesn't lose wars and it's peace with honor. And, you know, Obama pulled that in Iraq. And, and sat, you know, told us what we accomplished in Iraq and we're bringing the troops home with honor. And, you know, we, we've lost so many troops and for us to leave now would dishonor their memory. It's unfair to their families. What do you say? A, do you think this is the first first time in recent memory where a president treated the American people and the military like adults and said, we didn't we didn't win? And are you dishonoring the troops by saying that? Well, I, you know, I think you're honoring the troops by by ending this, because this would just like I said, would go on forever. Um, So, I I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I I don't I don't think he's dishonoring troops. I mean, his son served. um, uh, So he knows what it's like to be a father of a, a son that, you know, fought for this country. So I give him a lot of respect for that. And uh, and I give any anyone that fought for this country uh, a lot of respect. Um, uh, you know, if, if I get into Congress, uh, one of the main things I'll, I'll for me is taking care of our veterans. I mean, you right. know, uh, it's like 20 some die every day of uh, suicide. You know, it's it's uh, yeah, these guys go over there and um, they serve their country and they come home and, and they're messed up and right. we take care of these people. Well, Bruno Amato is running for Congress. He's endorsed by Howie Klein. That's all you need to know. Howie Klein. I just want to say something on a on a personal note, because this was a little hard for me to do the interview with Howie upset with me. I know. So let me just say something. Yeah. So I'd like you to come back. Let me just explain to you that Howie Klein is responsible for the growth of this show. Uh, So many of the guests that I have uh, are because of Howie. The the direction of this show is because of Howie. And I've said this, uh, there are two people whose moral compass I listen to. Ralph Nader, I do a radio show with Ralph Nader and yes, I'm bragging, and Howie Klein. Uh, yeah. When I and by the way, I am bragging that I know Howie, <laughs> that I know Howie Klein and Ralph Nader. But uh, I've made it clear on this show to all my guests and all the listeners that there are two people who, you know, when I was growing up, my parents used to say, "I haven't been reading. I don't know how to vote." And Ralph Nader would send a ballot yeah. with things filled out. And we knew if Ralph Nader said, vote this way, you knew to vote that way. And the only other person in my adult life who I trust that way is Howie Klein. They understand policy, they understand, and they understand how to get in the street and brawl politically. So when somebody attacks Howie Klein on my show, uh, especially when I say you can't you can't get away with it. And, and he was 
he was ready. Yeah. He was ready because he knew how he was listening. Uh, I, I, can I just say something real fast? If I, if I, yes, I didn't please, cut yeah. you off. I, I, but like, I haven't known Howie as long as you. Obviously, I got introduced to him by uh, when I was thinking about running two years ago. Randy Bryce, who uh, you know was running against Paul the, Ryan, the he stash. introduced me to Howie. Yeah, yes, I, and uh, Howie has been such a help to me. You know, he's 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 a really good good dude, and uh, but I haven't known him like you have. Well, he's you know, just I can just tell listening to you. You know how much well, I'm really angry. I'll, I'll tell you why I'm angry. Yeah. You, you cannot attack or say anything bad about Howie Klein on on my show, because like Ralph Nader, Howie has had many lives and yeah. he remains pure. But he knows he's he had a previous life running reprise and, and, and Warner Records. He brought the clash to America. I mean, this guy. Yeah understands that people are flawed that that audiences are flawed but you always appeal to their higher angels you try not to compromise you try to have your purity tests but in the end you know politics yeah. is choosing the lesser of two evils even though he said he didn't vote for biden he's reached a point in his life where he said i'm not gonna vote for Biden I, because I live in California. But to to disrespect Howie Klein is to disrespect me. And it, so I uh, and I will not allow it on this show. And uh, I don't know why somebody would do that to me, to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so I apologize, Bruno. Oh, well, David, thank you so much. You'll for come, you'll I, come I, back. I see, uh, yes. I see another David waiting. So good, David. Good, David. Let me uh, what we're going to do. And this is a really important interview that's about to take place. Thank you, Bruno. Give me your website and give us the yeah, information. Uh, and let me just say everybody needs to send Bruno money, especially since Howie's pissed off at me. <laughs> so we have to make sure Bruno gets money. It's uh, easy It's easy to remember. BrunoForCongress.com. There you go. Bruno for Con especially after today, because yes. Howie is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, which raises money for yeah. candidates. And, and I'm honored to be endorsed by Blue America, for sure. Yes. Absolutely. And, and on this, again, I hate to belabor I'm just angry and, I know. and hurt. So uh, thank you, Bruno. You'll be back. David, thank you so thank much, you. my friend. I'm going to take you. Thank you. I'm going to. David Cobb is here and we have a really special guest. David Cobb ran for president on the Green Party ticket. And uh, you're you're an inspiration is. Uh, Sherry here? I see her. And then she. Well, I, there I you are. She is. Here's uh, David. Happy to be here. Thank you. Well, this is this is uh, what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn it over to David and you take over. And if you don't mind, I'm going to I have to call Howie. So what I'm going to do is. You take over this show because <laughs> I want to make sure Howie Klein is, is uh, OK uh, with me. 
So, uh, David, take it away, and I'll be back in three minutes, okay? Well, fantastic. But don't be no, too thank good. You so much. Don't be too good. Look, I, look, you set the bar pretty low. <laughs> You know, that's true, right? So, uh, and I know Sherry Honkala, right? Uh, so I don't know what happened before Sherry and I got on uh, with right. Howie. I know you hold him in high respect. I also know you know you hold Ralph Nader in high respect. Yes. I'm going to tell you that. And you. You know, I'm a, I'm a lawyer because of Ralph Nader and Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch is a fictional character, right? Ralph Nader is a real human being. Ralph Nader has had more influence on me and my political thinking than anybody who's not related to me. My mama, my daddy, mama, papa, they set my values. Ralph Nader is equally a towering figure. So whatever you need to do with Howie, you do it. And right. I'm going to take over the show and actually just introduce Sherry. Thank you. And talk about some groundbreaking work that she's doing. And folks, uh, so... Uh, it is my distinct pleasure to bring to the David Feldman show, Sherry Honkla. Sherry is one of those true long distance runners for social change. Folks who have uh, 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 been on the program with me have heard me constantly talk about, yes, we have to do electoral politics authentically, uh, courageously calling for systemic change. And we can't be electoral fetishists. We have to actually be in the streets, in the pool halls, in the bowling alleys where ordinary people are. Sherry Honkala is one of those people. Uh, she has an incredible uh, social change resume. But right now, I'm most excited to have Sherry actually talk about a truly groundbreaking lawsuit uh, that she's bringing to establish housing as a fundamental human right. Sherry Honkala, welcome to The David Feldman Show. Hi, David and David Cobb. <laughs> I'm happy to be here today. Um, I thought I froze there for a moment. Um, you know, this lawsuit has been a long time coming. Uh, and we're very excited to have um, uh, our attorney, Connor um, Cor Corcoran, who is uh, a center city attorney here in Philadelphia, who we thought... Um, wouldn't take us seriously and has decided to like dedicate a great deal of his time each and every day working on uh, our case. Um, we are in over 30 uh, properties that are abandoned that are owned by housing and urban development. And uh, on the day that the secretary for housing and urban development uh, talked about extending the moratorium. She also entered papers against us to have the families removed from the homes. So we decided that it was time for us to go to federal court. So we went to federal, we've, you know, filed in federal court. Um, there's four different major points that we're, uh, we will be arguing in, in federal court. I think two big pieces are, you know, arguing around the fair housing piece. And there's also a faith component. Um, so uh, we intend to have um, uh, the city of Philadelphia and the federal government let us know where these families should go and live. If they can't live in these abandoned government-owned properties that have been vacant for uh, some some of them have been vacant for five, ten years, um, and if they can't live there, we, we we're we're anxious to find out where else they can live. So, Sherry, I'm going to ask you to back up a moment and share with the the viewers and listeners 
the context, right? So you, you, you casually mentioned that you've been taking over home. So I want you to back up a bit and just tell the story. Like, so what led and precipitated this particular lawsuit? Um, we, uh, as I have an ice cream truck going by here, <laughs> uh, we have, um, been feeding and clothing and housing, uh, poor and homeless families for about the last 30 years. Um, I started in the eighties, uh, when I was, uh, homeless with my nine-year-old son at the time in the twin cities. And we had heard about this phenomenon of people taking over abandoned houses uh, because they have the heat on and the electricity um, because they don't want the pipes to freeze in the winter time. And so we decided um, that we didn't want to freeze to death. Uh, and so when he was nine years old, myself and my son, Mark Weber, we went in, took over abandoned property. And then out of that, we formed an organization um, and we've been doing it for 30 years Uh you know, uh, in the in the early days, uh, we used to get a lot of press around it and that kind of thing. Um, the more uh, uh, that we became successful at housing hundreds and hundreds of families, uh, the more that we had to uh, go underground, it became less symbolic and more um, strictly out of necessity. So, um you know, right now, uh, because in January, 10 million people were, were unable to pay rent. Um, we have over 30 properties now with entire families. We have a household where there's a, a grandmother, a mother and grandchildren. They lost their house to a house fire. Um, we have another family where um, the child has cancer um, we have another family that um, uh, the mother is in a wheelchair and another family uh, in which there's, you know, autistic children. I mean, the, the stories just go on and on and on. Um, and they have absolutely nowhere to live right now in Philadelphia. So just to be clear, in Philadelphia, and by the way, this is true in every major city in the United States. This is true in every uh, rural a community in the United States, folks, there are more empty houses than there are houseless people uh, everywhere in the country, right? And that's true in Philadelphia as well, correct? Yeah, Elsa, Elsa Noterman, um, who's a cartographer, um, has, uh, they've basically mapped the entire country because we wanted them to map the country and tell us how many abandoned houses per homeless family and an example here in Philadelphia is there's 10 abandoned properties for every homeless family. So we could actually end homelessness if we wanted to, if we develop the political will. They can, you know, rehab luxury houses overnight. Uh, why can't we take these abandoned properties, renovate them, and make them livable for homeless families? So just to be clear, uh, there are enough houses for houseless people. So the problem is not really a inventory problem. The problem is whether one says a political problem or a capitalism problem. The problem is a political economy that's treating housing as a commodity to be bought and paid for rather than as a human right. And what's interesting is your lawsuit is attempting 
to set a right to housing based on the government's own assertion. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, how many houses you you are currently occupying and how did it get to that point? Um, well, uh, we've never not been in housing takeovers for the last 30 years um, because uh, people didn't want to uh, die from being warehoused in shelters. Uh, particularly the disabled community is really dying um, from being warehoused in nursing homes. We saw higher rates of people dying um, as well as um, people that were being warehoused in um, shelters at a time where you're supposed to socially distance. Um, And so many families immediately came to us Um, for security and safety reasons. We say over 30 houses, but of course the number is much larger. Um, We were informed um, by our attorney that um, the sheriff's department, uh, the feds and uh, the East detectives unit are holding weekly briefings on us. And um, it's a scary time, but we're, we're excited because um, there's many different organizations from around the country that have stepped forward and um, are going to be writing uh, additional briefs to enter in as a part of our legal case. Do you, do you mind? I, I'm just I'm coming back. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. This is fascinating. I'm picking up late into this. Are you part of the story of the woman who discovered that city housing in Philadelphia had been left abandoned? Is this is this the story? Well, it is now. Um, there was. Um, is this something homeless- you would is this something you had talked about before I No. No, because David, um, did you hear about this? That there was a, a a woman who found out that Philadelphia built low income housing, paid for by tax dollars, and I don't know how many units, thousands of units, were just closed up because they decided, Sherry, that it was a pain in the neck to to, to keep it going. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, um, and we. Uh, Nadira is supporting us in our lawsuit. Um, they had set up an encampment on the parkway and we were supportive of their efforts. Um, Nadira has um, signed on to our lawsuit. Um, the sad story, uh, which I feel like is Nadira and some of those other homeless people's story to tell, is that the city basically uh, went back on their commitment. Um, And so that's a sad, evolving story that we're going to hear over time. Um, You know, some of the, and we saw it, um, you know, like a slow motion punch uh, because we've been doing this for about 30 years where the city makes various different promises. The politicians make various different promises. They usually have the clergy come in and declare victory and have us follow them. And then um, when the cameras go away, um, you know, any of the houses that they promise us, those kinds of things never actually appear. And so actually one of the main, um, one of the big leaders from the encampment, his name is Irvin Murray, Um, He's currently residing in our office. Um, That's where he's living right now. 
So one thing that I do want to really for the, the again, the listeners and viewers of the David Feldman show know that this is a place where candid conversation happens. So one of the reasons that I was so eager to bring Sherry onto this platform is because Those I've been knowing Sherry a long never time. Actually appear. And Sherry is somebody and who is not only a truth teller, she also gets shit done. Right. Like uh, she has she is responsible for putting houseless people into housing, regardless of whether or not uh, she's getting approval or not. Like she keeps people alive. Right. And one of the things as a lawyer, I am particularly excited about this case is this is not just a legal remedy in search. Uh, uh, this is on the ground right now. How many houses uh, uh, are you currently actually occupying, Sherry? Let's say upwards of 50. We're not going to go into the details. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm just going to say, look, and, and that's families, by the way. So multiply that number, whatever it is, by the number of people who have a, have a roof over their head because of the Poor People's Army uh, led by Sherry Honkala and other poor people. So what's worth noting is these are people who are either houseless or have experienced houselessness, organizing themselves, making demands on the system. And then saying, we don't care. We are making a demand. You have to react to us. See, that's how real movements act, right? And they don't think that a lawsuit is the answer. It is a tactic, right? Just like housing is a tactic, just like voting is a tactic, right? So to me, Sherry, what I'm really interested in is asking, how can we better elevate this story? Like, what is it that the, the viewers and listeners of the David Feldman show can do to help to imagine uh, and, and to elevate the story? Well, um, that's, a, that's a very good question and it's incredibly important. Many years ago, um, uh, Frontline USA uh, declared myself and 13 other people as being in, mo in most danger doing human rights in the U.S. And that was before I was in 50 properties owned by the federal government. Um, and I said out loud to say that um, some families in different parts of the country have taken over maybe one house, two houses, maybe a half a dozen. Um, and these things make national news. Um, there has been absolutely crickets. There has been absolutely no coverage whatsoever. And so that puts us in an incredibly dangerous situation because these families that have children that have cancer and are dying um, and have all of these other major issues and have no place to live um, could be moved on overnight and nobody would know about it. Um, and so um uh, you know, the, the other difficult thing is like that that encampment happened um, when Biden had his headquarters um, about three blocks away from that homeless encampment. And um, Biden is making a lot of trips into Philadelphia. And so uh, it's even more difficult um, being that I'm, a, you know, in a strong believer in independent politics uh, and talk strongly about in independent politics, um, that there's a, a, a chilling um, a whiteout uh, or blackout, whatever you want to call it, in the press of uh, this happening. 
So what things that so you- David Feldman, I'm going to lean on you uh, a little bit because uh, you probably know, I hope you do know Danny Alexander of Rock and Rap Confidential. Uh, I know that uh, David Feldman, you sort of have your finger on the pulse of a lot of art and culture. And I'm really literally like putting you kind of on the spot in front of your own audience yes. to say, yes. what can what can you do to help get Sherry Hawkba and this profoundly important story, a wider audience. Well, you're welcome to come on the show all the time. Uh, and uh, we should talk, uh, you know, this needs to be told. That's wonderful. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. Um, we're reaching out to um, artists, musicians, uh, as many podcasts, um, you know, whatever independent media is out there. Um, but it's really, you know, 10 million people didn't pay rent in January. This is a tsunami. I've been doing this for 30 years. Um, uh, never did I dream that every day, uh, I'd be trying to figure out a truck and furniture and moving entire families, um, belongings into properties just so that they weren't on the streets. Um, but uh, and by the way, um, we've been in uh, seven other states. Um, we've got a group of folks that are coming into town uh, from Chicago. Um, you know, we're teaching uh, on Zoom how to take over abandoned properties, uh, you know, because we know that there's an ending to this moratorium and uh, it's going to make the Great Depression look like a picnic. And so just to be clear, Sherry, you're actually bringing people into what are currently abandoned and unoccupied housing units, right? Like, so you, all you're doing is saying, hey, there are empty houses, uh, many of which are actually owned by either the city or of Philadelphia or the state of Pennsylvania or the federal government, and you're just putting houseless people in. Do I basically have that story right? That is correct. And, and legally, again, with the squatters' rights, could you review those, please? Um, there are no um, squatters' rights. Um, uh, there's the McKinney Act, which is 10% of all federal properties that are vacant are supposed to have first dibs for the homeless. But then we like to call it the nonprofit industrial complex came along and scooped that up. So it became a part of the bureaucracy where, you know, uh, they just take a bunch of properties. They remain vacant. One of our families has um, the property has been vacant since 2012. Um, and um, we moved a, a mother, a grandmother, and grandchildren in that property. And they've been in there for over a year. Um, and they lost their home to a house fire. And the city of Philadelphia put them up for a week and a half at the Holiday Inn and then discharge them at the height of COVID to the streets. So is the, the larger plan for this country, as I understand it, is private equity is getting into the real estate business. They're buying homes and they want to rent to us. And then they will have an army of managers who will be very good at evicting us. There'll be an efficiency, an economy of scale, because they will own an, literally an entire city. If you drive around, 
if you, you got it. And that's why we go we go crazy because they say all the time, Sherry, why don't you work with us and we'll build a bunch of tiny houses or whenever we set up encampments, uh, city council says we can give you toilets, we can give you ice. And they are freaked out because we're current and formerly homeless people saying, guess what? There's an abundance. There's plenty of housing. Let's start housing people. Um, We're not going to adjust to a lower standard of living. Uh, This is not, you know, some, you know, issues of scarcity and development. Uh, This is a question of greed. And if they can build luxury units overnight, in Kensington, where I live, um, we can do that. And this whole idea of these different nonprofits that build two or three houses, work with all these corporations, um, and takes two, three years to build a damn house. We are working with um, plumbers, electricians, all these people are like union on the down low um that are stepping forward and saying this is disgusting (laughs) is habitat for humanity jimmy carter's organization are they on the up and up Um, carter's organization um habitat for humanity um rehabs houses but at a rate um that um is like the slowest turtle that you could possibly imagine right right and you have to the requirements to get your home. You have to be a quote unquote upstanding citizen, a good investment for your home to get rehabbed, as I understand it. That's correct. And we have an additional issue, which I'm just going to be frank about, which is um, we've got, you know, probably one of the most progressive DAs in the country, Larry Krasner. Just and- reelected. Yeah. And, you know, massive amounts of people, um, thankfully, are coming out of prison. Um, Well, that's where they were housed. And nobody will hire them or rent to them once they get out of prison. That's correct. Um, So that's the other problem we have. So, David Feldman, and this is why I wanted to bring Sherry on during this, this segment, right? Because I think that what she is doing is, frankly, not only what needs to be done in Philadelphia, but frankly, we need to inspire a mass movement of people willing to have the courage of direct action to say, we have needs that can be met. We can meet them ourselves. And government policy has got to adapt in order to, uh, to to for our demands, you know, like remember in Argentina, whenever the, the tape, whenever they just went over and took over factories and workers just began to produce things. This is my point. Capitalism is coming to an end. And I don't rejoice that because it's going to be replaced by fascism if we don't quickly build a mass movement that shows people that we can feed them and ourselves, we can clothe them and ourselves, we can house them and ourselves. So Sherry Honko's approach is to show that we, the people, collectively can come together and meet fundamental human needs. So I dropped it into the chat. I'm going to say it again before our segment ends. The Poor People's Army, 
that's actually where you can go to learn more about this lawsuit. And this lawsuit is really the hook for the deeper, bigger movement that Sherry and the Poor People's Army are part of to demand housing is a human right. Housing should not be a commodity that's bought and paid for at a profit in the richest country the world has ever seen. If we cannot house all of our people, we are morally, ethically and spiritually bankrupt. Yes. Would you come back Thursday, David, and we'll do this and I'll join? Do you have time on Thursdays to? Uh, I may not, but Sherry, would you, could you make a commitment to come on to Thursday and I'll have to uh, circle. I'll have to see if I can uh, readjust right. my schedule. But what's your Thursday at 730 Eastern or this is, Thursday? This is, this is all this is all we care about right now uh, is shining a light on these 30 families, getting people across the country to say, that they stand with them and that they will not allow them to be thrown out of these properties. Would you come to office? Would you come Thursday, Sherry, and and come back on the show and then uh, come to office hours on Friday and meet some people here who I think want to help you? Uh, Yes, I would love to. I mean, I check on the schedule Friday, but I will definitely be there on Thursday and I will do everything in my power on Friday to make it happen. Let me And uh, and if not Sherry, we can find somebody else because the nice thing about the poor people's army is Sherry is not the only one in that army. (laughs) Let me uh, change the subject for a second uh, and talk to you about no evil foods if you don't mind, since it's 8.01 and we're waiting, I believe, on Dr. Harriet Fraud, who hasn't shown up. So clean slate. And I just want to get both of your opinion on this. So we have spent the past year going after no evil foods. They are a vegan plant based manufacturer. They have adopted all the left wing tropes. They have the Zapatista burger. They the, the heads of the company dress like they're leftists. They're called no evil foods, but they have venture capital from Blue Horizon. And their workers down in North Carolina wanted to go union and They fired, they violated the National Labor Relations Board, fired one of the people who tried to organize a union and fought the union. Then as the pandemic hit, they told their workers, you have a choice, either work through the pandemic or quit. The people who chose to work through the pandemic, they were told your family This is what the No Evil Foods, the two people who run No Evil Foods said, your family will take care of you. The pandemic supposedly came to an end last month and No Evil Food thanked their workers by announcing with no notice, we're closing up shop. You're all fired. No severance pay, no COBRA, no benefits. Go home. We've signed a deal to co-manufacture our plant-based leftist vegan meat somewhere in Chicago. And, you know, we we begged the people from No Evil Food to to recognize the union. Uh, We've asked 
uh, Sajer Shadel, she's one of the CEO, CEOs, and Mike Waliansky, he's the other CEO, to donate to the fund for the workers who suddenly found themselves out of a job, they didn't donate. And now I'm getting notes that Sajer Shadel, the CEO of No Evil Foods, is gaslighting her former employees who have gone, you know, who had to get food stamps. And she, this is what she wrote to the, the workers who are going hungry because No Evil Foods fired them all. Sadra writes, hey, I've seen some of your recent Instagram stories and wanted to connect with you. We're obviously going through a super challenging period at No Evil Foods and had to make a fast and excruciating decision to close our North Carolina production operations. Our team didn't have warning because we didn't have warning. This wasn't a premeditated move. We ran out of money. Hmm. We were trying to hold on to raise more capital, but our cash reserves kept getting lower and we couldn't support a $500,000 a month burn. So when an anticipated investment of $2 million unexpectedly fell through, we literally had no other option. There was no money to pay severance. And she says she's now only living on $50,000 a year. This is what they're telling the workers. She doesn't tell the workers what percentage of the $2 million, the new $2 million investment she got to bank. So she claims, and let's believe her, she claims that No Evil Foods is going out of business, that the capital fell through. Forget karma, just pure business sense. Would no evil foods be in better shape right now if they recognize the union? Look, they, of course. I mean, like, 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 I think that this is the thing. Like, remember the very first time we met, David, uh, when uh, our mutual friend brought me onto this show and I talked about worker owned cooperatives and economic democracy and what happens whenever you actually genuinely partner with workers in a business enterprise. There are so many examples and they, the 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 hard social science data is clear that cooperatives and cooperative decision-making cooperative businesses last longer. They play their workers better. Uh, they are more resilient in every way. They're better. The problem is I understand no evil foods is it was a marketing gimmick. The whole Zapatista burger and the comrade Chuck, that was a bunch of bullshit. They did not actually have real politics behind it. They saw a marketing niche that they were going to exploit because vegans, for the most part, are lefties. And so they were looking for market share. That's the problem with no evil foods. And it's the problem when things are just branding and marketing and not actually uh, rooted in anything real. And that's why this neoliberalism, whether it's under the guise of Republicans or Democrats or independents, like that doesn't matter. What matters is 
do we have a political analysis around liberty and justice? Do we have an analysis around ordinary people able to meet our needs? I think No Evil Foods is just another microcosm of everything that's wrong with trying to market uh, socialism. We should actually say we really are socialists. We actually believe from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. Right. That's what I think. I don't know about you, Sherry. Am I, am I going too far? Well, you know, I'm the last person to say you're going too far. But um, I, I, would de- I would definitely, you know, say the other controversial piece, which is I think that, you know, workers are tired of uh, business unionism. Um, that, uh, you know, uh, you know, people have a bad taste in their mouth. And that's why, you know, a big thing that the Poor People's Army does, um, and partly it's because many of us have labor backgrounds. I was very active in the Hormel strike, uh, and we, we knew that they were going to use um, unemployed and welfare recipients to cross that picket line. So we set up a food bank immediately um, so that we could form relationships with Jim Guyette of solidarity of working together, of understanding everybody's a paycheck or two away uh, from homelessness or a healthcare crisis. Um, right now in several of our takeover houses, we have people that are members of the Teamsters uh, that are homeless right now. And to be honest with you, we can't get a whole lot of Teamsters involved in helping us. Um, you know, because they make $125 a week working part-time. Um, so these are, you know, these are different times right now. Never did I dream that we would have so many union leaders calling us saying, can you help this family have some place to live? Yeah, well, that speaks volumes to how bad <laughs> our unions are in America. Uh, but going back to No Evil Foods, because we've been covering this story for a year, When you say to the workers, you don't need a union and we're going to fire you if you do. Uh, When you say we're family, don't sign the union. They block the union. Then they say you you don't need protection. Work through the pandemic or quit. Trust us. People work through the pandemic and no evil foods. And then last month they fired them with no notice you are then untrustworthy. Sadra Shadell and Mike Waliansky, the CEOs of No Evil Food, cannot be trusted anymore. So when she then plays the victim, when she direct messages these workers who are now going to food shelters and say, please understand, this was all unexpected. Well, you don't close up shop in North Carolina and move to Chicago unexpectedly. You, you have, you, that's months in the making. So that's the first lie. And the idea that you're burning through $500,000 a month and you're the victim here and you have a $2 million investment, another $2 million investment that fell through. She doesn't tell the workers her cut of the two million, her cut of the five hundred thousand dollar a month that she's burning through. She just talks about the fifty thousand dollars a year she's collecting in salary, 
not in profits. The way she lies to the workers and plays the victim. And I think she honestly believes her own. I won't say horseshit. I'll say no evil foods. I think she believes her own no evil foods. She actually believes she's the victim and she's telling the worker she fired, the one she screwed over. You got to understand what I'm going through. That's the pathology of capitalism and especially people like Sadra Shadell and Mike Walensky. They think they're the victims in all this and they think I'm cruel that Jacobin is cruel for reporting about this. They think the unions are cruel for picking on them. Can capitalism be tamed, David Cobb? Is there any way to, to pass laws that that sets it straight? Listen, uh, what I would say is this. This is a longer show, and I see Dr. Hakamaki is here. I believe she's at 830, that. though. So. Oh, OK. Oh, good. So we can keep going. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Harriet Fraud. I hope she's OK. OK. Is, yeah. So here's uh, David, like you've asked a provocative question. And I want to uh, answer it like clearly and and unambiguously. Capitalism has a definition. There are five characteristics. This is like go to any introduction to macroeconomics. And here are the five characteristics of capitalism. Number one, the private ownership of the means of production. Number two, that goods and services are produced as commodities uh, to be bought and sold as opposed to just need and use. So number two, commodity production. Number three, that uh, everything done in the economic system is to generate a profit. Number four, that labor itself is just one more commodity to be bought and paid for uh, uh, on the market. And number five, that the whole thing operates under the market. Now, I, 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 I gave this, this definition of capitalism before I answered your question because I want to make it clear that definition Go, I'm serious. Go right now. Like I challenge any of your viewers, listeners, go and look it up. You'll find that's more or less the definition standard uh, in, in any, uh, you know, go to Wikipedia. Like it'll be more or less that. So here's the problem that whenever you put all of those together, it's a suicide death march because it has got us. When you add industrialism and technology on top of it, we're now for the, the, the purposes of profit generation and accumulation, uh, we are destroying Mother Earth faster than she can replenish herself. Uh, and wait, that's not all. <laughs> so there's an existential problem with capitalism on its own definition. But here's the second one. I mentioned automation and technology robotics, right? Well, what that means is the system doesn't even need workers the way they once did. So the power that workers once had to be able to at least say, well, we just won't work. Here's the thing. The entire system 
it operates under the ex uh, the, the 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 stripping away of the surplus value of the labor that the workers themselves have produced so uh, for a capitalist before this new level of automation uh the capitalists had every incentive to put people to work yes they tried to pay as little as they could but it was actually to their benefit to put people to work because they were able to extract the surplus value of anybody that they put to work. And here's the problem, that now workers are not needed at the same level. It's the reason that we are seeing late stage capitalism uh, begin to turn on itself and what this country once did to the global south and brown and black skinned people in other countries is now being turned on uh, the American worker. So can capitalism be reformed? No. And if you actually reform our political economy in any way to make it truly ecologically sustainable or racially and socially just, it's no longer called capitalism. And this failure and this lack of courage to actually say what capitalism actually is, is part of the problem on the left, in my opinion. Right. So when the economy crashes, and it will, that's baked into the, the cycle of boom and bust. When it collapses, like it did last year and in 2008, you rebuild, as they say, better. And that's when you put in the guardrails and call it something else. What do you call it? Listen, uh, what I would say, I don't care whether you call it socialism or economic democracy or you call it communism. You can call whatever political economy you want to. But I think that what we have to come to terms with is that this current system, it's not that this system is broken. It's deeper and more perverse than that, David. The system is working exactly as it's designed to do because the real ruling elite, the point zero, not just the 1%, but the point zero zero one percent this billionaire predatory class, they don't care about us. They would just assume that we die, period, full stop. So, you know, now let me, me ask you a question. Way, we we have to wrap yeah. it up. We have to wrap okay. it up. But let me ask you a question. Do you I believe what you just said is true. I've gotten to a point my at my age. What you just said sounded, you know, rhetorically convincing. But, I, you know, you think, well, they really aren't that bad. I now believe that what you just said is received wisdom. They really do not care if we live or die. And, and it's hard for me. But as I get older, I, I, I now see that, you know, there are mice in my apartment and I'm going to be I'm a vegan and I'm a Buddhist. But I don't care if those mice live or die. I would I just don't want to see them. I don't like the mice. They're dirty and I don't want them in my apartment. There's only room for me, not the mice. I don't care if those living things live or die. And I mean that. And I feel bad saying that. But if I'm capable of thinking of mice that way, there's no question in my mind that the Kushner family, which owns so much real estate, Berkshire Hathaway, which owns so much real estate, Warren Buffett owns Berkshire Hathaway, they were mice to them. 
They don't care if we live or die. You meant that, David Cobb, right? They don't care if we live or die. The same way we watched shock and awe in 2003 and 91. I turn on the television and people would say, I got to I got to get I'm laughing. It's just so because evil is funny. I got to get home and, and watch. I, I got to get home and watch Baghdad blowing up. I, I don't have time I have to get home from work. And uh, collectively, Americans did not care if the Iraqis lived or died. Period. Full stop. I mean, again, Sherry, I, I, I invited you into this conversation. Uh, I, we've known each other a while. I'll, I'll invite you to grade my papers. Like, do you agree with my assessment? Do you think I've gone too far? Do you think it should be said some other way? Uh, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I don't know what we would call the system or whatever. I just know it's not working. Um, I know that um, people have a difficult time with me because they see that they think that uh, the work that I do or whatever, the things that I say, uh, I'm viewed as a non-team player um, because I'm, you know, we're busy calling out the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, we think that that's an important piece that is, you know, creating social control. This is not, you know, uh, a remaking of the New Deal. Um, you know, jobs are going away. They're never going to come back because of electronics and technology. And um, we have to decide as a society, um, like you have to make a decision about the mice in your apartment. We have to make a, a decision about our neighbors. Um, are we going to let them just be, you know, have the cats uh, eat them up and let them die um, or are we going to you know, create something different and something new and it's very difficult because it's asking people to step out of their comfort zone there's a great deal of money right now that capitalists are spending to make sure that there's social control um, that people are constantly putting forward ideas of reform instead of fundamental uh, systemic change um, and the creation of a new kind of society and a new kind of world for us to live in. The, the one of the biggest painful things of my life on a daily basis um, is that uh, I get to see how nobody gives a damn about the people that I see out my window every single day. Um, but that's also the, the mixed blessing because I know that the people that are outside my window are clear um, that they are the mice and um, they're organizing so that they don't get eaten by the cats. Right. Well, uh, hopefully you'll come back Thursday. I'm going to wrap it yeah. up. I'm going to play you a song by Professor Mike Steinel. We're going to do Community Billboard and then we're going to talk to Dr. Gina Hakamaki. And I and I really think like uh I, I watched Dr. Gina Huckamacki on last week's show. She was doing an interview with uh, Henry Huckamacki and authors of a book about climate change, Planet on Fire. And I was watching how how brilliant Dr. Gina Huckamacki is. And I'm thinking Henry is 
wearing off on Dr. Gina. I, I can see that 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 her being around Henry is making her uh, smarter. So you're very lucky to uh, be around your son. It's your. <laughs> Been walking in his footsteps since he was two weeks old. <laughs> I can see that it's wearing off on Henry's brilliance. And he was born a forty-year-old man, so it's true. I've been walking in his footsteps since he was two weeks old. Well, I've known you for I don't know a couple of months. You did the show, and I can I can tell that Henry, his moral compass, it's it's beginning to influence you, and that's good. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, thank you, David Cobb. David Cobb ran for president on the Green Party ticket, and he managed Ralph Nader's presidential campaign down in Texas. And I mean, da- I, I do mean down in Texas. No offense, but uh, you know, I'm I'm tired of having to respect some of these states. I respect the people of Texas but not the state of Texas. I I know you're a comedian and a political analysis. So on the way out, I'm going to say this. David Feldman, I was born in Texas and I'm proud to be a Texan. And for the rest of my life, I will always be from Texas because I worked hard. I saved my money. I bought a fine pair of boots and I walked my ass out of that backward state. All right. I bought a fine pair of boots and I walked my ass out of the backwards. Seat. Sherry, hopefully I'll see you Thursday because this is the most important issue, that and Medicare. If we're not talking about this and Medicare for all, we're not talking about anything. We got to have human rights, y'all. Yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you. I, for can coming. you stick around? I want you to see. Okay, I want you to see this song by uh, okay, Professor I'll Mike Steinel. It's called mm-hmm. Billionaires in Space. And uh, I know that people are worried about Medicare for all and homelessness and income inequality. But Professor Mike Steinel wanted to write a song about Richard Branson going into outer space. This is uh, new music from Professor Mike Steinel will be right back with Community Billboard and Dr. Gina Huckamaki. Forget about the temperatures on the western coast. Forget about Medicare for all. It's just a ghost. Don't worry about the billion children with nothing to eat. Cause we got billionaires in space. Ain't that neat? Forget about the banks that are too big to fail. Forget about those politicians with their souls up on sale. Don't worry about the climate that is out of hand Cause we got billionaires in space, ain't that grand Bezos, Musk, and Richard Branson too 
guess they got so much money they don't know what to do. They're headed for a weightless 11-minute ride. If you got a lot of dough, you can be right by their side. People lying about elections, right and left. Tuition going up, kids smothered in debt. Voting rights seem like they're going right up in smoke. But we got billionaires in space, ain't that woke? Forget about those citizens so mad they attacked the Capitol Dome. Beating on the police, then running back home. I know democracy sometimes seems like a hollow shell. But don't worry, we got billionaires in space. Ain't that swell? prisons that are busting at the seams don't worry about a generation that have forgotten about their dreams don't worry about people coming to shoot up your school cause we got billionaires in space ain't that cool Well, that was Professor Mike Steinel. It's time for Community Billboard. The David, <laughs> the David Feldman Show is my beat. That's the name of Dan Frankenberger's new segment. Please welcome. Everybody loves him. We can't we can't do this show without him. Please welcome Dan Frankenberger. Are you there, Danny? Danny? Oh, Danny. Hello, David. I can't see you. I'm completely. I hear the tree frog. Where are you? I'm, I'm here. You're, you're bad at computer. I'm very. It's amazing that I can. Did I? Oh, my God. There you are. OK. Hi, Dan hey. Frankenberger. How are you doing today? I'm <laughs> You've heard of ship to shore? That looks like ship to shit. What the hell are you wearing? You look like you got kicked off a cruise for uh, 
I don't want to, I can't say it. Let me see you again. Let me put you on. You look like you've been wearing the same hoodie for three shows. I have been. I'm languishing. So let me see. You've got the white hat. You're drinking. It's pastel, look. It's beautiful. And you've got the, uh, you look like you belong on a, a carnival cruise. I you look like the guy who this. goes on a carnival it's, it's cruise a it's before a- the COVID. I'm sorry? <laughs> I asked my kid, what is this? He's an ascot. I was like, I haven't heard that word since like, uh, was it a Scooby-Doo? <laughs> uh-huh. You look great. You really do. The whole idea is that Dan has to dress like a pretentious D-bag. So he's got his merch on. Anyway, we've got Dr. Gina Hakamaki in the wings. I hope Dr. Yep. Harriet Fraud is okay. She was supposed to be here for eight o'clock. Uh, I always worry that she listened to the show and realized what she was getting herself into. <laughs> she ran away. Yeah. I always, and I always, pulling up the pictures, I'll, I'll let everyone know that um, on Saturday the 17th, Valley Vox has their next show coming up at 4.30 Eastern as part of their uh, Sin Femme Summer Series, uh, American Auteur Anna Biller. Who? And we're gonna, Anna Biller. They okay. say uh, we'll screen her audacious Technicolor horror classic from 2016, The Love Witch, ah. and her remarkable short film a visit from the incubus okay i don't think we're going to be doing too much this summer i think we're going to relax uh okay this is community billboard we have an amazing collection of people who come to the show if you would like to attend a live taping of this show go to my website hit attend a live taping come to office hours every friday night at 8 p.m and meet new and i might add better people that's the problem with office hours i met henry huckamacki dr gina's son at office hours i met you at office hours it's a problem because uh your other friends don't measure up right dan it's the truth um if you ever want to feel like you're the dumbest person in the room, come to office hours. Yes. That's the way I feel. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> but that's, where you, that's where you should be because you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah, but I'd like to be close to the, the, <laughs> the dumbest. I'm not even there. So we have a drawing by Tom Weber. This is uh, from Tom Weber. Uh, this is a Victorian male. And you race it's a profile profile of a Victorian male with a Faber Castell pen. It's a three and a half by four and a half inches. And his next picture that I sent over is I know who that uh, is. That's Mo Markadafi's. And then yeah. he has an interesting uh, commentary on this. He says, as much as this might look like a caricature, his face had become quite bloated in his later years. So uh, this is, you know, he was going for this effect because of the as he had aged. He had uh, he'd bloated up a little bit. Yeah, that's a great picture. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. You think it got bloated in his later years. You should see his face when they uh, took the spoon and you know what, what they did to him. Yes, I know what they did. To okay. But Glenn Costick. Okay. <laughs> Glenn so, Costick <laughs> has gone into outer space. He's gone into outer space. He's. He's a glass blower. I, we don't we don't judge. Glenn, I like Glenn Costick. Whatever he does, that's that's none of my. I don't. I don't. So he's got a bloated face here. <laughs> so is this a, yeah. in the studio? 
he says, uh, this is new protective headgear for glass blowing. And one of his comments, he says, I kept burning the tip of my nose. Blowing <laughs> vessels with a mask on is problematic, and he could use a hose and a swivel. But this shield is didyphium coated for Pyrex. And uh, it has an annoying reflection, but the gold coating does reflect the heat. You know, he's never, has he done what Dave and P.A. does? Dave and P.A., by the way, my daughter wrote a great song about the trip to... Uh, yes, she did. That was fantastic. It was really great. It was, <laughs> uh, she's no Henry Huckamackie. But then again, I'm no Gina Huckamackie. Uh, my daughter wrote a beautiful song. She went to, uh, what was it, farm camp? What what what, did, what do they call it? I'm so, I think it's shop camp. Shop camp. I'm so hot. I can't. And with Andy Brown and Sarah and Dave and PA. And I talk to my daughter every day and she just tells me one story after another. It's it. You know, it's just amazing. Milking cows. And uh, anyway, she wrote a beautiful song. Dave and PA treats us to at office hours. We'll watch him build something. Has Glenn ever blown any glass while we were doing office hours not that i recall i don't think live live on office hours that i recall we should ask him to blow something for us when uh late at night when uh yeah oh boy uh so also from glenn is uh the, the, the mushrooms and olives uh so Glenn throws up some some food sometimes, and sometimes we all I do avoid. when we drink too much. <laughs> sometimes I avoid it because it's meat heavy, and I know you're vegan. And I don't want to make you puke before your next guest. Right. So this is his uh, mushrooms and olives, and uh, he wrote marinated mushrooms with garlic, red pepper, olives. Okay. So a lot of times you get these olives, and they're stuffed with all different stuff. Did he stuff the olives, or did he buy these? No. To, I'm not 100% sure, but I think these are just purchase things. And it's a, yeah. a little snack you had. Ah, different view of the bed and breakfast from Dave and PA's compound. The, yep. The branch Davidian Feldman compound. <laughs> Otherwise known as Birdie's Country Cottage. That URL.com and slash Birdie's Country Cottage. And uh, check out Dave and PA's uh, family's bed and breakfast. Um, you can go on Airbnb and search for a small country cottage in Millerton, Pennsylvania. And this place holds five guests and has two bedrooms, two baths, uh, two bedrooms and one bath. And uh, yeah, it's uh, close to Wellsboro, Watkins Glen, Ithaca, Corning Museum of Glass and the, the Finger Lakes wine region. OK, Carol Channing, this is Carol Channing. This is not Carol Channing. Didn't she this play a giraffe when, we were, when I was a kid? She was on some cartoon <laughs> where she played it. This is the first picture of a few from office hours the other night. This was Tom's drawing, Tom Weber at TomWeberArt.com. His drawing of a giraffe. They pulled, they pulled up a picture of a giraffe and Tom was drawing and giving some uh, technical instructions to the folks that were participating. So this is what Tom came up with. And uh, he claimed a whole bunch of people did a great job. And we had a few people enter their submissions. And the, the next one is Marianne Cummings giraffe. Wow. So you know, the, I, I'm going to yep. marry Professor Marianne Cummings. She should try drawing. She's got I, I'm looking at this. I think she's uh, 
she might be good at it. That's she very give it good. A shot at some point, I'm, I'm, I'm going to piss her yeah. off. <laughs> good for you, um, Professor Mary. <laughs> <laughs> you're yeah you know, that's, that's good. really good i believe it's called naive art <laughs> um the next one is from lane he also wow uh, did a giraffe and submitted it yep wow so Tom brings a picture he, he he is drawing it while he's trying to give some some technical instructions to the other folks that are also drawing it and right this is what we folks. do at office hours yep this is Tom's segment. And this is from Davy Mammal. This is his giraffe. That looks, yeah, D's nuts. We'll move. <laughs> uh, where's it looks, this? It looks like a ball bag. Um, <laughs> this is also from Marianne Cummings. She emailed this to me. This is uh, my Fox Valley Park District garden plot. And it did very well wow. by the monsoons this past weekend. Uh, she said various squash and peppers and eggplant herbs uh, interspersed with marigolds. And the the last thing that she mentioned, the marigolds, those were to keep the critters at bay, although it's not really working as well as it did last year. And there's two pictures of this. Yeah. So this is a park. She's Parks Commissioner Aurora. And, and this is Aurora, Illinois. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. So two pictures of the garden. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Dan Frankenberger, how do people contact you? You need to send an email to dentfeldman at gmail.com and whatever you send in, we'll get it on community billboard for you. Apparently, I have a dent in my head and people think it's funny. I don't see it. We will be back. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> we will be back with Dr. Gina Hakamaki. Do not come. Do not come. Thank you. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way It's time right now of the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right and buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.
there we go. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinel. And of course, the invisible ninja who uh, is brilliant. He drew some cartoons that make fun of me. Let us now go to Wisconsin, where Dr. Gina Huckamaki is standing by. She was on the show last Friday interviewing the authors of Planet on Fire. Please welcome Dr. Gina Huckamaki. It's uh, great to see you, and I, I hope you and Henry will be doing more interviews for the show. Henry will, for sure. I can't corral you into uh, this web of a uh, time suck. <laughs> uh, you were great. Uh, and uh, we were going to talk about something serious in a second. But Henry Huckamaki is absolutely uh just amazing. He really is. And your daughter was on the show and I got really angry because uh, and I, I watched she's in the mental health field. There's a shortage of mental health professionals in Michigan where you're coming to us from the, the sheriff, I believe, from your county. Northern, northern, more north than we are. Yeah got national attention saying we're, we can't keep arresting the mentally ill. We, we need psychologists and, and doctors to help these people. Police officers are not social workers. And your daughter uh, came on the show. She works in the mental health field and talked about how there's a shortage of facilities to seek to, to go if you have mental health issues. And I just my head exploded because all I see are celebrities telling us, you know, if you're feeling depressed or suicidal, seek help. And our earlier guest was talking about the nonprofit industrial complex. Every celebrity has a, a nonprofit to draw attention to the issues of mental health. We Oprah talks to Prince Harry and and his wife about their mental health issues to remove the stigma. There's no stigma to mental health issues. There's no there's nowhere to go. So uh, anyway, your your daughter made me very angry. You are a, a doctor. You're a, you have a you're a pharmacist, correct? Yes. Right. And uh, you are suffering or not? Well, you, you you were diagnosed with MS. What 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 is MS? Um, basically, it's uh, where your body is attacking the nervous system. So it attacks your brain and it attacks your spinal cord and your peripheral nerves. It causes the myelin sheaths to come off the nerves, which can cause a lot of pain and dysfunction, but it also creates holes in your brain and in your spinal cord. And it's kind of like a Russian roulette. You don't know where the next one's going to occur and what part of your functioning that that's going to have an effect on. So there's a lot of devastating effects when you, um, have the progressive disease, especially when you don't know when, where the next lesion is going to occur and how it's going to affect your mobility or how you can function. As I understand it, it it comes and goes, right? You're, you're able to... Well, it's 
if you're lucky, you and you start out with a relapsing remitting commission, uh, condition like mine, meaning that at, at some points you end up where you have worsening of your symptoms, can be eye problems, can be a whole sort of thing, whole, whole sorts of things. But um, then it progresses. It's a progressive disease that there is no cure. It progresses where you don't go into remission and you're always in this state of debilitating illnesses. Right, right. And when did you receive the diagnosis? Uh, around 12 years ago uh, is when I was first diagnosed. I may have had it a bit before then. I had had some eye symptoms and I had early onset glaucoma, so I thought it was something going wrong with my glaucoma. In reality, it was the beginning of them mass starting as well. Right. We hear stories. Uh, we, we've you were part of one of our uh, benefits for diabetic fury, and, and we hear stories of the high cost of insulin and how mothers in America who have children with type one diabetes will cut the insulin in half. They'll share the insulin with other people because it's so expensive. We hear of parents in America going, to, trying to decide, do, do we uh, have food this week or, or insulin? Uh, this is America, the, the wealthiest country, uh, we're told, in the history of civilization. And uh, Americans... Uh, one of the fastest growing diseases is diabetes and, and nobody seems to care, including the American Diabetes Association, that people can't afford insulin, which is supposed to be inexpensive to make. I believe the person who discovered insulin in Canada was worried that people would have to pay for it. So he donated the patent to his university for a dollar. I think this was back in the roaring 20s yes. when everybody, you know, was uh, chasing profits. He donated insulin. What is uh, the medication that you need for MS? Right now, I'm on an oral medication called Tecfidera. But before I got there, I had to start off on an injectable medication called Copaxone, and it was a once-daily injection. I started on that right at the onset, and I ended up with a problem from it, several problems. But one was called an immediate injection reaction, and what it's really rare. But I started having them relatively frequently. What happens is it causes your muscles to contract, including your diaphragm, so... I couldn't even breathe in. My diaphragm would immediately send the air out and you turn beet red and your heart races and it, it goes on like that for five minutes. I can't even tell you how frightened I made my family when I would have these, these immediate injection reactions because it looks like I'm going to die. And Laura, you mentioned Laura one time um, after injecting myself, I was, I was going to walk down our hallway, which was right at the top of the steps. And I started having it and I was going to fall down the steps and she scooped me up and, and went and laid me on, on the couch, but then had to watch me writhing in pain while I couldn't suck any air in. So that was the first medication I was on. And, and 
those medications, I can't imagine not having insurance because that was like $80,000 a year. But it wasn't just the immediate injection reactions. It also, when you inject yourself, it causes something called lipoatrophy. So it kind of dissolves the fat tissue. And then it started making my skin turn black. So in this insurance process, um, because they don't want to pay for other medications that are even more expensive than that, they require your doctor to file a prior authorization to get a different medication. But we still didn't get to Tecfidera. They asked me to go on. You are a pharmacist. Yes, I am a pharmacist. So they they asked me to go on one uh, beta interferon product, another injectable. And that one you only had to inject three times a week. I ran into a problem with that one as well. One, it it causes flu-like symptoms when you inject it. So putting yourself into an influenza situation three days a week was not that much fun. But I would have bore with it. But it wasn't. It wasn't keeping me in remission, and as well, it was elevating my liver enzymes, so I was ending up with some liver damage from it, and they had to take me off of that. And so I had to go, my doctor had to go through the process of filing for this oral medication called Tecfidera. The insurance company, they didn't want me to get Tecfidera because it was even more expensive than the ones I had been on. They wanted me to try a different one that elevates your eye pressure pressure and lowers your heart rate. My heart rate runs into the 30s and I have glaucoma with elevated eye pressure. So they couldn't use that when they had to let them use Tecfidera for me. And I had been on it for the last six years. And that's where, that's where I kind of was recently. Right, so Tecfidera, that's not the one that costs $80,000 a year or, or is it? Uh, probably a little more than that because they, they were not wanting to go to Tecfidera from Copaxone that was 80000 a year. Now, mind you, Copaxone in Canada is like $7,000 a year. And then in the U.S., it was like $80,000 a year. Slight discrepancy. In well, the it's probably of- better because it's, it's yeah, probably... Yeah, right, right. It's, same drug, but probably better. It's better. Right. Uh, wh- so who makes... Who are the drug makers? Okay, so this Tecfidera that I'm on is made by a company called Amgen. And they put me on a copay assistance program. Now, mind you, I do have insurance. I have Federal Blue Cross. They put me on a copay assistance program and picked up my $1,000 copays. And so I didn't really have any out of cost expense with Tecfidera. But I ran into a problem. If you want to know what the problem is, sure. Okay. The problem was on January 19th, normally my pharmacy calls me with a refill reminder because I have some memory loss and you can set up refill reminders wherever you want. This is this comes from a specialty mail order pharmacy called Walgreens Specialty Prime. That's my pharmacy. And they called and said, you should refill your prescription. And I said, great, you're right. I need to refill that prescription. And they tried to run it through. And the insurance rejected it. It's not really the insurance company rejected it, but we'll get to that. So it was rejected. They said, oh, you'll need a prior authorization from your doctor. I've been on it for six years. It's been, I've been in relatively good control. I've only had a few relapses. And 
you know, so so why are you making me go through this preauthorization? But nonetheless, I called my doctor and said, you're going to need to file a prior authorization in order for me to continue on the med that's been keeping me in control for this six years. The issue was that they had come out with a generic that made the same kind of a product, Tecfidera. So the, the insurance company didn't want to pay for the brand. Now, there's a couple of things here. If you switch me to the generic, I was on a copay assistance program from Amgen that picked up my copay. So now this generic company is not going to pick up those copays. So the insurance company gets to save the money. But I would have to pay. So Amgen yeah. makes the drug. It's mm-hmm. called Tecfidera. Yep, Tecfidera. They, they, they had the patent for Tecfidera. And then the patent eventually lapses and some companies are allowed to then make it. Amgen was picking up your copay, but if you switch to generic, Amgen is no longer making money off you. Correct. So they stop giving you, they stop subsidizing your purchase of the Tecfidera. And so the insurance company wants you on the generic because it's cheaper but not for you right now here's here's the real issue could i pay that copay i could i could pay that copay and i'm a pharmacist and i I will tell you that in most cases i'm fine for myself or anybody else advising them to go ahead and get the generics However, in this particular case, it wasn't the $1,000 co-pays that I was going to have to do now instead of the insurance company getting to save the money. And there's something else which I'll alert you to shortly. But the company that was making the generic is called, uh, let's see, Camphor Pharmaceuticals, which is a parent company, company of hetero pharmaceuticals of Hyderabad, India. That particular generic company had been lambasted by the FDA for quality reasons, for cleanliness reasons, for substandard product reasons. They actually had them on videotape destroying their quality control documents in the middle of the night. So it's not just that, okay, bite the bullet, I got to pick up the $1,000 copays. It's a substandard product. I've been stabilized. I've been on this drug for six years, and my physician agreed we should not change you to this other product because that's not a real good thing. So they went through and filed the prior authorization requests. On That was on January 19th. On January 22nd, I got my refill for a 90-day supply. So I think everything's great. But then... A few months later, I started running out of the medication and I wasn't getting my usual reminder refill from the pharmacy. They didn't call me and say, hey, Gina, you probably should have a refill of your prescription. Why don't you order it? They didn't call me. So I thought, I better call my pharmacy, Walgreens Specialty Prime. When I called, they said, oh, you know what? You need another prior authorization. I said, we just did that. We did that in January. Why, why do I need another one? Well, we can't fill it because your insurance company won't pay for it. You're going to have to get another one. So I'm on the phone. This is Blue um, Shield. What's that? Blue Shield. 
Yeah, this is a federal Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. So I called the doctor and said, you know, I'm sorry to bother you, but if the, my insurance company is asking to have you fill out more paperwork and file another prior authorization. So if you, if you could do that, well, you know, I leave that with them. A, a week goes by, I hear nothing from no one, starting to run out of the drug. I call again. The insurance says, no, nope, won't go through. Doctor says I filed the request. I got nothing. I let another week go by. Pretty soon, I'm out of the drug, okay? So they actually allowed me to run out of the drug without rectifying this. And now I want to show you what the real problem is. There, there's an intermediary. When, when you, when you, I got a couple of visuals for you here that hopefully yeah. people see. But this one right here, this is how patients perceive the Rx process. And if you're uninsured, this is pretty much how it works. Your doctor writes a prescription, they send it to the pharmacy, and you get to go pick it up, okay? That's how you think that your pr prescription process works. Now I wanna show you how it really works when you have insurance. It's a bit more complicated from, than that. Okay, your doctor writes a prescription and there's a, whoop, I can't even do this, middleman. This looks like what the FBI uses when they're trying right. to prosecute a RICO act against mobsters. That's what they have on the board and they are, this is a racket. These are racketeers. Okay, I want to show you how much of a racket this really is. You see this thing in the middle I have in red, the PBM, the middleman? Yeah. What that is, it's called a pharmacy benefits manager. Now, if this isn't squirrely, I don't know what is. David Dian writes about this, and it's... This pharmacy benefits manager happens to be CVS Caremark. My pharmacy is Walgreens Specialty Pine. Okay, what a pharmacy benefits manager is, is the they're getting paid from everybody to, to not fill your drugs. Okay, the insurance company pays the pharmacy benefit manager to manage the drug costs. So they get this upfront lump of money. And they tell the pharmacy benefit manager, make our drug costs as small as you can. Okay, so the drug manufacturers have to beg and plead with this middleman that is the one that's saying, these for, geez, Gina, your, your federal Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, these are the only drugs we're going to cover for it. And if you want something outside of that, you're going to have to pay a lot more because they're not on our list. So that middleman sucks out money from the insurance company. They're also sucking money from the drug manufacturer or wholesaler because they're holding them hostage. We're not going to put your drug on the list of stuff that's going to be covered by the insurance company unless you give us a kickback. Okay, now the, they also, that PBM also talks to the pharmacies and what they tell the pharmacies are is we want you to cut down your dispensing fees and we want you to take as little as possible for the cost of the drug when you're filling those prescriptions. So that PBM, that middleman is getting money from everybody, one, from the drug manufacturer or wholesaler because they need to be on the list that the insurance company is going to pay for the drug. The insurance company is paying them to, to make the, their costs as small as possible. The pharmacy has to negotiate and say, okay, yeah, we'll only accept this pittance of a, a dispensing fee because otherwise you're going to tell everybody to go to a different pharmacy. And you know who loses? The doctor and you. 
the doctor doesn't have any time to actually treat patients' diseases anymore. And you are gonna, you're, spo- you're supposed to have reduced premiums on your insurances instead of all the kickbacks that are just going to that pharmacy benefits manager. I don't know about you, but my premiums haven't gone down anytime recently. So the only per- the person, that's, the, the organization that's sucking all the money out of the whole system is this middleman, but they're doing it for the benefit of the insurance company. They're making the manufacturers held hostage for what drugs they're going to include on their formulary, and they're squeezing the pharmacies as well. That's how this system works. The pharmacy benefits manager, David Dayen over at the uh, American Prospect has written about this, and I try to understand it, and you did a great job. You should come back and explain this. We should know what a pharmacy benefit manager is. Uh, David did a pretty good job, but... It, I I don't I have trouble understanding it because of the why, like why would somebody costs? Do- costs. It's they're they're getting they're getting profits by reducing the costs to the insurance companies. That's where they're getting their profits from. They get a kickback basically, and it's all at the expense of the patient and the doctors. I'm telling you. I felt so sorry for how many times I had to call. I called the doctor's office every single day after a while because I didn't have the medication. And they're insisting they filed all the paperwork and they don't know where to go with this. I'm out of the drug. They're watching me deteriorate and they don't know how to get the medication. Have you got, have you gotten it yet? Has it- okay, so I'm going to tell you the, the final, how I resolved this. I wrote letters. I sent emails hand-delivered letters and called on the phone three congressmen in my district, two of my district senators and a U.S. representative. Now, there's I know that there's algorithms that are used, so I didn't just let it go by one form. I, I sent emails to each one of them. I called on the phone, sent a, hand, a handwritten letter, and then by luck, my husband's a photographer, and he happened to be doing a photo shoot of one of the congressmen that I'd just written a letter for. And he had to do a photo shoot for him for Bridge Magazine. He brought the letter and handed it to the guy. And so. Republican? Know, as a result, of, they all, all three of them did follow up. I got calls from them. Um, Republican or Democrats? You know, to be honest, David, they're not. And the other thing is, I can tell you that they're not uh, what one of the problems that we uh, I'm have sorry, they're not re- they're Republicans or Democrats. They're Republicans. They're Republicans. Yes. Now, what I can tell you is it's not in their best interest or any Democratic congressman to fight the insurance companies, because guess who they get paid for? But they do fight for the constituents, especially if you have a squeaky, squeaky wheel that has the name doctor in front of it with a hand delivered letter from my husband. So. I do have to credit them with it. However, not any of them are going to change the system. They will fight independently for one individual constituent of theirs, but they are not going to do anything to change the way our healthcare system works. So the answer is go oh, to go get a PhD. If you, if you want, yes, go ahead. This is how you fix the system. 
you have to eliminate profit motives of these companies and you have to get the middleman. We need single payer healthcare and public, publicly owned pharmaceutical companies. That is the only way we're going to fix this system. I know I'm not the only one. You could look at, you know, I, I am sure everyone, including yourself, including everyone has had these situations where it's something you're already paying enormous premiums, but they'll, the insurance companies will fight you tooth and nail to not pay those bills. I am not the only one. I know this is happening to everyone. And when it comes to these medications, it's insane that we have these middlemen that are sucking off all the profits and leaving the doctors and the patients suffering. Why do doctors put up with it? I, I, it's the system that they have to deal with. I mean, they're, you know, so I have Federal Blue Cross Michigan. There's a thousand insurance companies. You don't honestly think they know what some middleman has decided what drugs are going to be on the formulary for every single one of those thousand insurance companies. They're on the phone all day long. They have teams of people in the doctor's offices. We are the most inefficient healthcare system in the world. We have more people devoted to figuring out how not to pay for the patient's health care and, and chasing around these insurance companies than we do doctors. The insurance companies have killed more people than the tobacco industry. Absolutely. I said I, I would have been if I wouldn't have, you know, started with the, the congressman, I'm relatively sure I wouldn't have gotten my medication today. And I'm I've uh, suffered for the last few weeks without it. Wow. It it it. Uh... It's like it's a slow motion car crash, America. Two trillion dollars for Afghanistan. I'm sorry. We're all experiencing it. I know I'm not the only one. And if people look deep down, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. If you look deep down and think that this is the right way to manage health care. I don't know. Well, they have us convinced that. Without the animal spirits, without the profit motive, we uh, can't go to the moon. And I've been saying this over and over on the show that Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, with their animal spirit and profit motive, are accomplishing something our government did 60 years ago. And they're not even coming close to what the government achieved, but we're celebrating for some reason, Richard Brands spending 12 minutes in space. 60 years ago, John Glenn orbited the earth three times. Uh, so I guess to the American people, what little audience I have, it's either or. We're either a horrible well, we are a horrible country. Is it because of the leadership or because of the it's lead? Right. Is it because of the lead? And I'm not talking about the drinking water in Flint. Is it the leadership or the lead? And if it's the leadership, what the hell is everybody doing? Why are you watching this crap on Netflix 
and and Amazon Prime, and and why aren't you spending three hours a day marching on your Congress people and your senators and your state representatives? Ralph Nader always says you just need one percent of the country. That's all it takes if you want to change. If there's an issue and you want action on it, all it takes is for one percent of the country to move on it. Well, one percent of the country has moved on one issue, income inequality. One percent of this country wants income inequality. They move on it. They control the tax code and they've succeeded. We have massive income inequality in this country. And from that, the health care industry flourishes and we we have to mobilize and get angry and make your congressperson's life miserable. Unfortunately, they don't answer the phone. They don't return emails or letters. They're in a in a very safe bubble. Uh and so we get angry, but at the wrong things and the wrong people. And we need focus. That was the genius of Bernie. Medicare for all. That's it. It starts with Medicare for all. And that would transform how we look at one another and how we treat one another. We have to stay focused on Medicare for all. From that flows housing and free tuition at public colleges and the whole the whole thing we need uh this country is is bad it's doing bad things we either blame the leaders or the people being led uh i don't want to blame the victims i really don't but we're at a sad, pathetic excuse for an electorate that we put up with this. There's always an excuse. Well, it's the mainstream media. There, there are a thousand excuses for why Bernie didn't get the Democratic nomination. There are a million excuses for why we put up with this health care system. It's never our fault. Anyway, come back, please. Thank you. You got me angry. <laughs> well, it's good that that, that, take, that makes action happen. I wanted to have brunch tonight. Thank you, Dr. Gina Huckamaki. Thank you. Uh, please come back. Thank you. Okay. I can see Henry's rubbing off on you. You're thank you. You're listening to uh, we miss Henry. You're I li- do too. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. David Feldman Show. Dot com. When we come back, I think it's uh, Professor Marianne Cummings, right? I, I, I know it is. We'll be back with Professor Marianne Cummings. I'd love to hear her take on this.
Welcome back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Follow us and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. We have a YouTube channel as well. Please subscribe to it and share the show with your friends. Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist. She's also a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. Explain, you're a physicist. Explain the, the black hole that, that is our healthcare system. Explain why we allow this. Well, you're muted. We have an ideology. We have an ideology that is toxic. I mean, we've all been kind of programmed to fundamentally believe that there's, you know, that the capitalist system in this case, especially regarding health issues or, or education or anything critical is fundamentally sound and it's just a few bad apples or it's just corruption somewhere in the system that this can and it can all be you know routed out it can be reformed and it really can't when dr chino was talking i remembered reading something that made my jaw drop and i didn't think i hallucinated and i didn't there was a, a cnbc um, a real article on CNBC, and guess what the title was? This Goldman Sachs asked biotech research in biotech research report, quote, is curing patients a sustainable business model? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is serious. This is not the onion. I mean, this right. could be the onion. It asked in an April 10th report entitled The Genome Revolution. And here they go on. The potential to deliver one-shot cures is one of the most attractive aspects of gene therapy, genetically engineered cell therapy, and gene editing. However, such treatments offer a very different outlook with regard to recurring revenue versus chronic therapies. No kidding. The analyst Salvine Richter wrote a note to clients Tuesday. While this proposition carries tremendous value for patients and society, it could represent a challenge for genome medicine developers looking for a sustained cash flow. Well, you know, there's one cure for that. Just fund the national labs to do this. Okay, so tell me how to argue with the other side. The other side is going to say Operation Warp Speed. We pumped billions of dollars into Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna, and we cured America and Germany, cured or came at least came up with a vaccine for for COVID nineteen, yeah, that, but th- there's no argument there. And, and that's that's that an example of that solved it. It was the government that poured money from a technology that came from a from a university from two people at a university with tremendous help from scientists at the FDA. They actually came up with some critical mechanism for the virus to work that they handed off to Mordena. Now I'm, I'm not an expert on how vaccines work i mean there's a lot of steps you know it's not just that you put something in a in a lipid coating and shoot it in somebody's vein i mean there's uh, there's it, it's it's a com- tremendously complicated process however the bottom line is this was not solved by market forces well and but what know, about animal spirits because 
there's a, a married, there's a couple who lives in Germany. They're Muslims, I believe, from Turkey. They started BioNTech and they have become uh, billionaires from, from this. So the other side is going to say it's those animal spirits. It's the profit motive that made these two doctors want to come up with the mRNA virus. But they didn't come up with an mRNA virus, a vaccine, you mean. They didn't come up with that, well, that they, No, they also came up with a virus because, you know, you got to drum <laughs> yeah, well, up business. That's a whole nother story. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, uh, that's, that's because that's the structure we've set up based on belief systems. And, you know, we, we do still have a robust national lab system in this country for the physical sciences and for biological sciences, but we have allowed marketplace concerns to like seep into that stellar system all the way down to the university level where, you know, they're, they have to be, universities have to be concerned by the marketability, by patents, by things that my little small company worries about. And it's, it, it basically, it saps people's energies. It takes them, just like Gina was saying with your doctor arguing with the pharmaceutical company, having to like adapt basic research, which works well on its own. I mean, businesses have no trouble stealing ideas that were developed by the governments. Right. I mean, and, and if you had a real free enterprise system, which is what we do not have, we have an oligarchic system. It's not about free enterprise or competition or market. When you get past a certain size, it's all about just raw power and who's bought the politicians and who has the inside track to the regulatory agencies and, you know, the whole the whole nine yards. You cannot have a multinational corporation that's successful without lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm getting feedback. Do you hear that? Let me. Oh, you should be. You should keep talking. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's yeah. That usually helps. Alan Grayson, Congressman Alan Grayson, who's running for Senate in Florida, says that uh, you know you can criticize our system all you want, and he's a big critic of it. But there's no denying that American research, medical research is the biggest, the most successful, the most powerful in the world. And that there are, he says, there are people who can defend the current system. Is that true? There are people who can defend human <laughs> sacrifice. I mean, there's no end to human creativity, you know, to justify awful things. I think it was Voltaire that once said, I, he might have been speaking about religions. It could apply to just about any ideology. Those who can get you to believe absurdities can get you to commit atrocities. Right. And I think our healthcare system is a great example of very smart people deciding to believe in absurdities and creating atrocities, which is just the reality on the ground here in this country for way too many people. Can you, know, you have can you have both? Can you have these miraculous breakthroughs and treatments that seem to be coming from America, Great Britain, Switzerland, Germany, to some degree France, 
can you have these great medical breakthroughs and a uh, benevolent, caring society at the same time? Of course you can have that. <laughs> I mean, look, the breakthroughs have largely come from researchers, from research institutes, from people who aren't making much money. But nonetheless, I mean, we didn't, we only had the mRNA vaccine technology because a woman who was denied tenure because she couldn't get funding for this, nonetheless persisted with her colleagues and, you know, endured God knows what academic degradation rituals, you know, in the non-tenured state, but uh, managed to succeed. You know, and if she hadn't been unreasonable, if she had just gone off and worked into a, at a company to make money, we wouldn't have had this. So we have this all the time. Look, we have NASA. We have the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. These are all, you know, we have the Internet because of public funding of DARPA and public fund. We have the World Wide Web because of public funding of particle physics. And who was a particle physicist, a British guy who came up with the first uh, what we would call a browser that to put on to interface with the with the internet, so every everyday people could use it. I mean, all these things, you know, it's like, and the way we have uh, constructed capitalistic systems, we've allowed finance. And I think, you know, I didn't understand that until I was reading Matt Taibbi way back in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, and it's like his. He was the first reporter to really dig into the structure of what was actually happening and why we had the big meltdown. And it was just the extent that finance started dominating our economics. It wasn't the first time. Uh, it's a great book, um, 1929, The Great Crash by uh, John Galsworth. Galbraith. 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 And he figured out, it was. they understood how... They, they understood how to deal with the effects of a massive depression, John Maynard Keynes. But years before, they understood what actually happened. And Galbraith was the first guy who, who figured out that it was just all this enormous amount of financial leveraging that had gone on all through the 20s that made this particular crash uh, so hard to recover from and why businesses weren't just why the system didn't just bounce back like it had, you know, every time before. And we are just now, you know, sucked into this, this, you know, I guess, our version of pixie dust, you know, like money and finance and, you know, um, investment into certain things, making things magically happen when it all boils down to the labor and ingenuity and integrity of people actually doing this stuff. I mean, integrity is a very, it, it, it's an ethical issue. I mean, there is a real uh, moral component to doing research. And, you know, it's a, it demands the highest standards of honesty and integrity to really do it well. And even then, you can't, you know, you're, you can't help but be a bias. We have, we have a peer review process for that. So, um, okay, so we're very critical of Joe Biden. Uh, Jim Earl uh, earlier read out loud something I wrote about Joe Biden when he was running against Bernie. Uh, but on Friday, 
the White House, through executive order, introduce some of the most sweeping antitrust regulations through executive order that we've seen in 50 years. It, it would put hospital mergers under scrutiny. It would uh, return the right to repair your, your car or your phone. Uh, there are about 70, uh, I hear feedback. Uh, I don't know what that is. There are about 70 actions that uh, Biden is ordering executive agencies to implement to create more competition and change the way we enforce antitrust legislation. He's ordered the FTC. Lena Khan, who you were talking about about two weeks ago, is now head of the FTC, that the time has come to start enforcing antitrust regulation, not to benefit the consumer, but to benefit people who are competing with Amazon. That these the problem since Bork uh, was working at the Justice Department, he rewrote how we prosecute antitrust in this country. And if the consumer benefits, bigger is better. And that's why Amazon was allowed to grow so big. Biden is changing this. He's saying, no, competition is good. We should focus on people who are competing with other corporations. That's a big positive step that there was no way he was going to get that through McConnell. He did that through executive order. Does he deserve credit for that? Well, I'm not sure who's making these decisions, so we'll put that aside. The reality is, boy, the horse, those horses really left the barn a long time ago. So you're going to start reforming a system that's already hideously broken when we only got about six or five major telecommunications companies. I mean, we have everything is just been already so merged and so conglomerated that this is, you know, I, I would like to believe something will come out of this, but this is right now is a little bit of political performance. I mean, there are a few things. I like the, I like the uh, right to repair. If you have the right If only I could repair my iPhone. How many times has yeah. if I had trouble with my battery and said, if only I could just crack it open and fix it? And that was a so Bernie frustrating. thing. I mean, Bernie was big on that. Because he was, particularly in rural areas, I mean, you used to be able to repair your tractors. You used to right. be able to repair your equipment. I mean, when I was a teenager, I could repair the old AMC Hornet. I mean, I could repair it. Wow. I mean, you look up, open the hood, you look, hey, nothing's in here. I'm, motor's about this big. <laughs> but everything was, like, accessible. And, you know, you can put a voltmeter on things to sit, find out why your the starter won't work. And it was just a... You know, it was something that like a high school kid could kind of check. And it's, you know, there is just no percentage in these companies for, uh, you know, making things repairable. Like there's no incentive that these companies for like, what, a one shot cure for MS? Right. Well, there goes our revenue stream. You know, it's like. By the way, did you know that John Deere, did you know that John Deere, they make our tractors? Right. They make six times more money as a bank lending money to farmers to buy those tractors than they do from the sales of those 
tractors. This is what got GM and GE. That's right. Exactly. I was thinking of GM. Yeah. And uh, and by the way, it was it's what did Lucent in. They wanted to set up a model too. I mean, they they Lucent was taken over by people from marketing, and they wanted to have this insane growth profile. And of course, they didn't have enough customers to afford their fancy upgradable products. So they started, you know, basically lending or having these like incredible financial deals to various companies so they could buy the products. But uh, they ended up going bust over largely that they didn't think that one through. Again, it's like, you know, this insane ideology that you have to keep growing more is better. Nothing in nature keeps growing indefinitely except for a tumor and that ends up in catastrophe you know that's right. it's it's this insane belief that we're all kind of like embedded with and you know um and this is a fairly recent development because of the uh, an idea that was a good idea solving the time space issue of money which was like the idea of modern finance it was kind of developed over 800 years ago in genoa and um and now it's just that you've taken the utility and you've enshrined the utility rather than the things it was supposed to assist you in accomplishing. Right. As Galbraith said, hey, you know, why build factories and why build all the problems of, uh, of real machinery when you can just issue paper and sell the paper? And that right. was Shenandoah Corporation, a little invention by um, Goldman Sachs. You know, hmm. just, uh, yeah, <laughs> small world. <laughs> the, anyway, G, uh, the G20 met over the weekend. Janet Yellen is our Treasury Secretary. She used to head the Federal Reserve. And she, Biden, and it looks like the G20 are set on ending the race to the bottom. There's going to be a floor. Multinational corporations will no longer be allowed to move to the country that has the mm -hmm. the lowest taxes and they all agreed on this and then there's going to be a meeting of g20 finance ministers and, and central bank chiefs in uh in october and they're going to supposedly ratify this this is something biden wanted he's demanding that corporations at least pay a minimum of 15 percent mm-hmm and great. I mean, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, this was the reasoning from the time of John F. Kennedy, that you basically lower the tax rate, but you, you know, you get rid of loopholes and you require that people pay at least, you know, some amount of money in tax. It, it hits small businesses with the alternative minimum tax. I've known people in small businesses that because of the structure of their payments suddenly they get you know all this income from almost a year in one quarter and you have to do your taxes and you have to sort of amortize that over four quarters and they just suddenly go whoa wait a minute you know we're they, they've been hit with the alternative minimum um the problem with with that is that um larger corporations have big financial divisions that could come up with all kinds of creative ways to you know, shield that money and launder that money. And again, it, I think it's more than just, you know, a, a series of, of executive orders. I mean, you have to like completely restructure the culture in DC, the culture of regulation, the culture of, you know, this, this country. And um, 
Look, as one person pointed out to me a long time ago, most regulations in this country, and this I hadn't known before, um, most regulations are actually at the behest of the industry themselves. Because left to their own devices, they eat each other alive. And they need, you know, they are begging for some referee to come in there, the federal government, so that, you know, they, some outside force can set the rules so that they, they continue to live. Uh, yeah. Right now, we have a world where when you say that we're going to stop any continued conglomeration or, you know, money laundering or uh, piling up of wealth, well, it's already happened, dude. Right. <laughs> you can stop everything from happening tomorrow and you still have, you know, these set of billionaires and these very few companies that basically control both political parties and so on and so forth. Um let me ask you about somebody. I mean, they have to be performant. If somebody is feeling that they have to do something, at least uh, somewhat symbolic. The although I think the repair the, the repair clause might actually do some good. Yeah, I know. I can't wait to just open up my car and fix it by myself. You know me. Well, if you were a, if you were a, a farmer, you know. One of the people actually did things. It was Bernie Sanders' big thing when he was going through Iowa, you know, and that's relevant to people who, right. <laughs> unlike most of us, who actually do physical things that are critical for our physical survival. I got. I had to get a new iPhone. I had a five. I thought I had a six. I had a five, and so there was no trade in value. There was nothing. I have to. I'm going to mute you while I bore my audience and then I'll unmute you. Uh, and so I so the woman selling me my new iPhone said, you know, we'll recycle this for you for free. Oh, thank you. You're going to recycle it for free or you can take it home. And she said, you know, you, and you can open it up. And I said, more like videotape myself taking a hammer to it. And she said, why would you do that? I said, because that's the only tool I can use as a hammer. I can break things. So, yeah, so I just looking back, I should have smashed it with a hammer and videotaped it. The Biden administration, people who are supporting Joe Biden say he has a similar problem that Obama has in that he is accomplishing things, but they aren't big things. They're little tiny things that add up to something big. And they worry that around the time of the midterms, he won't get credit for all that he's accomplished. There's a, a school of thought. I can al already see you grimacing. There's a school of thought that we can no longer pass Medicare, Medicaid because of the polarization. They don't want either side to get credit for something, a landmark bill like Medicare and Medicaid. It's impossible, they say, to get Medicare for all because the Democrats will get credit for it. So the Republicans will try to destroy it. But if you sneak things into bills like this $300 tax credit that working that all families will get for each kid. If you sneak it into an omnibus bill and the Democrats really don't get credit for it, the Republicans won't touch it. And then it becomes part of uh, 
part of government policy. Is there is there any legitimacy to the Democrats are good at sneaking positive things into stimulus packages that benefit that that change the direction uh, that are almost like an industrial policy? For example, the stimulus bill that Obama got passed, that Biden ran honorably, is responsible for wind power, solar power, uh, that, that Obama deserves a lot of credit for the growth of renewable energy in America because of the stimulus package. Any legitimacy to that? You have to unmute yourself. Well, I think there was a growth in some innovation after we had, you know, what we had dominated 40 years before. Um, But again, it's like if you make heroic efforts, you're in a burning house and you run in and make heroic efforts to get the kids out of their bedrooms and halfway to the door, and that's all you do. You know, we've got a burning house now. We had a burning house 12 years ago. So yeah, all these little incremental things are politically nice. They might ease the tension somewhat. They might make people believe that things are going to happen. But uh, what happened under Obama is that the climate models pegged at their wor- the, lo- the limits of their worst predictions. Why? Because while he was putting a small, a modest amount of money into renewables and batteries, he was also just granting record leases to oil drilling off of our federal lands. I mean, he was making these hundred-year commitments to this horrible, this horrible tar sands oil and these pipelines that we're still living with. And Biden seems to be doing the same thing. He seems to be assuring that we are going to be poking holes in the Earth's crust and getting the carbon out and into the atmosphere for the next fifty or sixty years. What so, do the American people want? It seems like it seems like a lot of the big unions. Uh, want fracking they want yeah. oil drilling it's divide and conquer right i mean the unions but you know uh the unions aren't unions anymore they don't know they don't any, know anything about collective you know national strikes by solidarity with everybody with all the other workers they're just out for themselves and they can just get picked off one after another by powerful interests i mean we just had the siege bill just failed you know, overwhelmingly Democratic House and Senate, state Senate in Illinois with a Democratic governor. That was the Clean Energy Jobs Act that was going to make really significant, you know, structural changes in the way Illinois was going to, you know, start regarding its energy sector and and rely on. Um, I mean, it was just good. It was a real job creation bill. And the reason why it was killed was because some big unions don't want the coal plants shut down. Coal plants uh, still hire a lot of people. And, uh, you know, and, and Dick Durbin, I know he's not in the state Senate, but Dick Durbin is a very powerful figure in, in Illinois politics. And Dick Durbin's a coal guy. Right. Even as they're all spouting out. So. Uh, and I guess it goes down to what you said before. It was um, we have a, a lack of leadership. We had Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders was the real visionary. And Bernie Sanders was the kind of person that even as Rachel Maddow would say, 
my uncle who watches Fox News all the time, and I have one of those, would have voted for Bernie. Yeah. And because Bernie has just allowed himself to fade into the background, and maybe he thinks he's doing little things behind the scenes, but there's nowhere near the movement that we need to have to really solve the problems. And you know, well, Maureen Dowd, Maureen Dowd interviewed him for her Sunday piece, and Bernie is very optimistic, and he thinks he's chairman of the finance committee. He thinks he can get a $5 trillion infrastructure bill passed through reconciliation. Suppose he pulls that off. The, the, the infrastructure has two tracks. There's this one bill that I think some Republicans have gotten on board. And then there's the, the big one that Biden supposedly will get passed through reconciliation. What happens if, you know, it is conceivable that he gets this five trillion dollar infrastructure bill passed uh wouldn't that be enough what would you do if if he but here's the question i have for you why are we even if they're serious about any of this stuff why are they even bothering with the bipartisan bill bipartisan bill is a disaster i mean this bipartisan You know, there is there is no reason for it. I fear that the bipartisan bill might actually get passed and Bernie Sanders will be thwarted again. You know, it's just like all these trade bills, all these trade bills, all these uh, uh, all these uh, reforms. And they always give the powerful what they want up front and they leave the regulation and the environmental protections for, you know, to be worked out later on. And then there's when there's no political incentive or power to solve these issues. Well, let me ask so. you a question. The, the first bill is bridges and roads. Even mm-hmm. Amazon chief uh, Bezos uh, thinks we need this. The second bill is a different definition of infrastructure and tackles mm-hmm. green energy. It's controversial. Bernie thinks we can get five trillion. If we passed, if somehow through reconciliation, you get Mansion and Cinema on board. They pass a five trillion dollar stimulus. A stimu- well, it is a stimulus bill uh, for uh, infrastructure. Biden is done until the midterms. If he could get that passed. If he could get that passed. Would you agree that then, then it would be pretty hard to ask for Medicare for all because the kind of spending I don't listen I I'm for Medicare for all I'm oh, talking no, no, but I mean you're again this is our ideology how are you going to pay for that is a question that no sovereign country has to ask when the need is critical and of course as you know, as Stephanie Kelton and others has explained you know even Bernie Sanders, she says, and she was hired by Bernie, but even Bernie Sanders does not quite understand how the money system works here. Modern monetary theory isn't a theory. It's actually a description about how things actually happen. But there, are, there is blowback. No matter what you do, there are so unintended consequences. Is that fair? I say that's fair, but uh, so could there, there be are unintended things to do than others? I mean, if somebody, if you're having a heart attack, everything that the hospital does 
you know, has some side effects, might. But, I mean, overwhelmingly, you go to the hospital, your life can be saved by doing the right thing, as opposed to going to some quack where they're going to prescribe you something that won't help at all. Okay, so you deal, you're, 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 you're a nuclear f- physicist. You- well, I'm a particle physicist. But we are using particle physics technology to design a nuclear reactor. Like I know. But we are interlopers. Okay. (laughs) So, again, I'm partly playing the other side. There's a teeny part of me that might believe this. If he can get that infrastructure bill passed, that the one that Bernie wants... Don't you have to wait at least a year to see what the blowback is from something like that before you start tackling more ambitious legislation? Unfortunately, that would include Medicare for all. Uh, I think both FDR and Reagan were successful because they did all of these things on several fronts at once that were helping people. Like their opponents could not keep up with the affront that they were, with the assault on the system as it was, that their legislation, that their philosophy was pushing. I'd say that as long as you're making things happen for regular people, they're not going to worry about these technical policy issues. They're not going to be worried about, you know, what the Chicago School economics thinks about, you know, long-term deficit spending. They, they want, if they can get health care, if they can see that roads are, are happening, if they, you know, if they have jobs, they're, and that's the thing. And, you know, and that's why, the Democratic, the business of the Democrats has been to nickel and dime. The business of the Democrats have been to make give sort of good things to prevent the really good things like Medicare for all ever happening. Yes, I think the Affordable Care Act did help a lot of people. It helped a lot of people at the expense of people like me. That's another issue. I was glad to see some of my friends get health care or access to health care. But that was to prevent Medicare for all from happening. Because once you get a a program that popular, it becomes extremely difficult to ever, you know, roll back on it. I mean, even Boris Johnson, those emails were leaked about him, him and the Tories having big plans for privatizing, privatizing parts of their national health system service. Right. And the blowback on that was immense. Boris Johnson was forced to actually increase the funding to the NHS. So it's like they know they know that if you have the kind of thing that FDR did, that there will be no going back to or easily going back to the way things were before. You know, that's why the Republicans had to get a constitutional amendment <laughs> to prevent a, a popular president ever getting more than two terms. You know, because well, I guess Roosevelt was kind of president for life. He did die in office after being mm-hmm. after being elected for the fourth time. So, right. if he had lived for like ten more years, he probably would have been elected three more times. Who knows? But anyway, my point is, so I'm I'm seeing a lot of this nickel in diming. You know, kind of like 
uh, setting a fire, like a firewall to make sure that the bigger fire doesn't get to you. I mean, well, okay, we're going to give these guys, we're, we're going to placate the base a little, we're going to give a few good things. It'll be a step in the right direction. Like, and with climate change, it's totally insane. You know, it's just like, well, something is better than nothing. Getting kids halfway out of our burning house is better than just letting them stay in their rooms while the house burns. And no, it isn't. We've got a burning house. What's going on? Has a, has a fatalism set in? Uh, I think that there's a setback for the progressives that was predictable because even though, you know, people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer come off as a bunch of chuckleheads to me, just like just like Mitch McConnell and McCarthy and Louie Gohmert, they all look like cartoon characters, but they're not. They're very, very good at the game they play, which is staying in power. They stay in power. They don't. So, you know, it's a little bit distressing that the uh, the justice democrats have abandoned what they ran on that you know we're going to bring all of us you know I'm, we're going to need all of you to come and back us up and now they've made u-turns on most of their major promises and said no we got this you know we're working behind the scenes to get things done no you're working behind the scenes and nancy pelosi is getting everything she wants you know and you're telling us to go home you got millions of people that you could mobilize and in fact, when you do mobilize, people get very nervous and they get upset. And, you know, but it does push. The Tea Party, when Kyle Kalinske formed Justice Democrats, he had the Tea Party in mind. He said the Tea Party made life hell for John Boehner. And they didn't care. They didn't care if they were popular. They didn't care if some of them would get elected or not elected. They kept pushing the agenda in a bad direction. But they... But that just showed how a handful, and there weren't many of these guys, just shows how a handful of people could have power and use their leverage, particularly now when Nancy Pelosi's margins are so thin. Is they the Tea Party, we were told, David Cobb yeah. talked about this last week. He ran for president on the Green Party mm -hmm. ticket. I asked him whether or not the Tea Party was AstroTurf, whether or not it was Americans for Prosperity, Dick Army, and Clarence Thomas's idiot wife. Uh, what is her name? Uh, anyway, uh, funded by the Koch brothers. That 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 we were told that the Tea Party really didn't exist. That they were paid and bought for by the Koch brothers. They were paying for the buses. Ginny Thomas, right? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's fine. That's irrelevant. Who they well, I don't know for. if it's irrelevant because... No, but once you get to Congress and, you know, you, it didn't matter who was paying for them or if they were just a, you know, a, a populist, a right-wing populist uprising. It didn't matter for the actual mechanics of the Congress they were able to take their faction because they voted as a block. And maybe it was because they were taking Coke money that they could stay so coherent. I don't know. But uh, the, the whole point was in terms of how things happen in Congress is that they voted as a block. And for Boehner to have a majority, he needed those guys. Right. So, uh, you know, there's 
the other thing that Kyle Kalinske said, you know, reflecting on all this, because he was definitely for force the vote. He really wanted them to use their leverage. He said, you know, the one thing we vetted for policy, we vetted for people who were activists. But the one thing we didn't vet for in Justice Democrats was leadership ability and leadership skill. And that seems to be what's lacking. Now, maybe Nina Turner comes into office. She has demonstrated she's been around the block. She has stood up to her party. She's taken tremendous amounts of flack for basically going with Bernie instead of Hillary. She's uh, proven herself to, you know, at least have the courage and the ability to do it. Uh, How's it looking? The primary, she's running for Marsha Fudge's old seat. She's How does it look? By all counts, she's got a rather substantial lead. Um, Voting has started in the primary. Yeah. And and if you win, I mean, basically, whoever wins the primary is going to be the congressperson. That's a very heavily Democratic district. Right. So I don't know. I'm just crossing my fingers and hope that Obama doesn't take it upon himself to enter into this race and declare a favorite. I mean, Clyburn... You know, Hillary, these are not scintillating figures on the American on the American political scene. Obama still has a certain cash with, uh, you know, Democrats and even some progressives. So I just hope he stays out. Yeah. Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist and she is a parks commissioner of Aurora, Illinois, before you go, what's on your mind? What is there anything that you wanted to talk about? I kind of. Oh, well, we, we, we talked about quite a bit. And, you know, and I was going to talk a little bit about Wells Fargo, but that's another thing, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Horses left the bar. You know, that Wells Fargo, after they bailed out all of these big banks, you know, they proceeded to go on to even bigger crimes, you know, Chase, uh, these there were like record number of fines imposed on these financial institutions. And one of them that was just outright criminal was Wells Fargo. You remember that? And they were, they were incentivizing their employees to illegally open up accounts on behalf, you know, that weren't asked for by their customers. And then if you didn't pay some fee or you, you know, failed to miss a fee due date, you know, then you got, you, you got hit. And the sad thing is most people just pay, I mean, they don't question what the banks tell them. They just pay what they're, they, uh, they're told they're owed. Well, this latest round is that Wells Fargo has decided to just abruptly end, I don't know, like a million credit, lines of credit, credit accounts, lines of credit, which is kind of the lifeblood. You get a, a credit line so that, you know, you can, that'll bridge your, if you're business or even if you're just a household, if you have big projects, projects that will bridge you through fairly tight times. It's a backup for when it, to prevent you from overdrafting on your bank account and accruing fees. But, you know, among other things is that when you, when your line of credit is suddenly terminated, that's an enormous hit on your credit rating. And Wells Fargo is just doing that, thinking that, well, you know, we want to concentrate our business model on high interest credit cards rather than the lines of credit that actually help people and small businesses. So I'm going, you know, the criminality never ends with these guys. Uh, So that's why I'm by the way, it's not to say that, you know, the FTC chair that I am not delighted with her. As I said, I thought somebody might not have been doing their diligence. She was 
I think she was recommended by um, Elizabeth Warren, but I think she's about Lena Khan? a far more committed reformer than Elizabeth Warren ever was. Yeah, you like Lena Khan, don't you? Oh, absolutely. I, I kind of brought her up yeah. uh, last week, and she's... Um, she has gotten a lot of crap for, well, I think you were talking about her dissertation on Amazon and their business models and, you know, so um, now her ability to, I mean, she can set policy, she can get regulations, but as I'm saying, the whole culture, the whole regulatory culture has to change. So they can't just stop making mergers and stop these guys from doing bad things. Um They've got to like think about breaking things up. They've got to think about putting, for instance, uh, what Dr. Gene was talking about in the last in the last session. Maybe public uh, public pharmaceutical corporations, so that you know people who are going and suffering through pain from disease and and injury and and medical issues don't awful also have to suffer from bankruptcy or just the anxiety that they can't get their meds you know because some middleman with working with the insurance companies is just refusing to allow it these are crazy but this is all cultural it's not one little you know so okay you know i'm willing to be optimistic like i'm willing to be optimistic about bernie's bill his infrastructure bill but i'm always kind of going well all right that bernie's bill would be fine why are they wasting so much time and energy on the bipartisan bill that I hope doesn't pass, by the way? Right. There is just a lot of crap in there that, um, including a very regressive tax to pay for it all. Um, why don't we just go through the reconciliation bill? And then, you know, and if you were a real leader, you'd figure out where the pain points were with uh, Senators Cinema uh, and Mansion, and you press on them. But we don't have leaders. Yeah. Before you go, uh, Jeff Bezos, who is going into space. I'm going to mute you for a second. Uh, Jeff Bezos is going into space and he also owns The Washington Post. And he promised that The Washington Post would be objective and he's just trying to save journalism. There was an editorial written by the editorial board of the Washington Post about Lena Khan over the weekend. And it was entitled, don't want the FTC to act on antitrust, tell Congress to get moving. I thought, uh, what? Like, why is it? This must be a put on, right? Well, as the honest Mike Mom Pompeo said in that fictional phone call, well, you know, I, I promise not to eat donuts on donut day, but that I do. What are you going to do? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, he's going to do what he's going to do. Um, I find that preposterous. I, I think that these the, the arrogance and the, you know, the egotism of these guys, I mean, all this money spent on these vanity trips for these billionaires, I mean, they're the equivalent of just rolling up thousand dollar bills and lighting your cigarettes your cigar with them back in the 20s you know that's what these guys are doing in front of us this is a show you know this is this is so far past capitalism or market or anything this is just about flexing power you know right so jeff bezos's washington post amazon i think we can all agree violates the sherman antitrust legislation they have come out against lena khan because 
she's exceeding her purview as commissioner of the FTC and that any antitrust enforcement should be based on a bipartisan bill. This, this is the Washington Post saying you they did. Oh, it seems that. And they're asking Bond has exceeded her authority. They're asking readers to call your congressman and pass bipartisan antitrust legislation and put an end to Lena Khan, who's only been there for two weeks. They write at the end, bipartisan antitrust bills remain in legislative limbo in the House of Representatives. Anyone concerned that an overzealous group of unelected officials are wrongly taking matters into their hands should also want Congress to stop sitting on its own. Yes, we don't want activist judges ruling from the bench unless they're conservative judges, and we don't want an FTC enforcing antitrust legislation that's the enforcing the 140 year old laws we have on the books right right that's jeff bezos's (laughs) washington post he promised i mean as i said just like the goldman sachs article about you know curing patients being a bad business model i mean this isn't the i mean it goes beyond even the onion's capacity for satire you know who would call their congressman and say don't don't let the ftc Break up Amazon. Poop. No real person. That's what I'm That's saying right. to your question before. I mean, if there were just some real cojones in the Democrat in the leadership, if Bernie Sanders just hadn't completely capitulated, I mean, you know, didn't they find you out? Would force all of these things at once. It would be a multi-faced assault, and you would just dare these people to like, you know, take away all their health care, take away your constituents' health care, deny your constituents' jobs. Right. Didn't we discover that the FCC, when the FCC was trying to decide on net neutrality, there were like hundreds of thousands of comments sent to the FCC website. And it was discovered that that like 90 percent, like 100 percent of all the comments, there was an overwhelming number of people writing in to say, no, net neutrality. We don't want net neutrality. And like all of them came from third party operators hired by the telecommunications agencies. Almost making their point. Yeah, it's yeah. like, huh. all right. I love it when people make my point for me, my, yes. my opponents. Yeah, well, you know, that's that, that's where, you know, some uh, faction of the right can that is on board with some faction of the left i mean people want open open internet they want things to you know they don't want an arbitrary group of people deciding who should post on things and they don't want people deciding who should have access you know to to information and who can who can get on the super freeway of the uh internet and who has to take the back roads and so on and so forth yeah, so. Professor Marianne Cummings, we'll, we'll see you Thursday for the professors and Marianne. When we come back, thank you so much. When we, when we come back, Johnny Ross will join us and we'll talk about whatever is on his mind. But I have to play his favorite song for him. Music from Professor Mike Steinel. I'm on my 
way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. Fifteen bucks an hour, five days a week. Fifty-two weeks a year and thirty-two thousand years. I know it's a long time, honey, to thirty-four thousand and twenty. But when I get there, babe, I'm gonna be in the money. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. now go to Deerfield, Massachusetts, where gentleman farmer John Ross, he's been working the fields, plowing, planting. No? I got a a hard out. We got to move this. You have Uh, a hard out? You should see a urologist about that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not I'm not in Deerfield. I'm in Los Angeles. Really? And yeah. And you didn't send me an invite. So I had to go through Dan Frankenberger, who forwarded me an invite. Uh, so what, what are you doing? I, I did send you an invite. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Um, to, not to my email address. I don't know whose email address you sent it to. Uh, but here's a chart from The Economist. Air passengers have become much more confrontational during the pandemic. Look at this chart. Five, it jumps up to something like... Uh, that's Five great. Huh? All right. Well, I'll tell my story. What story? I'm in Los Angeles. You're in Los. So yeah. I'm at. Uh, I fly out of Hartford, and I, I am in Hartford. And f- first of all, the uh, gate isn't. The the computer's down at the gate. What so airline? What airline? JetBlue. We like JetBlue. Okay. Um, the Royal We. 
And so the computer's down. So they have to check everybody in by hand. Well, you know, pen and paper, that whole thing. They're my and, favorite magic act, pen and paper. How many years have they been running on Las Vegas? Go ahead. We're two hours behind for whatever reasons we're behind. Uh, finally, get in the plane. Everybody gets seated, getting ready to taxi. I start hearing from the back of the plane. Hey, Roy, I'm not going to do it. Hey, you were on your man. I'm not going to. And I hear the word mask a couple of times. Sometimes. No, no. Yeah. yeah. And so suddenly... The, somebody comes over the last figure, ladies and gentlemen, we have a uh, security issue. I'm afraid we're going to have to ask everyone to uh, deplane and we're going to have to remove the person from the plane. And then uh, once every, they've been removed, we'll be able to reboard the aircraft. And so we had it was as if we had just landed. You had to wait for everybody to get off, you know, from the beginning of the flight. And we all get off and you pass a couple of police officers who are standing in the jetway just waiting. And so we get off and um, and so we're all standing around waiting and I'm kind of interested to see who this guy. And then I hear a couple of girls talking and going, I can't believe we had to sit like right behind that guy. Right. And. I, so I asked, I said, so you, you saw him? What was the thing? They said he was just being ignorant. He just, that he kept saying, yeah, I'll put it on in a minute. Like, give me a minute, just a second. Just a second. And he just kept not putting his mask on. And I guess they have like a zero tolerance policy and he got belligerent. And, and, the, and they said, yeah, he's, he's traveling with his grandmother and his son. So I don't know what's going to happen to them. And, and he, they, Took him off and he was a young, he was either African-American, he might have had an accent, so he might have been Dominican or something like that. And I saw a state trooper kneeling down, the little kid was crying and he he was like talking to the kid and giving him a hug and a high five. So, you know, you're gonna love jail, son. And so <laughs> <laughs> marched him away. Now we have to reboard the airplane again by hand. They have to check everybody's name with a pen and paper, your favorite magic act. And so we get back on the plane. We're sitting on the plane. Captain comes on and says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, since we've been idling for so long, we now need to refuel. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So they just wasted an entire tank of gas. Like the climate yeah. really needs that. Yeah. And so so now they have we have to wait while they gas back up and finally we take off. How many hours? Huh? How many hours? Did and, and the whole time you have to be wearing a mask. So right. I was probably in a mask for, but though you can take it off to eat. So I guess, you know, if you've got food going in, there's not that much COVID coming out. Um, so yeah, I was probably in that mask for something like 10 hours or something. Did you get claustrophobic? I see. I get claustrophobia. Oh, I, I could see get, getting claustrophobic with a mask. I get annoyed. That's all I get is annoyed. I mean, I try to just be look. There's always somebody who's got it worse. I'm okay. So I'm here in Los Angeles, um, and last night you missed it. Uh, had a little uh, soiree, a little get together at Mark Thompson's. Ooh, I'm jealous. Who was there? Bobby Slayton. Wow. And and his girlfriend, Kevin Pollack, and his longtime girlfriend, me, Jake, Jonathan Groff. That's heaven. That's that was it was pretty good. 
That's pretty great. How hard did you laugh? Yeah, you know, not not that hard. Uh, I mean, it was it was great. It was fun. It was just fun catching up with everybody. We we, we didn't get into you any know, fights. No fights. No arguments. Because sometimes, sometimes that's because Jim Edwards wasn't there. Right. Uh, but not, even without Jim Edwards, sometimes there's a that's a that's a core group of San Francisco comedians, except for Jonathan Groff. Uh, and when we get together, something, somebody says something and gets loud. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know how much stand up Pollock's doing anymore. Slayton is like, I'm retired. He, he doesn't want to do, you know, he's doing the Skechers ads and he, he doesn't want to. Is he able to? I'm not going out on the road anymore. What is, well, nobody's been on the road for a year and a half. The road needs Bobby. What's that? I would think Bobby on the road now would be the hottest draw because everything he says you can't say. Right. I mean, but what is comedians? Things you can't say. I have not listened to your show at all today. Have you talked about Rob Schneider? You know, I saw him. First of all, I saw on Twitter people were making fun of him. Yeah. Uh, Is he okay? What does that mean? Is, I mean, is he mentally uh, okay? I mean, uh, did something bad happen to him? No, wait, no. He well, he came out super duper hardcore anti-vax, and then uh, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know this. Uh, well, I mean, I I know Rob. You know Rob. I know his politics are a little. Uh, you know, his really? daughter is. I, listen, Rob. Yeah. You know, you asked Robert Smigel about yeah. Rob Schneider. Nobody, I mean, brilliantly funny. So really? underrated. Really? Yes. Okay. Okay, uh, t- tell me what he said that he shouldn't have. Uh, I'm trying to find his, uh, hang on, let me see if I can get it. Maybe somebody in your... Chat room has it faster than me. By the way, and uh, his daughter is such an amazing singer. Yeah, that is. Uh, uh, it was something about uh, you know just it, it personal freedoms and body autonomy, and don't let the government come and say no, and keep saying no, and then it's hashtag. This is what the Second Amendment is for, which I shot. Either it's a shot. What's that? It's a shot. Yeah, I think you're supposed to shoot the virus. Right. Or yeah. I'm not understanding exactly. Um, and yeah. It, it, Rob Schneider encourages us to speak out, push back, and rebel against the stifling and fascist era of woke McCarthyism. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. Like I said, he's funny. He's funny. It is. He's being funny. He doesn't mean that. No, it, this is, is I, his commitment to the bit is fantastic. I appreciate that he is taking it all the way to the end. But he's he's not getting vaccinated. Is it wrong that I am now rooting wholeheartedly for COVID? <laughs> <laughs> Take him out. Like, you had your chance to get vaccinated, and now look, go go get him, Delta. <laughs> 
Well, hang on. He, so he's not getting. He's not. Uh, he's not getting. He's not getting back. Not. He's telling everyone not to and to continue to say no. He called it like experimental gene therapy that um, that the government is doing on the population. What is it, Kefiva? What is what is the World Wrestling Federation call it when you commit to the bit and you don't drop the character? I think it's oh, called Kefiva or something. Oh, I didn't know that. There's He's just that. I think it's let me just check the chat room. I'm surprised the people who listen to my show don't know anything about world wrestling. Uh, I think it's called Kefiva. The, the guy K- in the kayfabe. 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 Okay. And the the who's the guy in the wheelchair? Cawthorn? Is that his name? Matthew Cawthorn? There's a wrestler in a wheelchair? No, he's in Congress. He, uh, he's the right wing nut job. Oh, right. Who's, Greg Abbott's in a wheelchair, too. He, he says that you know, because aren't they talking about like sending doctors and nurses out like door to door to to like offer people the vaccine, like make it that easy? Like, hey, ding dong, do you want it? We got it. You know, and he was saying that is just the government's excuse to take people's guns and their Bibles, mm-hmm. which we should. <laughs> They're going to come and take your Bible. Like you, you just go to a motel and get another free one. <laughs> what? I don't. I can't take my Bible. How am I gonna? I still haven't finished it. I don't know how it ends. I have the clip. I have them. Hang on for one second. How's this? Look at this. I'm gonna play the clip. You ready? Oh wow! I doubt it, but go ahead. I bet you I do. Let's see. Bill to be able to actually execute that massive of a thing. And, and now they're starting to talk about going door to door to be able to take vaccines to the people. It, the thing about the mechanisms they would have to build to be able to actually execute that massive. All right. And, and now they're starting to talk about going right. door to door to be able to take vaccines well, to the people. It, and, and now they're starting to talk about going door to door to be able to take vaccines to the people. It, the thing about the mechanisms they would have to build to be able to actually execute that massive of a thing. And then think about the, what those mechanisms could be used for. They could then go door to door, take your guns. They again go door to door, take your Bibles. Yeah. And so it's a, it's serious. And bro, I'm, and, and now <laughs> I can't stop it. I couldn't stop it. I could, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm lear- sorry. Did, were you able to hear that? Yes. Oh, okay. So at least that worked. What? I could, I could hear it all eight times. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm uh, trying. I'm learning new things with this software. So, so go ahead. Yes. Uh, so anyway, I went. Uh, I don't have a car. I didn't rent a car this time because it's like so expensive to rent a car. How much is it? To, how much does it cost to rent a car? To, hundreds of dollars a day. Right. So if I wanted to have one for four or five days while I'm here, it would have been, you know, more, way more than the plane ticket cost me. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll get an Uber from the airport. I'll catch rides with people. But then I thought, oh, you know, they have these scooters around here. And like li- there's a lift bike that you can rent and take. And I said, oh, I'm going to try that. Uh, and so and then Ford the Ford Motor Company has this spin scooter. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And I so I download the app and I'm supposed to go meet somebody and they're way over in, um, you know, kind of West Hollywood. And I rent the thing and I'm going and it's going great. I'm like, 
and I'm going down Pico and then I'm going down Olympic and I'm going past Century City. And then all of a sudden it goes and it shuts off. And I'm like, what the this happened to me? I go ahead. It, it, they don't operate in certain like there's different cities. There's West Hollywood is its own city and Bel Air is its own city. And there are certain laws and rules where they can operate. And it suddenly just shut off. And I, I had to walk it out and now like look at the map and see how I could possibly go around. And it just turned it. Eventually, I had to park the thing and call an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> that happened to me with a rental car three years ago. I, I rented it from like nine in the morning till six. I park the car. It's like six oh five. I go get a cup of coffee. I come back. It won't start. I call triple A. Like I'm the, for and the and the the effing rental company turned it off because I didn't call them to tell them I was going to be late. Like, wow, like, I didn't know they had that technology. Like, it's like my mother. You didn't call. We were worried sick, so we shut the car down. So why are you in L.A.? You're catching. You know what? Nothing would have made me happier than to be at 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 Mark Thompson's with Bobby Slayton, Jonathan Groff, Jake. Who Kevin else? Pollock. And Kevin Pollack? Yeah. Now, is Kevin I, able to tell stories with, and, and you? Yeah. Did I leave anybody out? Nope. Is Kevin able to tell stories without Bobby interrupting him? Um, no one is. Uh, <laughs> no one can. Uh, but uh, they're good interruptions. Uh, Any gossip? Uh, it was. It Any was gossip? Good. What's that? Any gossip? No. Come on, you don't have to. You don't have to tell me what the gossip is. I know, but I'm just trying to. Was there something like some? Is there a like make a cup of coffee kind of thing? No. No. I mean, look, these guys are all super successful. I mean, so it doesn't uh, sound like fun. No, you're right. You wouldn't have liked it. No. But I, I'm meeting another friend, a writer friend. Uh, who's also last name is Pollock, John Pollock. And I'm meeting him tonight. So I've got to go grab a, a scooter. Now I, I, I know the path and it's free. OK, uh, we have. Uh, can you spare five more minutes? Five more minutes. Yes. How long are you in L.A. for? I come back on Wednesday. And how does it feel to be back there? You've been going back even during COVID, right? No, I went. No, I have not been back since I had my big birthday party here that uh, Jonathan Groff threw for me at his house. I bring all the boys to the yard. You know, <laughs> they all want to party. Damn. So, um, yeah, I, it, you know, it's OK. It's a little weird. I went in the ocean yesterday. I went down and the, the water was just beautiful and the waves were big and I, I swam and I caught waves and then I sat on the beach and I listened to my book on tape and uh, then I went back in the ocean and I walked home, I took a nap. It's, wow. it's pretty good. Yeah. It's, wow. it's, it's awesome. How far are you from the ocean right now? You're in Santa Jake Monica. Jake lives on Fort... I'm at Jake's. Don't give the address. Don't give the address. He lives four blocks from the beach. And how's the homeless situation? Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. Like over by, do you, do you remember Venice at all? Yeah. Do you remember Gold Gym? That whole block, 
like second and then the block behind it. It is Hamsterdam, man. It is just their tents. And then today I was coming back by the, uh, the veterans building, you know, over there and uh, Wilshire. And, well, I, uh, I would assume if it's homeless, those camps are the veterans building. I'm, I'm telling you that was politically correct, by the way. That's a good. Uh, you are uh, Raymond Donovan. Plan them. Um, you no, know, there was a line of tents, and then they're, they're they're out in front, like sweeping their little area. It, it's like a, a an encampment that is permanent. It seems there were tents that maybe must have stretched a quarter mile of, well, of tents. Jeffrey Ken- Venice is a little more hairy. There's some. Uh, there's some crazies. And then there's the, the motor homes. There's places where those are parked. It is, there's a lot of people living out on the street. Apparently in Hollywood, there's some areas that are, yeah, we're reaching the critical mass. Or we, we're there. But Jeffrey Katzenberg is going to solve it all. He's meeting with all the L.A. leaders, and he's taking an interest in the homeless. So he's, and Eric Garcetti the mayor is going to go become the ambassador to India to find out how they solve their homeless problem. <laughs> they, they got that licked. They will compare to that. What do you think the cause is? Uh, Who's to blame? You know, there, there's no single cause of anything, but I, I do think it's, uh, it's a combination of a lot of factors and, you know, um, the, the income inequality, I think, you know, when you look at how little even people who are working decent jobs are making. And so you're so close to the edge all the time that it's very easy to get tipped into that, you know, and then you're in the system and then it just grinds you down. And, you know, healthcare those costs have skyrocketed. I, I just think people are just living so much closer to that that edge that line that it's just so easy to tip down into it and very hard and mental health um yeah i i don't know i if i had the answer i'd be uh i'd be jeffrey katzenberg uh, the problem is jeffrey katzenberg that who you worked for so i'll keep my mouth shut I, he loved you didn't him. he you know what i realized you know what i realized while i'm here um I had an epiphany about my career in show business. Um, I, in order to have been really successful, I neither, I either needed to be uh, a lot less of an asshole <laughs> or a lot more of an asshole. Oh, say that again. I was laughing. Say that again. Start from the beginning. I needed, in order to be successful in show business, I either needed to be a lot less of an asshole or a lot more of an asshole. Exactly. I was enough of an asshole <laughs> that people didn't want to, you know, necessarily. You, you know, were half an asshole. I was half an asshole. I, I, and I wasn't enough of an asshole that people went, oh, that guy must know what he's doing. Right. Right. Half-assed as someone. Yeah. Do you, th- do you think uh, you can succeed in show business just being, well, it depends. How do you measure success? John Ross is a brilliant comedian. You look great. <laughs> Had I only had a, I needed a smidge more talent too. That would have helped. No, you, you know, you are brilliant. You are. You, you. Hey, the race ain't over. I, I got a project that's out there, and we'll see. Well, keep me in my. As my dentist said to me in L.A., I had a great dentist, but he was really a a film producer. Sure. 
and a screenwriter. He was just doing oh, teeth till there's, you know, project sold. And he used to wrap up the drilling by saying to me, I'll keep you in mind for ancillary projects. Well, thank you, Doctor. And he'd leave. But he, he meant it. I'll keep you in mind. I'd be in the chair with my mouth all numb, not from the uh, cavities and the drilling, but from something. And I'll keep you in mind for ancillary projects. John Ross, follow him on Twitter at Fun With Friction. Give my love, please, to the people oh, you're staying with. I will. And, and uh, I, uh, I appreciate you getting me out of here on time. Oh, no, 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 no. I have just another. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, when we come back, we will go to Germany. We're going around the world from from uh, the West Coast of California back to New York. We are going to go back to Germany and talk to. Uh, well, you know, we met uh, Dr. Gina Huckamaki. Turns out she has a son. And uh, so he's going to interview someone running for Congress. We're going to meet. Uh, is it on? Dan, is his name Henry? Henry Huckamaki. We'll see what this kid is like. But first, new music. Is it, is it, what's his name, Dan? Yeah, it's Henry Huckamaki. Hun Henry Huckamaki. And uh, I don't know if this is sexist, but a couple of people wrote that Dr. Gina Huckamaki is his, sist is his sister. Is that sexist for me to say that? Uh, no. No, no. Then I won't say no. it. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> if it's not offensive, here's uh, you know we launched uh, Richard Branson into space, and in two weeks Jeff Bozos is going into space, and it's just you know Professor Mike Steinel has been so moved by these advancements in science that Bezos and Branson and Musk are making. He wrote a song. And then we'll go to Henry Huckamaki. This is uh, Billionaires in Space by Professor Mike Steinell. Forget about the temperatures on the western coast. Forget about Medicare for all. It's just a ghost. Don't worry about the billion children with nothing to eat. Cause we got billionaires in space. Ain't that neat? Forget about the banks that are too big to fail. Forget about those politicians with their souls up on sale. Don't worry about the climate that is out of hand. Cause we got billionaires in space. Ain't that grand? Bezos, Musk, and Richard Branson, too. Guess they got so much money they don't know what to do. They're headed for a weightless 11 minute ride. If you got a lot of dough, you could be right by their side. 
people lying about elections, right and left, tuition going up, kids smothered in debt, voting rights seem like they're going right up in smoke, but we got billionaires in space, ain't that woke? Forget about those citizens so mad they attacked the Capitol Dome. Beating on the police, then running back home. I know democracy sometimes seems like a hollow shell. But don't worry, we got billionaires in space. Ain't that swell? prisons that are busting at the seams don't worry about a generation that have forgotten about their dreams don't worry about people coming to shoot up your school cause we got billionaires in space ain't that cool We've got a very uh, fun interview coming up with a very uh, excellent guest. We actually have a candidate that we're going to be interviewing today. Uh, the candidate is Rebecca Parson, who's running for U.S. Representative in Washington's 6th Congressional District. Hello, Rebecca. How are you doing today? Hi, Henry. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. I, I've been following you for a little while now and, uh, you know, have been very pleased with everything that I've seen. And so when I saw that you were running for office, I was just thought immediately we should try to get her on the show and try to raise the profile of the campaign in whatever small way that we can and hopefully get some people to uh, volunteer for the campaign. Ultimately, it is what the goal is going to be here. But first things first, since I'm assuming most of the listeners aren't going to know who you are, why don't you just introduce yourself to the listeners, talk about your background, um, you know, all, all of that general introductory kind of work here. Yeah, I'm running for Congress in Washington's 6th District, which is Tacoma and the northwestern corner of the state, the Olympic Peninsula. And I have a background. Uh, I sit on the Tacoma Commission on Disabilities. I have volunteered as a court-appointed special advocate for kids in foster care. 
and I ran for the seat last election and I'm running again. Um, but since the primary, when I lost, I've been doing a lot of housing uh, organizing. Housing has been one of my top issues for a long time. And so I've been participating with local groups on, uh, we've been occupying empty buildings to try to get more housing for homeless people in Tacoma. Cause like up and down the whole West coast and the rest of the country, housing is a huge issue here in homelessness. So we've been able to get some wins there, but still have stuff to fight on. And, uh, yeah, that's a little bit of my background. I, long time ago, 15 years ago, out of college, I uh, volunteered with the Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico, which some of your listeners, especially if there's overlap between this show and girl history, um, have probably heard of the Zapatistas. And I, uh, yeah, volunteered as a human rights observer on two 10-day trips with them. And uh, that made a big impression on me. I also read Naomi Klein's Shock Doctrine around the same time. And at that time, she also came to Chiapas and did a a joint uh, conference with Subcomandante Marcos that I was lucky enough to go to, and that had a big impact on me politically. So I guess it might seem like an unusual background for someone who then decides to run for office, um, but that's a bit of the background. And yeah, we can talk later about what I hope to do in Congress. Yeah, absolutely. And we definitely will get to that. And I like that you mentioned guerrilla history because that's actually how I first became acquainted with you is because you are a guerrilla history listener. Yeah, so I am. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm very glad to, uh, to hear that. And yeah, very, very happy that we might have a guerrilla history listener in Congress, which would be yeah. excellent. <laughs> Hopefully more coming in the future as well. Um, mm. But now turning to your race specifically. So you're running against Derek Kilmer. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about who Derek Kilmer is and why you decided that you're going to jump in the ring, put yourself out there and run against him in this race? Yeah, this uh, district has been Democratic for 56 years, yet we're represented by Derek Kilmer, who's the ranked by Dove Track as the 13th most conservative Democrat in the House. And so he's very out of step with the district. You know, in 2016, the district went for Bernie in the primary. It also went heavily towards Bernie in this last round. And uh, there's a lot of, we also have a very radical history in this district. Uh, the first representative for the district proposed uh, an income limit of, I think, one or two million dollars that this district was formed during the Great Depression. And then we had had a lot of IWW uh, locals in the district, a lot of radical action, radical strike action. The National Guard was sent to break up strikes. I mean, we have a lot of uh, radical history in this district and a lot of support for more progressive or leftist policies. Yeah, we're represented by somebody who you know, takes money from Chevron and Marathon Petroleum, opposes the Green New Deal, opposes Medicare for All, and when asked why, just repeats right-wing corporate lies about it. And uh, people in this district are really struggling. We have one of the highest opioid addiction and, and overdose rates in the state. Um, people who are literally dying in line waiting for a drug or alcohol treatment. Um, we have more and more people who are homeless and uh, these issues and, and particularly on climate change, you know, we're impacted in unique ways in this district. Like we just had the heat dome in the Pacific Northwest a little while ago. And uh, um, something a lot of people may not know is that less than a third of people here have air conditioning. So uh, you see those temperatures and you know, you know, it's not that bad. It'll be over in a couple of days, but it is very dangerous for people, you know, 110 degrees with no AC. And then also there's a lot of coastline in my district um, and several tribes that live along the coast and they're having they're being threatened by rising sea levels and having to leave behind sacred land and, and move farther upland to get away from the rising oceans. So for me, you know, why this seat and not something else, something smaller, 
climate change was the major reason because um, you have the most power over the most amount of money and budget at the federal level. And it's a huge, obviously, planetary threat. And so I think all of our federal you know, we need to take money away from fossil fuels and put it into renewable energy. And I think the most can be done in the U.S. at the federal level on that. Yeah. And uh, just briefly, as an aside for the listeners. So when you mentioned, you know, the temperatures don't look that high, maybe to people from the desert southwest or something like that. Uh, and mm-hmm. they, they say oh, it's going to go away in a couple of days. You have to remember that many of the people who are going to suffer most from these extreme temperatures that you that you recently experienced would be elderly individuals who are sequestered within their residences and unable to get out as well as disabled individuals which is why i think your your background as a disability rights advocate uh really comes in handy in terms of looking at both the effects of climate change and the disproportionate effects of climate change particularly in an area that as you said doesn't have a whole lot of air conditioning uh, available widely uh, disproportionate effect on the disability, uh, disabled community within the area. So that's a very important thread that I think that people just need to keep in the back of their mind in terms of who's being affected. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would like to tie these two questions that we just went through together because you started to allude a little bit as to why you're running for this office. But uh, to kind of tie this together in terms of who you are and why you're running for this office, why do you think that you're the right person to run for this office? Why do you think you're the right person to take on Derek Kilmer, who, yes, as you mentioned, is in absolutely terrible, terrible <laughs> fit for that, for that district? Uh, I think I have a background that can speak to people in the district through activism I've been doing. Um, I think, you know, I've been a renter in the past and dealt with rising rental prices. I can uh, relate to the experiences that people are going through. And then also in my family background, uh, my grandfather was a career military. He was a retired as a colonel in the U S army. My dad was a foreign service officer. Um, And I, I certainly have critiques of our U S military uh, and foreign policy, but at the same time, I, I can. There's a military base in the district, and so people ask me, "Well, how are you going to win over people like that? How are you going to, how are you going to win over veterans and active military?" And so, well, uh, they're not a monolith. I, I, aside from having this background in my family, I have friends who are members of DSA and active military. You know, one who was deployed to the border with Trump's. Uh, um, you know, deployment of military on U.S. soil to protect us against the migrant caravan. And he's a, you know, he's like, I don't agree with it. I, I have to follow these orders I don't agree with. So I think there's ways to uh, reach out to people who, um, you know, it might seem at first like you don't have the same background, but we can find some commonalities. And there's also kind of a living memory in the district of our radical past. I have a friend whose grandmother um, likes to sing while she's cooking and she'll sing uh, hymns. And then the only non-hymn she'll sing occasionally is like IWW song and she'll start singing it. And he's like, "Where um, do you know that, you know, those are communists? Like, those weren't communists. Those are just nice people who weren't people to have jobs. <laughs> yeah, I love and that. So, yeah. And so I think uh, there's a lot to relate with people on. And I think my background has shown that I'm willing to fight for the things that I think are right. You know, I risk arrest when, when occupying these empty buildings. And uh, I really care about people who are the most vulnerable and are forgotten. So when we're talking about housing, people who are living on the street, when we're talking about healthcare, people who are dying are going bankrupt. And I think my background shows that I'll actually fight for that in Congress. 
So I'm going to ask you, uh, I mean, a very specific question, and I apologize because it's a very tough question, but it did get raised, which is the military. And we'll get to your campaign priorities in just a second. But as you mentioned, there's a military base in your district. And this is something that has been happening for decades and decades and decades is the military industrial complex has been weaving its web across basically every congressional district. I mean, almost any congressional district you go into, there's either going to be a military base or a military um, supply company, for example, in a very small city on in Wisconsin, that's right on the Michigan, Wisconsin border. It's very close to where I live. It's a small city, but they have a huge um, naval contracting company there. And so everybody in that community is always worried about ah, if the military scales back, that's going to hurt our local economy because we have this huge naval uh, contractor here making the ships and whatnot. So as you mentioned, you have critiques of the military, but at the same time, you have this economic interest within your district. Are you in favor of scaling back the uh, the funding of the military? And if so, uh, roughly to what extent? I'm not asking like, you know, 56% or something like that. Just are, are you yeah. talking like a major scale back of funding for the military or, or relatively minor or not at all? Yeah, I would. I support a major scale back of military spending. We spend more than the next 10 countries combined. And there's a lot of these economic issues where people are worried about their livelihood. You know, there's a parallel with the Olympic Peninsula had a huge uh, logging industry, uh, logging old growth forests that will never come back. And in the post-war boom, um, a lot of the boards and wood that went to build all these houses in the boom came from the Olympic Peninsula. And then, um, you know, the logging industry declined. And there's this perennial tug of war between environmentalists and loggers. Um, who do you care about more, like me and my family playing food on the table or the, you know, this owl that you want to protect? Like, why do you care more about the owl than me? You know, and then you can say the same thing with the military and the contracts. And there's lots of other, you know, examples I could give. And I think the important thing is to say, um, I want to, you know, I support cutting it back and I support some kind of jobs program to replace what you would lose, you know? So this district has... Um, had a six civilian conservation court camps during the great depression and you can go stay in these beautiful old lodges and walk along national park trails that were built by the ccc and um we've just kind of totally lost that that the federal government used to do these huge jobs programs on a national scale and so i think if for me, it would be about showing I'm serious about making sure that there's some replacement um, and not just leaving people in the lurch. Um, another thing as well is in rural areas, it's like um, people feel like uh, these politicians in the state capital or in D.C. don't care about people in my area. And it's like, if you want a job, just learn how to code or just move to Seattle. And it's like, well, I don't want to learn how to code and I don't want to move to Seattle. I want to stay living by my family and I want to you know, raise my kids where I was raised and that kind of thing. And so you have to be, which is totally legit. So politicians need to be willing to say, I'm go going to fight for a jobs program in your area so you can stay where you are and um, work a job that, you know, makes sense for you. So that would be my answer to that. And like you mentioned, I mean, the military industrial complex does have this kind of web across the whole country, almost every congressional district. Like you wouldn't think Washington six, um, maybe people who aren't from here, you'd think maybe we have a big tech economy or something. No, it's all in Seattle. Like the big, uh, what we have in this district, one of the distinguishing things is we have the largest collection of nuclear weapons in the entire world <laughs> because of the submarine base. And um, if you tell somebody that like, well, what, 
speaking with people, uh, you know, nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, you support that. Well, you know, many people don't. And so it's just about uh, being realistic about um, people's economic needs and doing something about that. Yeah. And I believe I've talked on this show in the past about the astronomical cost of just maintaining our nuclear weapons, but that's neither here nor there for that, this conversation, but I recommend listeners to go back and find, I think I talked about it on this show in the past, but why don't we turn now to, instead of me trying to nail you down on specific, specific policy issues, why don't we talk about what your biggest priorities of this campaign are? What are kind of the tenants that you're standing on as you're running for office here? Uh, the top ones are, you know, given that we're the richest country on earth, I think it's um, moral, you know, we can make a moral case. We, we should not have people who are hungry, you know, one in six kids going hungry. Shouldn't have people are, who are homeless, 550,000 homeless people in this country. Uh, nobody should be without health care or go bankrupt because of medical bankruptcies. And we shouldn't have half the country being poor or low income. So for me, you know, poverty, hunger, health care, um, and, uh, yeah. And so th- those would be the top issues and putting that into policy action. We Medicare for all, um, a ver- an ambitious national housing program. It just doesn't get talked about a lot. I think over the last few months, more and more people, especially on, uh, YouTube, like the big YouTube shows are talking about housing. It's getting a lot of views, but that's fairly new. And, but it's a, it, it's a, long-term problem that we've had and uh, we used to have things like rent control in this country um you know we had rent control virtually enacted by executive order by the president uh nixon enacted price controls and rent controls when he was trying to control inflation and um you know something we've had in the past so i support uh housing is a top issue for me i support stuff like national rent control a vacancy tax i don't know if you all may have seen that video of mark zuckerberg on twitter where he's riding the hoverboard and um that man owns 10 homes um and so nine of them should be taxed to the max because they're empty and they're not being used um and then on uh, hunger, you know, with one in six kids being hungry in this country, that's another thing I think doesn't get very much attention because children can't make political donations and they don't have lobbyists. So um, children policy on improving children's lives really doesn't get a whole lot of attention. And so uh, with hunger impacting children so much, that's a big one for me. And then on climate change, uh, I think we should completely end fossil fuel subsidies, put a ban on them and move our money to uh, renewable energy. And uh, just if I may, with a few I don't want to say suggestions, but asides that might lead you to some interesting thoughts that might be interesting for the listeners as well. When you mention uh, housing, it reminds me of a statistic that I saw probably two years ago. So I'm really reaching back here to try to remember it. But it was, if you look at the number of vacant houses, we're not talking individual apartment units, but actual vacant houses, uh, there's six times as many vacant houses as there are homeless people at any given time in the United States. And we know that homelessness is a major crisis in the country. We have six times as many vacant yeah. houses uh, as we have homeless people at any given time. That's point number one. Point number two, listeners should look into the Vienna model of housing, which I find to be a very interesting and somewhat unique model of housing, which is basically cooperatively run uh, housing. The individuals essentially buy into uh, an apartment complex and then they run it as like a housing cooperative. Uh, very, very successful in Vienna. Um, there's uh, Karl Marx plots that they that they 
famously have it at. Uh, prices are incredibly low, even in central Vienna, which is just uh, outstanding. And it's a model worth looking into, uh, again, just for the listeners as an aside. And uh, the other thing that I want to mention is that when you're, we're talking about the Green New Deal, and this is just a callback to a recent interview that I did, uh, listeners should definitely check out Max Isle's new book, A People's Green New Deal, which is how to look at a Green New Deal from uh, an anti-imperialist perspective, which is something that tends to get forgotten in this conversation uh, that we've been having. And things like Green New Deals have been pushed by pretty right-wing entities. Uh, you actually have to look into the specifics of these plans. And Max does a, a very, very good job in his book, which is, like I said, brand new out. It's been out for about a month or so. Um, really fantastic book. Highly recommend it. But uh, I, I want to make sure that I don't keep blabbering on and we get back to uh, to you, Rebecca. So here's a little I, bit of a- That's a good point on the Green New Deal. I think uh, there's a lot of legitimate criticism of uh, how would this not just be a continued capitalist giveaway? I mean, mm-hmm. if we move towards renewable energy, but it involves um, giving billions of dollars of subsidies to companies to do it and we have no control, you know, I think th- those are legitimate critiques and I would support a transition and a green new deal that is actually for example if we end fossil fuel subsidies and put it into renewables then that should be a publicly owned industry with some kind of democratic control and and we do have to pay attention to uh, the developing world so for example when we're talking about electric vehicles for example of course this is a very obvious example Uh, this is like the most obvious example that you would get from max's book but uh when you're constructing electric vehicles what's something you need batteries what's something you need for batteries lithium where does lithium come from Hmm. places like bolivia uh there's a couple of threads that that the listeners need to dig into for themselves there. Uh, Elon Musk famously saying we will coup anyone we want shortly after (laughs) Evo Morales was ousted by uh, right wing neo-fascistic forces in Bolivia. But again, that's neither here nor there. I want to make sure that we talk about your campaign. Um, So I'm going to give you a bit of a curveball, Rebecca, and feel free to take as much time as you want on it. So the way that Congress is currently situated in the House of Representatives, even more so in the Senate, but well, let's talk about the House of Representatives. It's a pretty conservative group of people that is not very representative of the wants and needs of the American public. So the question then is, and it's always, it's always put out there when progressives are running for office, if you're elected, how are you actually going to get things done? Because the body that you're going to be working with is a fairly conservative body. What kind of things do you think that would be feasible things that you could get done if you were elected other than, you know, to stake your flag in the sand and say, this is what we believe in. And we're going to have the American people drive us to a green new deal. uh, For example, what are, what are things that you actually think that you could get done that you want to push for if you're in office? Oh, so there's a range from kind of smaller scale things to a larger, larger scale. And, and this, starting at the smaller scale, I actually spoke with a former member of Congress because he happened to be on my list of people to cold call to ask for donations. And um, we talked for a while and he, uh, you know, said it's... Um, it can be frustrating to try to get stuff done. But one thing that he always remembered was uh, that something he helped get through, which was an an amendment to somebody else's big omnibus spending bill. And it was for um, 
I think Narcan uh, to prevent people overdosing and to get more distribution of that. And so it, it got, he got it at it. He got, you know, the, whoever the representative whose bill this was to meet with somebody from his district, the, a mother whose son had overdosed and they said, all right, I'll add it to the bill. And it didn't have this other person's name I spoke to on it. Um, it wasn't called the so-and-so bill. Um, and it was just kind of tacked on, but as a result, you know, uh, tens of thousands of additional doses of Narcan went out and people's lives were saved and so he said that was something he was always really proud of and i thought that was something interesting i wouldn't have thought about and you know people called bernie sanders the amendment king um so there are ways to get things through through amendments as opposed to big you know bills of your own um and that's one maybe smaller way and then I think there has to be a willingness to try new tactics uh, because what I saw with doing direct action in Tacoma, for example, is there's already been years and years of trying the same old stuff. Like meet, let's meet with city council. Let's have city council meet homeless people. Maybe that'll twinge their conscience and they won't be, <laughs> they won't have such horrible policies towards homeless people. Why don't we write some letters? Why don't we have a conference about it? You know, all this stuff. But when did things really change? When were 200 shelter beds added in the district when in the, in Tacoma and, you you know, when was a shelter made 24 seven? It was when we started occupying buildings and getting all the news crews coming to us and asking, why are you occupying these empty buildings? And that, that was, that's what's different. And that's what actually caused something to happen. And so I think an interesting approach can be emerging direct action with electoral work. And an example of that, somebody who's done it really well is Shama Swant on Seattle city council. And people who aren't from this area might think, Washington State, Seattle, very progressive. Well, like yes and no, it's kind of it's it's more um, kind of comfortable liberal, you know, wealthy, middle class, comfortable liberals who want to uh, say the right things, use the right words. But when it comes down to it, are we actually going to put money into um, more housing for homeless people? Just as an example, or actually reducing the police budget? And Shama Swant has done things like um, she opened up City Hall and invited a BLM protest into city hall and they sat there and occupied it and basically had a people's session and uh, later people came after shamas want for that and she's had several recall attempts against her funded by the seattle chamber of commerce and so i think um there has to be a willingness to try something new something different um and so i would be looking for ways to do that like the millions of people out there who support these policies and are really frustrated because they don't see politicians actually fighting for them, um, you, marshalling that energy and giving an opportunity for direct action and to really push this conservative body to actually do something. And then third, it would be actually being willing to withhold my vote on things and hopefully have other members of Congress who are willing to join me on that. But if it's just me at the beginning, maybe that's an example. And then I can help more people get elected who are willing to withhold their vote with me. But I, I think there does have to be a greater willingness to play hardball and withhold, withhold your vote uh, when you don't agree with something. Does that include against the Democratic Party uh, establishment? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there has to be, um, for example, withholding the vote against Nancy Pelosi, unless you're going to get some major concessions for it. But it's just, uh, it's maddening to have the White House, the Senate and the House, and still the, the stuff doesn't happen, even things that Biden could do with a stroke of a pen, like canceling student debt. So we, yeah, we have to challenge the leadership. 
Well, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, I, I had a feeling that that was what you were going to say, yeah. but I wanted to make sure that we got it on the record. Uh, yeah. Rebecca, we've got four to five minutes left. Why don't I just turn it over to you now for any last thoughts that you want to give to the listeners about your campaign, how you're planning on, on running it, perhaps that might be interesting to some people and how listeners can find your campaign and how they can volunteer for your campaign, because we absolutely need people like you to be representing us in Congress and, and to get a progressive, uh, more left voice into the federal government. Yeah, thank you. Well, something I, I learned in my last campaign is that you know, we did a, considering we were running in the middle of the pandemic and I we couldn't go door to door, especially because the first you know, COVID cases were discovered few miles away from me. Uh, so field went totally into phone banking. We made almost a million calls and I'm really proud of that. At the same time, I think, um, a big lesson I learned is that, you know, my opponent dropped $600,000 on TV ads and I didn't have the money to run ads. And it's really important to do that just in terms of exposure, you know, uh, in, in sales and other things. It takes multiple times of exposure to be, you know, persuaded on something. And so I need to be able to buy ads and um, do more of that kind of traditional campaigning um, because field alone isn't going to do it. So for me, a big lesson I learned, anybody watching who likes politics and I know when I first started thinking about running you know three years ago I was reading everything I'm like what's been learned what are people doing what are they changing um, fundraising is just incredibly important to be able to afford that stuff so I'm focusing uh, much more heavily on fundraising this time and uh, so if anybody can donate that'd be a huge help at rebeccaparson.com or um, tell friends or family who might be interested um, I support, you know, diversity of tactics. There's other valuable organizing going on, whether it's mutual aid or labor or direct action. Um, and electoral is a way that I choose to pursue. So if you have friends or family who are interested in supporting politicians, please tell them about me. And then we could always use volunteers. Um, again, you can go to RebeccaParson.com or just find me on Twitter and my DMs are open and we could always use volunteers. And can I just have you spell the name of your website very quickly for the listeners who are listening to the podcast and aren't going to see your name up on the screen? Yeah, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-P-A-R-S-O-N.com. Perfect. Uh, listeners, I, I highly recommend you checking out Rebecca's website. Go to Rebecca's Twitter. Rebecca has a great Twitter, uh, which is how we've been interacting back and forth. Um, yeah, and best of luck on this campaign. I, I really am wishing you the best and we'll certainly bring you back on the show again. If you would like to come back, uh, yeah, I, I want to keep, yeah, keep the conversation going, keep listeners informed of how the campaign is going. Um, keep them informed of, you know, what your opponent is doing in terms of, uh, how he's campaigning as well as what he's doing in, uh, in Congress. So, I think that this is an important thing to continue. And I really do hope that listeners check out the website, click the volunteer uh, tab, donate if you have the ability to do so. Uh, again, my guest was Rebecca Parson. Uh, last thing, can you just tell the listeners one more time how to find you on Twitter? Yeah, I'm at uh, Rebecca for WA, R-E-B-E-C-C-A-F-O-R-W-A. You can find me there. Perfect. Thank you very much, Rebecca. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Back to you, David.
be able to actually execute that massive thing. And and now they're starting to talk about going door. All right. <laughs> I don't know how that. Thank you, Henry Huckamacki. Thank you, Dr. Gina Huckamacki. Thank you to all the people who showed up in the Zoom room to attend the live taping of the David Feldman show. If you would like to sit in the studio, it's a virtual studio, go to my website and hit the attend a live taping menu. You'll get a link. Don't forget Friday nights is office hours where you will meet uh, the best people in the world. I mean that. I didn't have too much time to interact with them. It was a crazy schedule today. And there were problems that I will address. I don't understand why we have people on our side who have to attack people on our side. Uh, I don't understand it. It's self-destructive. And if you're a guest on my show, it's because I respect you. I have nobody on this show who I don't see value in. And I don't want guests attacking other guests. Uh, at least uh, unless it's an argument that I've asked for. Uh, it's unacceptable. I want to thank Zach Ford, Martha Previtt. Howie Klein with limited time uh, we got to spend with him. He will be back. I spoke to him. Bruno Amato, David Cobb, Cherry Honkala. Do Dr. Harriet Fraud called me. Something came up. She's fine, by the way. She's fine. Dr. Gina Huckamaki, Professor Marianne Cummings, Henry Huckamaki, Rebecca Parson, comedian Jake Johansson, had a booking that he had to get to, so he couldn't be with us tonight. He sends his love and he apologizes and he will be back when he can. John Ross. And I think that takes care of everything. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and please protect the weak. Guys, we need a medic. Is there a medic here? Do not come. Do not come. Thank you. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank <laughs> you.
this time right now For the Daily Development Show So get your ears on right And buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way He's got a lot to say And he's coming your way Thank <laughs> you.